Shut up and sit down. We're recording. Where's the button? I found it. Okay. All right, what's up, party peeps? Jimmy Rhodes, uh, your local neighborhood friendly whatever guy sitting here. Uh, it's episode four of Sorry About Your Feelings. Um, tonight, my guest is Joseph Evans. I've actually known him for about a year yeah, about or so, that. Yeah. maybe a little longer. He is running for Congressional District 1 in the state of Idaho here. We live in Boise um, as a libertarian candidate. Um, so what's up, Joe? Good to see you. Hey, uh, thanks a lot for inviting me to your safe space here, Jimmy. Yeah, <laughs> oh, you've, you've heard uh, about yeah, the safe yeah. space. The safe space, absolutely. Uh, awesome. No, but yeah, uh, looking forward to the conversation tonight. Uh, me too. Good stuff. Yeah, totally. So um, before we kind of get started with um, my main interest in having you here was I'm really interested in your platform, right? And the the inner workings of a political campaign. <laughs> like, right from the horse's mouth, if you will. Right. Absolutely. That's fascinating to me. And so we kind of, we banter back a lot on Facebook and whatnot. And we yeah. see things way differently, which is awesome. Oh, I, yeah. I totally encourage that with people. Um, So a little background on you. You were your former Army. Yes. Correct? Yes. Well, what, uh, how long were you in and whatnot? Uh, I was in for about 19 years. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I joined back in 1994, uh, right after issues with Somalia, Mogadishu. You Black, know, the, Black, Black Hawk, Hawk Down. Down. Yeah. yeah. And matter of fact, that was part of the big thing that brought me down was, uh, you know, there was an awful lot of news about what was going on with the Army Rangers, Black Hawk Down, the things that were going on in Somalia. And, you know, this was one of those humanitarian missions, one of those things, hey, you know, I can become an elite military operator, go out and do great things for the world and, you know, make the world a safe place for everybody. Right. Yeah! And uh, so back in 94, I went in, sat down, talked with a recruiter, and said, you know what, I, I want to be an Army Ranger. So they set me up with an unassigned Ranger contract. I found my way in, actually made it through most of the initial training, and spent my first year with uh, the Army Rangers. Oh, wow. Did a couple days in Haiti, did some training down in Panama, you know, some real good things. And then, of course, I got hurt and uh, had to recalibrate what my goals were as far as the military went, and went, spent two years just down the road from uh, 2nd 75th Ranger, um, well, 2nd Second Ranger Battalion, 75th Ranger Regiment at Fort Lewis. Just went down the street a that's little ways. That's in Washington, Yeah, right? that's okay. in Washington. So, you know, right next door. Um, just went down the street, spent two years working with field artillery, and then reclassed over to military intelligence. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Cool. What was that like? <laughs> uh, it's actually really interesting because you start out with military intelligence. They're looking at different jobs. And... My original goal with reclassing was they were going to teach me a language. They oh, taught wow. me Korean. I went uh, to Defense Language Institute, spent two years down there learning Korean, almost all of which I have forgotten at this point. Okay. Because since then, you know, we've been in Iraq and Afghanistan for, you know, 20, 19 years now. And, of course, if you're running missions in Afghanistan and Iraq— you're not maintaining your language skill, skills for Korea. Right. That so, makes sense. you know, okay. it's, uh, but that was the thing. They went in, became a signals intelligence analyst, did a year in Korea. I was in Korea when the towers came down. And then I popped on over to uh, 10th Mountain Division, which 
of course, had Mogadishu fame written all over it because they were supporting the Army Rangers back in Black Hawk Down. Okay. And uh, 2002, spring of 2002, I was in Bagram, Afghanistan for the first time. Wow. Yeah, and working with that, doing signals intelligence analysts, trying to understand a completely different battlefield. Because when they teach you signals intelligence analysts in the military, they teach you, you know, big missions. You know, mm-hmm. you're, you're going against the uh, Russians, or you're going against the Chinese, or you're going against one of these other well-established, you know, and they teach you doctrine about, okay, this radio signal is going to emanate from this kind of uh, unit, and we need to understand what's going on with that unit. And then turn around, and you're in Afghanistan and Iraq, and it's like, yeah, the bad guys are using cell phones. Where's their cell phone at? <laughs> um, yeah, that that's not what they taught me in school. <laughs> right. Yeah. So was the school a lot kind of like school here, like where we don't really have a lot of pl- practical application? Is it in the military? Is it kind of like that? Well, no. Practical application, they have to build everything on practical application for the military schools. Okay. So, literally, they are teaching you what they believe you need to know in order to conduct the operations. I so get it. Okay. what they taught me in school was exactly what I needed to address the issues with North Korea when I was stationed in Korea. Right. Okay. So, I knew exactly what it was, the equipment I was dealing with, and all of the rest of that stuff. And then turn around and, hey, you're going to be complete monitoring a completely different set of signals in Afghanistan. Uh, sorry, we don't have the training, but you're going to go and do it anyway. So that you basically just trial by fire, essentially. Uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, take us out of the frying pan, stick us into the fire, and run with it. Wow. That's got to be crazy. Cool. Okay. So, that, like, and the reason I ask that is because you know how school is. It's kind of like regular school. It's just kind of like... You do these classes, and that's it. Yeah, do the classes, and hopefully you'll gather enough of it to, once you get your job, be able to learn what your real job is, because we're not actually going to... And uh, the the army's usually pretty good about that. Most of the okay. military training is. Yeah, I was curious with that because, like I said, my uncle was a marine, so you know he was very specialized. Like I almost joined the corps at the age of eighteen, and his big thing was like I went and talked to the recruiter and everything, and he was like, uh, "Get it in writing, whatever your job." Right. Title's going to be anything. Oh, Department of the Navy is absolutely the worst at screwing you over. Are they really? Yes, absolutely the worst. I uh, you know contracts that's you probably know, you, why told you me go that. in and they say okay we're we'll go ahead and send you to this school yeah but if you don't pass it's needs of the navy okay i see which means that you go in and you're expecting to be a nuclear engineer right and six months later you're swabbing the deck on an aircraft carrier because you didn't pass because you didn't pass yeah okay that makes sense to me see uh, and luckily i didn't join you know, yeah. I mean, for my sake, maybe. I don't know. And, well, you know, you remember being 18. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I was, I'm was i a late bloomer, so, as my dad so succinctly puts it. That's very cool. Okay, so, in the guise of having served your country, yes. obviously, and for 19 years, that's a lifetime. Uh, like, I've lived here for 20 years now, so, you know. And it's hard to remember what you were doing back before then, right? No, not really. I mean... <laughs> I, I get the 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 uh, equation there, but like for me, not really. Like I have a pretty good memory. Um, like I was a ball player, okay. So you know, that was my thing. Like that got me to college and the whole bit baseball. Nice. Um, but under the guise of having served your country, when did you decide then um, to run 
for office. Is this your first? This is your first time, right? No, this is actually my second time. Okay. Uh, two years ago, I ran for Idaho State Legislature. Well, actually, Idaho State Senate. Oh, okay. I was running for District Twenty One, which okay. uh, is you know Meridian. Okay. And that was part of the process of getting my feet wet, but. You step back and you look at what was going on at the time and what was convincing me that politics was the direction I needed to go. And that was as soon as I got out of the military, you know, I had to come back. I had to recreate myself, rebuild myself, right. turn around, jumped straight into college, knocked out two degrees in three years, nice. started getting involved with a number of activist organizations. Okay. You know, two of the minors that I picked up were, of course, sustainability. You know, we're all about green living, right? Okay. You know, zero, you know, net carbon footprint, all that fun stuff. And the other was nonprofit management. Okay. And this gave me an introduction to an awful lot of nonprofits and the way they work and the way they're managed, particularly here in the area. Okay. And when you start to realize that there's actually 800 plus listed nonprofits in the state of Idaho. Wow. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Think about that for a moment. You know, 800. I just did think about that. That's right. For, and there's, what, 1.7 million people in the whole state? Right. Right? So, you know, literally. literally wow. Yeah. It's it's incredible. You know, but you start taking a look at how a lot of them operate and how they're okay. managed, and a lot of them just sort of start falling through the cracks. Right. You know, because it's like, wait, there's a nonprofit for that in the state of Idaho? Yes, there is. So, like, basically, like, name a social issue and there's a nonprofit for yes. it? Yes. Is that... Am I gathering that properly? Yeah, essentially. Okay. You know, and there are some where there's duplicates. You know, you talk about environmentalism in the state of Idaho. Okay. Okay. If you start going through the list, you can probably count up, you know, 15, 20 different environmental organizations that are registered as nonprofits in the state of Idaho. Okay. How many of them are actually active right now? How many of them have management that is actually making them work and do what they're supposed to be doing? I would guess three. Yeah, about that. Okay. Uh, you got uh, Citizens Climate Lobby is fairly active here. It's okay. got a Idaho chapter associated with the National uh, Sierra Club's got a chapter here. I'm familiar with Sierra Club. Uh, Morrison Knutson Nature Center. Yeah, that's, that's the one down off of Walnut. Yeah, that's the one okay. down off of Walnut, right yeah. behind the uh, fishing, fishing game. Fishing game, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, nice. You know, so environmentalism probably has closer to about seven or eight that are actually active that are actually Currently. active okay and yeah. doing what they're so in the in the guise of a non-profit then wh how are they managed how are they run like what's their what's their uh what's the word i'm looking for I, like I, I almost said ponzi scheme and i don't want to say that but you're not wrong oh okay okay reason why is because is some of these you know Nonprofits are politics. Right, right, right. Okay, so you start getting involved in a nonprofit and you start getting involved in the organization. And as soon as the nonprofit starts becoming noteworthy, I see. Okay. As soon as it starts becoming noteworthy, it starts attracting interest of people who with, are interested in power, not necessarily the right. mission of the nonprofit. So people with, with less than noble intentions find their way involved in it, which is how okay. you end up with some of these organizations that where a manager or secretary or treasurer is capable of embezzling a million dollars out of an organization. Didn't that happen here? Didn't someone embezzle <laughs> from a place like that? Or it was a, someone worked for the courthouse or something a few years back? It, it doesn't matter. You know, 
there's probably about a dozen different nonprofit organizations in the state of Idaho that have had something similar happen to them. Okay. Now, whether or not they were prosecuted or simply removed all depends on, you know, the nature of the relationship between the person who was caught and who determines whether or not they're going to actually investigate and prosecute. Right. You know, so it's like... It was, it was a, I think it was a lady in Canyon County. She worked for the Canyon County government. It, or it was a guy or I can't remember. There's somebody, I think it was yeah. Canyon County a few but, years back. There you're actually dealing with government. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're not dealing with a nonprofit organization, per se, but you're dealing with government. Gotcha, okay. But as they start getting up there and they start becoming more efficient or more recognized, you start seeing people getting involved with it. So um, the Nature Conservancy League, okay, that's a big one here in Idaho. They do a uh, speaker's tour out of Boise State University, ISU. And I remember thinking hey, this is an environmentalist group, right? This this is what this is about. This is about environmental preservation. And then I showed up at some of their speeches and some of their events, you know, and I get individuals, and I'm listening to people talk about, um, one of the guys was a Duke professor, and he was talking about the age of man, you know, uh, the Anthropocene. And he wasn't talking about environmentalism. And he actually wasn't even talking about conservation. You know, one of his things was, you know, we got a strip mine down south in Bisbee, Arizona. Okay, this is a strip copper mine. It's huge. Big pit. You know, you got oil and stuff that's sitting down in the bottom of it. Let's make that a monument. Wow. Let's make that strip mine a monument to the ascendancy of man. (laughs) <laughs> what? I that was literally his thought process, you know, of the coming of man. You know, everything that exists exists because man allowed it to exist. Like rivers? Yes, that's like a, rivers. That's that we're respo- like the ocean. We are responsible for the flow <laughs> of the rivers. Yeah, okay. Which we are. You step back and you take a look. Take well, a look at how many dams are along the Snake River. Sure, that makes sense. You know, that is an ode to mankind's ascendancy over nature. Or just our need to have power. Or our need to have power. (laughs) However you look. But I showed up at that particular speech and I'm going, wow, this this has nothing to do with the name of the organization. I get it. Okay. You know, and I start to realize that the people that are coming to these speeches, they're not interested in environmentalism. Right. Or in a sense, even conservation they're interested in what they can do for themselves it sounds like they're interested in what they can reach out and grab for themselves you know or create a situation that changes their environment changes the economy changes the ecology okay you know but we get back into that and as someone who's interested in environmentalism myself Okay. Yeah, you know, I actually go back 40 years and I take a look at what happened when the Sierra Club came in and, you know, took out all the slash and burn forestry that used to happen, you know, 40, 50 years ago in the Pacific Northwest. Okay. You know, that used to be big business. Up there. It was huge business, okay. but it was destructive. Reason right. why is because all of the corporations that were involved in it, whether it's Georgia Pacific, Boise Cascade, some of the others, it was slash and burn forestry. You know, they would come in, cut everything. Right. And then just let it redevelop naturally right instead of going in now instead of going in in and plant trees plant trees and all of the rest of that try to so there were some places that have gone in and done that where they've actually purchased the land you have corporations that have purchased 
tree farms. Okay. Okay, so they will go in and they will plant the trees and they'll log them and then they'll replant and log. But these are areas that are actually owned and have become tree farms. Okay. So when we but would lease out... they're the, being less destructive to the environment. Well, they're still destructive to the environment, but for different reasons. Right, but is it, is it, this is less than the slash and burn style, Right, though. so what okay. was going on with the slash and burn was these were public lands. They come in, just chop everything see, okay. down, and then they let it recover naturally because they had used the land for what they had rented it for or leased it for for the year. Okay, I see. Yeah, so we were dealing with the slash and burn mentality of, you know, how much profit can we turn by the next quarter? Okay, that makes sense. Okay, so it. we came in with Sierra Club and a couple others, and this was 40 years ago. We were looking at science from 40 years ago. They were saying that's bad science. So 40 years ago, we had uh, great individuals like Cecil Andrus, who actually became Secretary of the Interior under uh, one individual. You had Frank Church, who helped get the Natural Wilderness Frank area. Church Wilderness. Yeah, yeah, Frank Church Wilderness designation. You know, so we had great environmentalist, you know, politicians here in the state of Idaho that went to Washington and did great things and set Idaho up for what we presume to be success. Right. And the problem is, is 40 years ago, the science was still relatively new. Okay. But so in, 40 in years, 1980. Yeah. yeah. So 40 years ago, these environmental rules that we put in place were essentially written in stone. And they haven't evolved. And they haven't evolved. Whatsoever. Okay. So 40 years, you know, after 40 years of doubling down on these environmental policies that Sierra Club and other environmental organizations helped create for us to combat the slash and burn of rogue corporations, basically. Right. Um, we're dealing with the fallout from it now. I get it. Okay. You're watching fires all up and down the West Coast right now. I mean, literally... You, you know, a month ago, skies were red from the smoke. Yeah. You know, it's night. You got smoke in the air, and the fires are reflecting up off the bottom of the clouds, giving everything this weird, eerie glow of red at yeah. midnight. Yeah, and you're was. going, uh, it's the end of the world, man. So how much truth is there? I've heard uh, some different things about this, especially California, because it's, you know, the big one. But the forest management in California has been poor for it sounds like 40 years. years yeah so but how much truth is there to that that basically what what's going on or not everything but a lot of, of what's going on down there is due to poor forest management uh, I'd say close to about 90% of it okay okay especially as you start looking at the Pacific Northwest because one of the problems we have up here is the boring beetle Okay, boring beetle oh, yeah, has yeah. infested the Pacific Northwest and because of the regulations we can't go in and cut it because that would be interrupting the natural cycle of things. Okay. We can't do a burn or a controlled burn. To get rid of it. To get rid of it. Because Wasn't that, that would beetle be, f imported from somewhere? I, I don't know. Probably. It doesn't, you know. I remember it, hearing something about that. Yeah, yeah. boring beetle. It could have been from anywhere in the world. You know, welcome to the great diaspora. Yeah. You yeah, know, right. We, we have uh, – Invasive species of all kinds all over the place. Matter of fact, right. uh, Jimmy Halliburton, you know him. Uh, he usually runs uh, Cleanup and okay. a couple other organizations that will help clean up invasive species along the Boise Riverfront and in a certain yeah. other yeah. places. Yeah, what was the big one that they – I know down – when I went to high school, I went to high school in New Mexico, and the squawfish, I think it was, yeah. was the, one of the big ones down in the rivers down there. Yeah. Um, and I don't – I mean, that was – 
you know, that was 22, 23 years, years ago. So it was like, uh, I think they were killing off the other fish was what their deal was. But that's, you know, uh, an example of an invasive species. So what uh, other invasive species um, would we have here that would be Idaho local to us? Uh, well, besides course, the beetle. Uh, besides the a lot of it's actually plants more often oh, than not. Oh, you know, okay, so yeah. we're dealing with weeds, invasive weeds that come in and actually choke out the natural, you know, flora and fauna along the river so- rivers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so you end up with things, and of course that disrupts the system because the river life, you know, whether it's fish, uh, your amphibians, your salamanders, your frogs, all of those things, they get used to a particular kind of vegetation that's along the banks, you know, right. the algae, and then all of a sudden you have this really invasive species that chucks out, uh, that takes out their normal food supply. Right. Yeah. So then and, that leaves the, the natural species of the area starving, obviously. Yes. Okay. Yeah, which is one of the things, now, of course, an invasive species comes in, eventually something else comes in to replace it, so that, but it takes like 20, 30, 40 years. You know, for, for what one species to die off and another one to come well in. for something else to come in and actually be able to eat and digest or you know start becoming a predator. So oh, one okay. of the things we had with the uh, cats, yeah, cats. <laughs> your little tabby, your house cat, probably one of the most destructive creatures on the planet. Really? You know, I mean, it kills just to kill. True. Uh, you know, songbirds. You know, songbird species have disappeared because of the domestic cat. Wow. You know, but what preys on the domestic cat? Uh, well, we could make a couple of jokes here. I don't know if it's PC to do that, though. Uh, yeah, probably not. Uh, I'm just, you know. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. You know, if we were to go there. But the thing is, as far as domesticated animals, you know, right. we, we go out of our way to protect our domesticated animals. We go out of our way to protect our pets. Right. Never mind the damage that they do to the environment. Right. You know, I mean, that's understandable. But your cats, they take out an awful lot of things. Uh, the songbirds, uh, other things, local rodents, you know, if, uh, of course, some of them, if you have ever been to uh, Oklahoma. I have. The uh, prairie dog farms. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of that down in that area. <laughs> yeah, Southwest. there are. You know, I mean, literally, they have parks dedicated to prairie dogs. Yeah. They you call know. them whistle pigs up here. Whistle pigs. Yeah. Yeah. I always thought that was crazy. I actually went whistle pig shooting out. Uh, uh, what's the road that leads to the backside of Kuna? Right. Uh, uh, Pleasant Valley. Yeah. yeah. We went out. We went out doing that uh, years ago when I first moved here with a buddy of mine. Yeah. We went out shooting them, and I was like, "Dude, those are prairie dogs. No, they're whistle pigs." I was like, "Man, they're they're prairie dogs, dude. Come on." <laughs> like, but well, because we had a lot of prairie dogs down in New Mexico. Yeah. Also, so like Texas, Arizona, or Texas, Arizona, Oklahoma, New Mexico, in that area. Yeah. They're all over the place. Yeah, prairie dogs are one of those, you know, they're uh, native species. Right. You know, but the thing is, is they're so prolific, it's, it's nearly impossible to kill them all. Yeah, totally. You know. Well, they, they're like they, rabbits. They, yeah. <laughs> I, I think they actually reproduce faster than rabbits. Yeah, exactly. You know, you head down to the, you'll see more prairie dogs in your life than you actually will wild rabbits. Uh, you know what? You're right. I have. <laughs> I definitely have seen that. That's funny. You know. <laughs> But that's one of those things. You step back and you start taking a yeah. look at the environmentalism and what's going on and the things, you know. So we got 40 years of bad environmental policy Okay. That's that comes back to haunt us year after year after year. And this year it's... It's really... It's really hit us hard. Yeah. 
So is Oregon also included in that? Well, anywhere where the Federal Department of Interior is involved. Any place, Department of Interior's Bureau of Land Management. Was that where Kempthorne went? Uh, No, Kempthorne went to Department of VA. No. Yeah. He went to uh, VA. Kempthorne... Yeah, I'm pretty sure he's managing the local VA. No, when he was under Bush, remember? Oh. When he went to D.C.? After he was governor. Andrus. You're talking... I think Andrus went to Department of Interior. Okay, but Kim Thorne went to something. I can't remember what it was. Because I think when I moved here, he was governor. I moved here in 2000. Okay. So he was governor, right, at that time? Uh, I don't know. I was in the Army then, so my... Paying attention to what was going on yeah. in Idaho politics gotcha. in 2000 was kind of a little I bit gotcha. distracting. Well, he he ended up, I think, when Otter took over for him, right. I think is how this goes down. I, it's been a while since I thought about this. But I think he, he was department of something under Bush, I think. Okay. And I, and I think it was under his second term. If I remember correctly, I'm not sure. Right, that would have been about the same time that Rich took over for the last Jim Rich. turn. That's right. Yeah, you because know, Kemp Thorne accepted an appointment. Jim Rich as lieutenant governor, I think, at the time. Oh, you're right. Okay. Accepted yeah, yeah. for the balance of Kemp of the remainder term, of the term, which was like a year or something. That's um, right. You're right. Okay. Secretary of the Interior. Secretary okay. of the Interior. So there both you in, you know. What's that? Idaho's actually had two governors accept the position of Secretary of Interior. And that's what we're talking about when it comes to the environmental stuff, right? Yes. Okay. So I just want to make sure that I'm I'm clear on it, too, because like I said, I'm learning a lot about this this process now. So in the context of all that, so your first uh, attempt at running at Senate, Right. right, was so you were unsuccessful with that, I take it? Uh, depends win. on what you count as success. Well, you didn't win the seat. No, I didn't okay. win the seat. Yeah. Uh, but as far as a libertarian candidacy in the state of Idaho in a three-way race, I pulled about 5.5%. Okay. Which is fairly high for a three-party race, especially in a year where everything's reasonably stable. Wow, okay. I, you, know, let's, you know, two years ago, life was pretty stable for an awful lot of people, right? Right. You know, it wasn't like 2020 had come along yeah. and you're dealing with COVID. We didn't have COVID. murder hornets. We didn't have murder hornets. <laughs> we didn't have COVID. We didn't have right. lockdowns. We didn't have right. all of these things that were making people look at the different politicians that they had trusted, you know, to manage their lives and livelihoods right. for them, you know, completely making the worst decisions in the world. Yes, agreed. Uh, agreed. Well, and also, too, you know, I think... This year, and this is just my this is my opinion on this, my my personal opinion. I think this year has really forced people to have to open their eyes to the reality around us, if that makes sense. You know, like as to like really what's going on, because obviously with what you said with forty years ago, you know, you're working to get these environmental policies in place, and I like the term set in stone. Right. Well, in my mind, anyway. Uh, it would seem to me that wouldn't it make more sense to be very fluid with that? It would be. It should be. Okay. You know, and that's one of the things that we're looking at. But the thing is, is 40 years ago, the environmental policy was leave it alone. Right. Leave it alone. Right. And it'll just come back on and, its own. And, and it'll do what nature does all on its own. Right. Well, and, but then you go back to that one issue where I was talking about, you know, the age of man. Right. There is nothing that exists today that doesn't exist if not for man's interference. Right. Okay. The Frank Church Wilderness Area, right. if it wasn't for Cecil Andrus, it wouldn't exist in its current state today. Right. 
period. You know, there is not a natural park in the United States that exists in its natural state. We've created this pseudo-natural state in all of our national parks. Right. And tried to create this little pristine, primitive utopia, you know, except we haven't. I get it. I get it. Yes. And you're right. You're not wrong. I, I, I completely agree with you on that. What do you think then, you know, f- with having so much experience in this area, um, what do you think is probably our greatest challenge right now when it comes to our, our and locally specifically, but what do you think our greatest challenge here locally is with our environmental issues? Most of it's coming to terms with how to manage the land. Okay, so like BLM stuff? Right. BLM's okay. a terrorist organization. Yeah. yeah. For those of you out there, I'm talking Bureau of Land Management, okay? Yeah. Bureau of Land Management <laughs> is a terrorist organization. <laughs> uh, well, hey, we got to make that clear. Yes. Uh, they are the terrorist organization. No, but seriously, Bureau of Land Management has affected the way that we do an awful lot of things. The reason why is because we look at appointees. Mm-hmm. Okay, so... Idaho was actually running into a real issue, and this was one of those things that was brought up by Bundy at the time. You know, the whole Bundy Ranch issue, okay, that entire thing was going down because of a Uranium Mine One deal, or Uranium One Mine deal. Wow, what's that? Well, it was an arrangement actually taken care of under Obama. Oh, okay, we're talking about that. We're we're talking about that, under Obama, with... Hillary Clinton is Secretary, Secretary of State. State. Yep. Okay. We have uranium-rich potential. In Idaho. In Idaho. Okay. Well, all across the western United States. We have oh, okay. uranium-1 potential. Because the band, the Bundy standoff was down in Nevada. Gotcha. Okay. Okay, so that's down in Nevada. And then the Anderson Ranch, where the Bundys got involved, that was over in Oregon. And, of course, we have an awful lot of wilderness area here. If you take a look at some of the geological surveys, mm-hmm. uh, Idaho has record thorium deposits. Really? Yes. Wow. Well, it's the gem state. It's the gem state. Yeah. But we got record-level thorium deposits here. And if thorium ever becomes a nuclear fuel, you know, all of our natural resources are up for grabs. So they're going to Afghanistan us? Yeah, they're going to Afghanistan, (laughs) Idaho for thorium fuel for your thorium-powered Cadillac as soon as they get it off of the uh, assembly line. Will it fly? Uh, I doubt it. (laughs) Have you seen the prototype for the thorium Cadillac? I have not. Dude, you got to look it up, man. It's sci-fi way out there looking. Really? Yeah, but, is it like uh, some some the new Total Recall kind of stuff going on? Uh, yeah. Have you seen yeah. that the newer Total uh, Recall no, remake? No, I haven't seen the. They new got remake. the the flying cars basically. Like yeah. they kind of hover. You know, it's oh, kind of like it's kind of okay. like what's the movie with Harrison Ford back in the day, Blade Runner? Okay, yeah, yeah. It's kind of like the cars in Blade Runner. Okay, a little bit. You know, I I I would imagine they probably got their their modeling. You know, I mean, obviously it was Blade Runner, so. But yeah, so now the thorium Cadillac—it's uh, real sci-fi looking, yeah. and I'm not talking the blocky kind like in Blade Runner that looks like the friggin' Tesla truck. Yeah, you know, <laughs> uh, no, th- this is sleek. It's smooth. It's shiny. It's, but it runs on thorium. Yeah. Okay. You know, it's, it's got a thorium nuclear reactor engine. Oh wow! I with, it's powerful. Well, it's—I don't know that it's powerful, in as much as it's got persistent fuel. You know, you I get it. Your yeah. entire lifetime you will never have to replace the fuel charge. 
wow. You know, and that's the goal. Of, you know, it's what's you is receive it like it a and zero it runs emission forever. type thing. Well, it's nuclear energy, so it's going to be sort of it. Well, and you never actually remove the battery or the thorium charge that's in it. Right. So yeah, it'd be a zero emission car. Cool. You know, you, the engine would have to, of course, contain the radiation that it produces. Right. You know, but yeah. So it'd have to be built well. Yeah. Obviously, because well, the I containment. Mean, yeah. Because that. Well, know. I mean, obviously, nuclear. You know, that yeah. can become dangerous at some point. But thorium is supposed to be one of those zero reduced nuclear uh, energy sources. Wow. Okay. So it's it even goes beyond the next gen. Yeah. Nuclear, where we're still dealing with uranium with a half life, even after you've depleted it. You know, there's still that residual you know uranium isotope that comes off of the system right thorium once it's spent it's spent supposedly okay i'm gonna have to get with my uh 15 year old uh nuclear physics son yeah yeah to actually explain to me the difference between the uranium and the thorium nuclear. yeah he's gonna have to explain it to me too yeah <laughs> you lost me when you started comparing them but i mean yeah. I'm, I'm i can Follow along, yeah. to, you know, pretty well to to a point with that stuff. But I remember sitting down and talking with him during one of my random speaks. I, uh, you know, I do a live thing like this on a fairly regular yeah, basis. Yeah, cup of Joe. Yeah, I cup watch of you Joe. all the time. Yeah. Actually, my uh, my son will actually come on and ask me some questions, and him and I will do some exchanges. And cool. one of them did happen to be about uh, residual nuclear energy. Okay, and he enlightened me about you know the thorium, you know, zero residual. Yeah. Right, and it's like, wow, okay, you know, I, so cool. I knew I liked the thorium Cadillac idea, but you know, this this makes it sound even better. Yeah, well, it sounds really cool, and and obviously, you know, that's that's probably been a, a really big deal because I mean, and how old are you? I forget. I'm 51. Okay, so you're 11 years older than me, so you really remember the boats. The, the big cars from like the 70s. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Your Oldsmobiles. Yeah. Yeah. Your yeah, Lincolns, your, your yeah. Cadillacs, you know, back yeah. in, well, even back in the 70s, your muscle cars were big cars. Big cars you as well. Know, your GTOs. Your GTOs. And your, your and your Camaros. Yeah. And they're all real heavy. Yeah. And then, see, I was Your born Mopar in, Duster. And, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Your Novas. Yeah, your Novas, yeah. your Cudas. Yeah, the, those yep. were all heavy cars oh, yeah. that you had to put 400 plus cubic inch yes. motors in V8. in order to move yeah, oh, yeah v8 you know love i love all of those things you're stepping back <laughs> you're even going you know even the sleek cars back then your uh, ferraris that oh, was yeah. a 12 cylinder car that ferrari was you know wow it's like the batmobile <laughs> the v12 batmobile yeah that's a thing yeah for all you people out there the batmobile <laughs> that's a fucking car just saying, you know, obviously Bruce Wayne's rich, but yeah. no. So like, so I was born in 80. So in the, in the eighties, when I was growing up, when I was coming up, it was, you know, they started moving to the more right. smaller, you know, Japanese cars. Well, that was the fallout after, uh, 1976 with the whole the oil, cr oil crisis, crisis yeah. and the shortage and everybody waiting in line for two hours to get a tank of gas. That really happened. Yes. You were there. Yes. Okay. Explain what? Explain that, actually, because there's probably well, a lot of us he, that don't he know. Here's part of the problem. The reason why is because at the time, we were actually pulling out of the Middle East. Right. Okay. okay. Uh, 1976 was the year Jimmy Carter was running for office. So you're dealing with 76 to 80 during Jimmy Carter's era. Now, the thing is, is that was a real big year or real big time in history as far as administrations go. Reason why is because you look at uh, the Russians invaded Afghanistan. Yes. 
Okay. Yes. Okay. Now the thing they don't tell you is right up until the time where the Russians invaded Afghanistan, it was U.S. Russian joint nation building in Afghanistan really? in 76, 77, well, the, 78. the one year that George H.W. Uh, Bush was director of CIA was in 76. Yeah. And he was there for one year. Yeah, look at what he did for that one year. What uh, did he do? But, <laughs> I I mean, I... Uh, well, okay. So here's one of the things. Uh, I wasn't alive, so... <laughs> okay. We run back 50 years. We take a look at what was going on. We had the Green Revolution. Okay. Okay. Now, when you talk about the Green Revolution, it's not the green that you think of today. It's not the new Green Deal where AOC is talking about, you know, let's do great things. Now, the Green Revolution of the 1970s was an agricultural revolution. Okay. Okay. We had all of these new ideas and new concepts about how to grow food. Right. Okay. And we exported this knowledge all around the world. Matter of fact, one of the places we were doing it, we had experiments with agriculture going on in Afghanistan at the time. Really? Yes. Wow. Morrison Knudsen, uh, they were a construction company back in the day. Is that a realty? No, no. What they did was engineering. Okay. Um, Okay. Morrison Knudsen was engineers. I mean, large-scale engineers. Oh, okay. Okay. These were the people who built mega dams. Got it. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so Morrison Knudsen is actually responsible for building one of those mega dams that in Afghanistan that was responsible for the irrigation of Kandahar province. Okay. Yeah, so we got this entire area in southern Afghanistan that used to be desert, and we built a dam so that they could irrigate, and we created the irrigation system so this entire region could become irrigated and become an agricultural center for Afghanistan. Wow, okay. You know, and this is in the 70s? This was in the 70s. Okay. And then the Russians invaded. Right. What year exactly did they invade? I don't know. I think it was 79, 79 80. It had to be 80, reason-wise, because that was the Olympics where we refused to participate because the Russians were invited, something like that. Oh, but that yeah. Was, yeah. Okay. So it was the first time we had refused to participate in an Olympics over political issues. Got it. Yeah. You know, so 1980. Got it. Yeah, yeah. That sounds right. Um, but we had created this – we had turned this entire – desert into an oasis because of this dam that a local company at the time morrison knudsen built. yeah they're local to here right. yeah well okay. they were until they got uh yeah until they got baned uh, oh wow no they had a uh, ceo that came in and literally caused the entire company to fail really? and then they got parted out you know so there's residuals of the company that still exist here in Boise. Okay. But they aren't the company they were 50 years ago. I understand. Okay. Yeah. But, I'm trying to remember where I remember yeah. that name from. But they built yeah. a dam. And so here we are 40 years ago. We're back in Afghanistan. Right. Okay. That entire area that we created this irrigation district for, mm-hmm. it's all growing opium now. Yeah, I was going to say, it's probably growing, yeah. Well, you know, technology that we installed 40, 50 years ago, yeah. you know, is now being used to supply 70% of the world's opium production. Yeah. 
Well, I was going to say that too because what a lot of people don't realize is is like I mentioned I made the joke earlier about yeah. Afghanistaning us. Their their natural resources that they have in that country are abundant. Like right. All the inium metals that they use in the cell phones, yeah. and they use in the electronics and then not only that, but a lot of people, you know, uh, and obviously you were there, uh, think that it's oh they're in Afghanistan for oil, which is big. Oh, like no. yeah, no, no, no they're no. there for there, the there's heroin. no oil. Well, Heroin's a byproduct, right? But the opium, right? Yeah, but the opium, yes. You know, the they're growing down there. That's a byproduct. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. they actually have a significant amount of natural resources. And I mean, it's mountainous. Yeah. It's mountainous. Yeah. So you're looking at things like uranium. You're looking at things like thorium. You're looking yeah, at selenium, uh, and earth metals. Yeah, all the you know, the rare earths. I call them the indiums because I can't the remember all the names. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, but those are the resources that are there, yeah. and it's one of those. And it's scary because we actually contracted out to the Chinese to go in and mine those elements from Afghanistan. No kidding. Yeah, so we're not wow. even directly benefiting from it. We're second and third generation, you know. In line? In line, I you get know, because China goes in, they do the mining, they extract the minerals. Yep. Then they take it back to Fox Industries, and Fox Industries converts it into cell phones. And then they sell us the cell phones after they pay their workers $2 an hour in order to make them. Wow. Do they even pay him that much? Uh, supposedly, they do pay him that much. Reason wow. is because they don't know what to do with all the money they're getting now. Really? That sounds terrible. <laughs> I heard it in your voice. It's like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, totally. I get it. Well, when you're in China and you realize that 2 to $3 an hour is a lot of money for these people and they don't know how to spend it. Yeah, it's crazy. It's like. Dude, don't even talk to me about, you know, the minimum wage $15 an hour in Seattle right now. That's you know, a good minimum wage. It is, you know. Isn't uh, it? I mean, well, you would think so. Isn't Idaho still 750 Okay. Here's the thing. Idaho accepts the national minimum wage. The national minimum yeah. wage is seven and a quarter. It's seven twenty five. Okay. Okay, it's seven twenty five. Yeah, yeah. So the minimum wage in the state of Idaho is seven twenty five. Right. Okay. And that's the national that's mandate for that. It's national mandate. We yeah. are paying because national has decided that is the minimum that anybody in America is going to earn per hour. Right. Unless you're handicapped. <laughs> really? And then it goes up or what? It goes down. It goes down? Yeah. How the fuck does that work? If you're handicapped, uh, an employer can get away with paying you two and a quarter. Are you serious? Yeah. So they're like basically like waiters? Well, not even waiter. You know, literally, they're the Jesus. they're the. Well, no, you know what I mean. Like, like waiting floors. tables. Like when I waited tables, in, um, like in high school, oh, and yeah. college. Yeah. Back in the and this is the late nineties. I think. Yeah, so I think we were a waiter, you're making two and a quarter, two thirty plus yeah. tips. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So if you were going to make money, you had to bust your ass because to make them tips. Yeah, yep. because your waiter, your server, would be the one making you the tip, and yep. if you were a busser, you, you were dependent upon. You got a percentage. Yep. Well, see, yeah. and I worked. And at if a you place, didn't bust your ass for the waitress, yeah, you didn't get shit. She didn't tip you. Yeah, not at all. <laughs> see, I worked at a place where it was uh, actually when I lived in Arkansas. Uh, I worked at this Mexican this Mexican restaurant, and uh, the pay was I think it was like two thirty an hour. I, I don't. This is right. twenty something years ago, but it was like two thirty an hour or so, two fifty an hour, whatever it was. But if you didn't declare enough tips when you clocked out for the night, when you cashed out, right, your thing. They would go audit you and then pay you minimum wage, and then you couldn't accept tips. 
That right. was that was their threat. So it was like yeah. you better you better claim all your tips and yeah. blah, blah blah blah. You know, but so so people that that have a handicap make less money legally working a job. So like Walmart greeter. That's a job right. where where a handicapped person works. Yeah. Now, now the ones that are actually notorious about it are the ones who like to claim some sort of nonprofit or benefit status. Yeah. Uh, Goodwill really? is particularly notorious about hiring disabled individuals and okay. paying them, you know, that significantly lower wage. Wow. Yeah. That's heartbreaking. You, yeah, you never knew how exploitive Goodwill was of, you know, their no, handicapped I employees. I know I got a backpack there a couple months ago for five bucks, and it's a Jan Sports, the one I got right now. Yeah. Ah, great backpack. Well, yeah, you go in, you, you pick the stuff up. But the thing yeah. is, is the poor kid who's sweeping the floor, he's sweeping yeah. the floor for a buck thirty for an hour. For change. Yeah, for chump change. That's horrible. But he's employed. So what? <laughs> yeah, he's Social Security disability check makes, you know. But that's where it comes into the situation. You know, he's got a job that earns him a little more. Right. But at the same time, if he's declaring, you know, what he should be getting as a full wage. Right. He loses his Social Security disability. That's so crazy to me. You know, so we got this entire social safety net that has been gained by corporations like Goodwill and a Uh number of other organizations where they're able to continue collecting, you know, Huge we, amounts of money. Yeah, huge amounts of money. We need somebody to sweep the floor. Okay, now the individual sweeping the floor, we're paying them dirt. Yeah. We're still getting the floor swept. It's slave labor. Yeah, it is slave La- labor. Literally. And the nice thing is, is because we are employing them for, you know, a buck and a quarter an hour, the yeah. government's compensating us for employing them. Right, and them. then they get paid. I get how that... Well, it's, yeah. like, it's like uh, uh, the way that prisoners get paid. So prisoners get paid... Right. This is how prisoners get paid. So they'll go to a work camp, we'll yes. say, right? And they'll go to a work... They'll go to work at an actual place, an actual place of business, and they will make... They tell you... They tell the prisoners that they will make minimum wage. Right. Well, what ends up happening is the place that the the facility that they're at will take X amount of percentage of that wage, Mm -hmm. right? And then they have to pay for this, that, and the other, right? Let's just say X, Y, and Z. And then they'll put money on the prisoner's books. Their commissary. Right. And then they'll put money into a savings account for them. Yeah. And so basically it's like, so like, and there's a place here in Idaho, St. Anthony's, out in eastern Idaho, up above Idaho Falls, where they the the it's the work camp, San Anthony's yeah. work camp, and the prisoners go out and work at the potato sheds mm-hmm. out there, right? And so and they do all, and I mean, they yeah. go, so they go off compound, they yeah. go do the whole thing. They're out in the community. It's a work working. release, yeah. And they're taking the the work camp, the prison facility. They're taking probably eighty percent of the money. Oh yeah, from these guys, yeah, and giving them twenty percent. But for being in prison. You know, these guys have nothing to do. They have nowhere to go, right? They're yeah. happy. They're, they're like, happy. They they're get like, out. They get out of their cell. Yeah. You know, they get out of the day room. They get to look at something different. Right. But you know, the point being is that you just remind me of that with that because it's it's ultimately slave labor. Well, it is. Yeah. Okay. It's, it's slavery repackaged. Have yeah. you ever actually taken a look at the Thirteenth Amendment? Which? What is it? Tell me. Okay, that's the one that uh, came right after the Emancipation Proclamation. You know. Okay. Uh, what, Lincoln said, yeah, 1865, Lincoln yeah. came out and said all men are free. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. Okay, I know and then about. the Emancipation 
Act came out, and this was funny because the Emancipation Proclamation, or the uh, 13th Amendment, was ratified before the Emancipation Proclamation was disseminated out Got across it. the entirety yeah. of the nation. So yeah, you yeah. hear about Juneteenth, right? Yeah, correct. That was June 19th, two years after the Emancipation Proclamation was made. Right. You know, the last settlement, you know, there was an army unit that went to the last settlement where there were still slaves in America. Okay. And, and this said, was down in the South? And this, is down, this was in Texas, of all Texas, places. Really? Texas, Wow. You know, this army unit finally showed up down in Texas, and the army unit's looking at the situation, and out comes in, you know, the city chamber of commerce or whoever it was and they said we're here to deliver the emancipate and said you know what um it's planning season can you wait two weeks wow <laughs> and, but you know before that was delivered to that last little settlement in texas where we had slaves the 13th amendment was ratified across the united into the states constitution. into the constitution okay. okay now what the 13th amendment did was it repackaged slavery. Yeah. Private I, citizens I could no longer have slaves. Right. But if an individual were to have committed a crime mm -hmm. as punishment, they could serve it as a slave. Slave labor. To the state. Yeah. You know, to pay off their debt to society. Okay. Right. So 13th Amendment just repackaged slavery and it turned it from a private institution wow. into a public institution. That is absolute fucking insanity. And as soon as it became a public institution, the states started making money yep. by leasing out the slave labor to replace right. the private labor that had been owned. So it's like all, right. you just changed the So basically the they structure. just changed the terminology. Yeah. <laughs> they changed the terminology. That's amazing. Holy shit. Okay. Yeah. So it's like 13th Amendment. It's one of those things you step back and go, wait, wait, we, we didn't get rid of slavery. Right. Slavery is still alive and well in the United States. Right. It's just prisoners. You know, it's prisoners. You know, 25% yeah. of the world's prison population is in the United States and it's being used as slave labor. So the and United States my, owns, or not owns, but has 25% of the world's prison population? Uh, depending on how you look at it and depending on how it's uh, reported. I don't believe we actually have that high a percentage okay. reason-wise because I think Russia and China have larger prison populations. Well, they fudge their numbers. You know, it's what do you see. count as a prisoner. I see. Okay. Okay. Well, they right probably now, have more political prisoners. Yeah. The like right now, uh, the Uyghur population in China. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're not prisoners, but they're being placed in re-education camps and. Yeah. Yeah. What's the deal going on over there? I've been hearing about they supposedly there's a lot of Muslims in these like these concentration camps. Well, that's what the Uyghur population is. The, is okay. the, the Uyghurs are Islamic Chinese. I get it. Okay. Okay. And this China's huge. Yeah, dude. Okay. Yeah. We we talk about, you know, China, you know, and we think, you know, these little petite, you know, maybe like jet but I mean, literally, there are so many different variations of genetics within the boundaries of China yeah. that you really can't say, well, all Chinese look like this, because no, they don't. They don't. Well, there's you a know. lot of influence there, Mongolian influence. Yeah, and, well, the you know, Asia's a big it, place. It is. Russia, it's huge. Mongolia, China, Japan, Afghanistan, all the all the extant yeah. countries, you know, the Middle East. I mean, it's a huge place. 
But it's like you got Chinese, you know, depending on which portion of China they come from, and they got like seven different languages that they speak. Right. You know, so you got Mandarin, which is the primary, and then you got uh, Cantonese, Cantonese, which is, yep. uh, and then you got the Taiwan. The regional dialects. Yeah, you know, and then all of the regional dialects. Right. Kind of like Spanish. Kind of like Spanish yeah. or, you know, uh, yeah. Gaelic, Scots. Oh, um, yeah, you're right. You know, yeah. anywhere, you know, we tend to get a uh, little bit lazy about our languages because, you know, we're the United States. We all speak English, right? Right. Yeah, never mind the fact that well, most of it, us. well, most of us. <laughs> uh, but never mind the fact that you know, if you grew up in Idaho and all of a sudden you're in Boston, somebody's talking about the cocky, the car, the car, where's the car? Where's the car? The yard, you know. <laughs> it's out back in the yard. It's out there in the yard next yeah. to Noma. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, you know, you start wandering up to me, just wicked man. Oh, it's wicked good. <laughs> Wicked good fun. Wicked good fun. We're going to go to the garden and watch the wicked good fun Bruins play, you know, and drink a Sam Adams. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, but even in the United States, we got these dialectual issues, you know. Yeah. We, but it's nothing. No, not like that. You know, and, uh, even my time in Korea, you know, my two years I spent learning Korean, it was conversational And you were in Korean South for Korea? So- I was in South Korea. Okay. Uh, but you spend two years learning conversational Korean, and you get over there, and you realize that, wait, uh, they don't speak Korean the same way in Seoul that they do in Pusan. Right. <laughs> so, Well, it's regional. That's like yeah. that, That's why I said Spanish, because, like, so, like, I'm half Puerto Rican, and so, like, I learned Spanish growing up, and I actually lived in Mexico um, as an exchange student in high school. And so when I went down there, and, like, I traveled around Mexico, yeah. and just from, like, Veracruz to Michoacan, it was different. Like the, the, but it's mainly the slang. You right. know what I mean? Like I could talk to people and understand most right. of what they were saying, but it, like when you start getting that rapid fire, and we talk rapid fire, Puerto Rican mm-hmm. rapid fire. Like, I'm, well, you, even the speed you talk at too. Yeah, it's different. You know, exactly. depending on which region you go and into, and the inflections, and, and the inflection. Like, like we don't roll R's, Puerto Ricans. We don't roll R's. Right. So, like, I can't say I can't say choro very well. <laughs> I had to really flex to do that. Right. But you know what I'm saying? Like, so we don't roll R's and stuff. So I, I get it. Like, the language thing. I mean, you start looking at that in the Korean, and a lot of the Uyghur population actually comes from along the Silk Road. Okay. Reason why is because during 500 BC or AD, when Muhammad was doing the whole thing, you know, the Silk Road was still. That was the trade route. Right? It was the, the trade route. The Silk Road, yeah. You know, so. The Islamic empires that were in the area at the time would go through and they'd expand. And literally, it was the Silk Road that took uh, Islam into China and into the Philippines. So didn't the Silk Road stretch from, what, Saudi Arabia, right? It was from coast to coast. Yeah, literally like the Persian Gulf, like all the way. If you actually take a look at it, it goes from the Rock of Gibraltar. Oh, Hercules Gates. Hercules Gates, yeah. Rock of Gibraltar. That's right, you're right. You know, okay. It would go all the way through around the Mediterranean. There was actually routes on both sides yep. of the Mediterranean yep. that took it clear to the Atlantic Ocean. So like, Ocean. they'd go through like Morocco, Egypt. Yeah. And then you had another portion Ghana. that took it clear east to the Pacific Ocean 
you know, yeah. where Hong Kong was, where China, you know, this entire way. Yeah. And then you had the crossroads in Afghanistan. I see. Because okay. you literally had to go through Afghanistan in order to get into India because of the Himalayas that got in the way. Right, the mountains. So yeah. the easiest way to travel was through Afghanistan, which is why Afghanistan was this mecca of culture at the it. time, because you had all of these different traders and travelers right. you know that were seeking knowledge they'd bring things through so you had islamic traders coming from jerusalem that were moving these ideas of islam right. you know clear through so you ended up with entire cultures that had adopted this idea of islam right in uh what would then have been western china i see okay. so but it's still a lot of tribalism you know there are areas of china that are still untouched is there a lot of feudalism there still I don't know that you can call it feudalism per se, you know, but it's villages. Yeah. You know, these are villages that still don't have access to the technology that a lot of us enjoy today. Right. And is there a lot, you know, just, are they a lot of rice farmers? They've never been exposed. Well, they're agricultural, they're yeah. agrarian. Yeah. So it doesn't matter what they're growing. They It could be rice, could be anything. Could be anything. Uh, okay. But yeah, rice is predominant through there. So, yeah. Yeah. But the Uyghurs, you got that entire desert region right there uh, that they're still exploring. Really? Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. But what's the deal though with with that? Is that is that true? Like, because I've been hearing a lot about this, and and again, like kind of like when we're talking outside, it's, it, there's things like where I hear about it, and I you, you kind of go look things up, and you can't find a lot of information. Like, are well, they really having concentration camps in China? I'm gonna go with yes. Okay. And part of this gets back to the environmentalism issue, because as whether you believe man-made climate change is real or not, we have to admit that climate change is happening. Yeah, every day. Okay. And a lot of these communities where the Uyghurs come from are being affected by this climate change, which means okay. they're dealing with drought, which means they're migrating. So they're, so they're picking their up way and moving, and they're moving affected. into these areas where there is... An established Chinese presence. I get it. Okay. And they're bringing their Islam with them from their villages and their tribes. Right. And, of course, China's anti-religious. Completely. That's So it. they're moving into yeah. these areas, and now China's looking at them going, we can't have you bringing Islam into because it's contrary to Chinese culture. Right. So they're turning around, and because they don't know how to cope with them, they're creating these re-education camps for them. Wow. And a lot of this just has to be because the Uyghurs are Chinese citizens. They grew up, you know, yeah. four generations within the borders of China. Right. You know, but the governments never had to deal with them because they were just there. I get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And now all out of, of sight, sudden, out of mind. Out of sight, out of yeah. mind. And now all of a sudden they have to move because their villages can't support them anymore. Right. And they're bringing with them their Islam and, you know. And so religion's just a no go in China. Uh, for the most part, yeah. Wow. Like they don't even have Christianity even. Uh, I think there's a certain amount of that reason why is because Hong Kong was a sectarian state and they allowed the freedom of religion because. You know, up until the point where Britain released Hong Kong back over to China. Right. So you still have that. So you have aspect. the Anglican. Yeah, you have the Anglican yeah. aspect of it. Okay. Yeah. So Hong Kong has been like one of those religious um, sanctuaries, if you will. I get it. Within China. 
Yeah. But Chinese primary religion is Confucianism. And okay. The religion of Confucianism is bureaucracy. <laughs> I, 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 I mean, really, it is. I understand. You know, uh, and so here you have this independent type of religion, you know, the belief something entirely different from, and it's coming from these villages. It's coming from these rural agrarian villages. Right. And they don't want it infecting. I get it. Well, is is this true then about China? They're very much about control of the citizens' thoughts. Would that be a fair statement, or is there a better way to say that? Based on everything I'm seeing come out of there, uh, they are. Their social ranking system that they've created, yes. or at least that we're being told about, right? You know, is very much about behavior control, behavior modification. Like, um, like allegiance to the state, allegiance kind of to the thing. state, or just adjusting to a specific sort of acceptable behavior pattern. Right. Yeah. You know, only the states using social media and other forms to implement that. Uh, the so they use their social media strictly for to propagandize. The, the well, well doesn't everybody? Well, I don't know. I mean, you know, you could say it, that. It's amazing how much counter-propaganda we get away with in our social media here in the right. United well, States. Well, but yeah. For instance, like like you know, here in the states, for instance, like I'm on a lot of platforms, you know, it's the yeah. way business is done in 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 this field anymore. It's all social media. Yeah, it is. So I'm on everything. But I can say whatever the fuck I want. Mm -hmm. I can say right here and I can curse like my my mother got mad. My dad was watching the show with Ginger and uh he's I said, "What mom think?" You know, and there she's old. She's an old Puerto Rican lady. She's her her one comment, and I can hear her saying this to my father. My, they're they're retired, and they right. live, they live in Texas. And I said, "What mom think, Dad?" She said, ah, "Your mother heard you say the word fuck, and so she fucking went in the kitchen." <laughs> That's exactly how he said it too. Right. And I was like, "You just said it." And he's like, "Yeah, but you know your mom. She was a school teacher for twenty five years. Okay. So you, you get yeah. it. Yeah. You already get it. Yeah. But the funny thing is, is if she gets mad. <laughs> Her favorite word's motherfucker. Right. She's like, you know, like, it's bad. She's okay. like Samuel well, okay. L. Jackson. Okay. Bad. <laughs> so you said you're half Puerto Rican and your yes. mom's Puerto Rican yes, side, right? Yes. Okay. For some reason, I don't believe your mom actually said motherfucker. It's her favorite curse word. <laughs> I swear to God. With If God strike me down from lying. If okay. she curses, if she curses. Okay. Her favorite curse word. You motherfucker. She, dude, she gets the look. You know how old Puerto Rican? And my mother's real dark. She's black. She's a black Puerto Rican. Right. She's real dark. So you know that look, you know? She's got that like, She's got that attitude, Bronx, New York attitude of, like, you know how they do the head, like, well, no, you didn't kind of, kind of thing? <laughs> she, that's her, I swear to God, Joe. That's her favorite right. word. She, my, my older brother, he's, he's about 6'4", six, 6'3", six, 6'4". Right. He's a lot bigger than I am. He probably outweighs me. I'm about 200 pounds. He's he's about two. Well, this is back in the day. He's about 220, 230. Yeah. And he said something to her one time. I was about 11, and he's seven years older than me. Mm -hmm. He's he come back from college, I think. It was summertime, and we were all hanging out at the house. He said something to her. 
and she jumped on his back. <laughs> she says, I don't give a fuck how big you are, you motherfucker. I swear to God. <laughs> I was I was like this far away. And she's hitting him and he's laughing at her. He's like, right. he's like, Ma, get the, get off my back. <laughs> Come on. And she's like, You I brought you into this. That's another favorite thing. I brought you into, into this, this world. I can dig you out. I'll take yeah. you out. You know what I mean? So yeah. like it's just kind of one of those things. So so she doesn't have a Puerto Rican swear that she uses. Oh no, she curses in Spanish okay. all the time. Okay. But when it, that's just her thing. Like like <laughs> She, because she's very prim and proper. Right. You know how school teachers are, especially old school. Uh -huh. like, you know, she started teaching. I think, uh, I don't even remember the '80s. <laughs> you know, it was like you know, like, yeah, full time. It's, it's all good. It's all good. Yeah. yeah. Well, because she had kids. You know, mm -hmm. I was little, and she stayed at home with with me when I was small. And then I think when I started going to schools, when she went to work back to work. Okay. Um, and obviously, you remember her time. When it was much simpler, when you could get away with just one parent working or whatever right. the thing well, was. Well, you had the latchkey kids, you know, yeah. you get done with school, you could go home and, you know, four hours at home, no parents in the house. Yeah, it was awesome. Yeah. Not anymore, because now it's child abuse. But, well, yeah. I but mean, you know what I mean? Like, so. It, it depends. It's, it's, that's another thing that's real interesting about uh, today's day and age. You know, the way latchkey kids. Yeah. You know, can you get away with it or not? Yeah, and a lot of that depends on whether you're looking at urban, suburban, or mm -hmm. rural America. You're right. You know, because rural America, you know, dad's going to be out in the back 40. You know, mom may be doing something in town like running the Joann's, you know, sew clinic. Right. You know, you get home, you do your homework, and if dad's not back, you go out into back 40 and see, you know, what else you can do to help out. Right. You know, and about the time you get back from the field, you know, mom's home and cooking dinner. Cooking dinner. Yeah, you know, right. But that's rural America. Yes. Yeah, you, know, you can go home in four hours. You know, get done with school four hours. You don't see your parents, but you know where they're at. Right. Yeah. You know, and they know where you are. And they know where you are. Yeah. Urban America, depending on where in urban America, it's the exact same situation. Or you know, if you got an entrepreneur family, you know, yeah, they're running the shop downstairs, and you're in the apartment upstairs. Exactly. Yeah. You know, that's you, very prevalent but, back east. Yeah, that's that's very prevalent. Even in those areas where they won't issue a business license <laughs> for those people who are running, you know, a little salon downstairs. You know, the cost right. of business is, you know, you pay the fine every time the cops show up every other week. Right. You know, or... Back in the day, they called them vice cops. Right. <laughs> Excuse me, do you have a license to run this salon? Yeah, totally. No. It's like, no, but I got okay. a gambling parlor downstairs. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And that's, that pays the bills. Yeah, that's the old school shit. Yeah. Uh, got a speakeasy downstairs. Yeah, I got a speakeasy. Know. I was just going to say that. Tell you what, here's the bribe. Just go away. Yeah, that's pretty much how it, it works. You know, um, but whether you're running the speakeasy or just running a hair salon or what, you know, you had street-level storefront on pop-up stairs, you know. Yep. And I grew up in the suburbs. You know, it wasn't unusual to do the latchkey kid thing back then. But it's like these days, if you live in the suburbs... Yeah, you know, and somebody isn't at home when the kids get out of school. Yeah, all you hell know, breaks loose. All hell breaks loose. CPS is on the way. Yeah, isn't that you nuts? Know, and it's like, you know, how do you expect us to afford a, you know, a $400,000, you know, home? Right, if we don't work. If both of us aren't working. Right, you know, 60 hours a week. 60 hours a week. And, you know, yeah. the kid comes home from school. You know, you see him get off the bus. You know, I'm not home. What are you doing on the phone calling CPS? <laughs> right. Well, you, you know, know. But we've created that artificial. We've, yeah. we've created that artificial. I was just going to say, that, like, like, we've created that. We did. 
We really did. We well, did. You, it's kind of like the thing. It's like I wanted to make a joke earlier about the cat. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like yeah. probably most like anybody listens to this and you know, which pretty much are people that re- that know me, I'm sure. Right. They already know what your cat joke's going to be. Yeah, they're, they're guaranteed. <laughs> yeah, they, just they mentioning would, the cat joke. Yeah. Jimmy's going to say it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know what I mean? They wouldn't be offended. But yeah. someone that doesn't know me would think and with the culture going on now would immediately be like, "Oh, well you're a racist." And it's like, "How?" Yeah. Like cuz it's probably true. Like you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. like they literally eat cats there. I'm just saying. No, don't even get me started about Wuhan Marketplace. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm cats, serious. bats, dogs. You yeah, know, whatever. go to Korea. You know, you got. Um, yep. Boishintong. You know, I don't even dog, want to know what that is. It's dogs too. Yeah, but I don't even want to know. <laughs> but but the thing is, you go over there and it's, it, in Spanish we say "mierda con queso." Yeah, you know? uh, but <laughs> you know it. it <laughs> Depending on the culture you grew up in, you know, there are certain things that you just eat. You don't think yeah. of it as a pet. You don't think of it as part of a family. It's food. Well, you remember it's the, food. what's that movie with Chow Yun-Fat and Marky Mark? Oh. Replacement he, Killers? Is uh, that it? it was one of uh, there was one. He did Replacement Killers, and then the other one was they were uh, Bulletproof Monk. And, no, no, that's uh, one okay. was Stifler. Right. No, it's Chow Yun-Fat and Marky Mark. I can't remember. It was late 90s, early 2000s, but that scene, it reminds me of it. He yeah. goes, they're cops. And they're on the case, okay. and they're in the car, and he's eating something with some chopsticks, right? Chow Yun Fat is. And he looks right at Marky Mark. I think it was Marky Mark. And he go, he looks right at him. He says, uh, you want to be Chinese? He goes, you got to eat some nasty shit. And he's eating whatever the <laughs> hell. Like, they're in Chinatown, you know, in whatever city this, the movie right. was set in. But he's eating, like, whatever the fuck he was eating. Right. <laughs> That well, reminds me of that. that. But that's the thing, you know, in Korea, you know, I go down, you know, we go out in the ville on the evenings and on the weekends and we'd eat the street food. Right. Yeah. You know, so you eat the street food. That's you how know, Mexico was. Deep fried, whatever. You know, mm-hmm. you, you didn't ask what the meat was because it was deep fried and it was batter covered. Yeah, it's good. You know, we joke about it being rat on a stick and, you know, move on. there's probably chicken because, you know. Hopefully. Ho- hopefully. But, you know, it's whatever mystery meat it was totally just wash it out what's that beer they have in korea no you're talking soju and that's not beer no no they have a don't they have a um, they have a beer but they probably i don't know if they drink yeah. it there but they sell it here but it's, it's korean beer okay i saw that what, what's the marts on the base you know like the air force bases they have the marts what are those things called uh px px, PX stores. thank you yeah, yeah. so nex if you're navy when i lived in albuquerque kirtland air force base yeah was right up the street from when i was going to UNM. Uh, mm-hmm. It was right up the street from our apartment. And so our buddy, he was Korean, as a matter of fact. <laughs> His mom was Korean. His dad yeah. fought in Korea. Uh, he had a an ID to get us onto the base. So we used to go to the PD, to the PX store right. to go buy beer. Bunch of college kids, right? Because well, right. you don't pay tax. Right, you don't pay tax. Yeah, and it's cheaper. So we used to go out to the, to the base, to Kirtland, all the time. We, we'd call Conway. <laughs> His name was Rob Conway. We'd call him up. Right. We, my roommate's name was Rob, but then Conway. We'd call Conway and be like, hey, we need beer. <laughs> and he was also he was like 23 and like right. i was only 19 and he was 18 so it was like we'd call rob and be like hey we need beer take us out to the fucking px so he'd take us out to the to the store on the thing and you got whatever you want but we got uh, a korean beer i remember one time and right. i can't remember the name of it um because they had dude you know you you were right. college you know how it is well, yeah um i guess you were in the military when you were at that age but we were uh we drank a lot my roommate's mm-hmm. from wyoming yeah that's all they do there. Yeah. So he's one of these guys like, we're getting this beer tonight, that one, this one, this one, this one, you know? So we'd get all these different beers. And so we had like this, 
in our kitchen, right? We had mm-hmm. the bottles of like, and I mean, we just like, well, I haven't had that one. Let's get that one. Right. I, I've had some of the worst fucking beer in my life <laughs> hanging out with those guys. Of course you did. Yeah. Well, you know, it's like doing the old Chicago World Beer Tour. Right. Like, I don't want to drink a freaking pear cider. I want to drink beer. Like, you mm-hmm. know. <laughs> but we, so we used to drink a lot of a lot of the beer there, but it was the Korean beer. Right. So switching gears a little. Okay. Um, like, very interesting stuff. Like, I've, I've been learning quite a bit. Because, again, you know, like, there's always so much stuff you can research. Right. And I like it when people have actually been places that, you know can tell you like this is what we did so the the senate campaign obviously you didn't win the seat right but for being a i guess being a libertarian candidate what and explain to people if they don't know and this is actually for me too um obviously we have republicans we have democrats right um, a lot of people mistake me for being a republican and i don't know why and i'm not yeah yeah i know why I know totally why, but I'm really not one. I'm really not one at all. I they, as far as I'm concerned, they can all kick rocks. All these well, they people. all need to kick rocks. Well, all these career people, especially. Yeah. So a libertarian, define. And well, libertarian. Our primary mission in life is to take over government so we can leave you alone. Oh, cool. I, you know, I that's that's really the basics of it. Uh, is that the definition? True definition of the word liberal. No, no, no. Reason okay. why is because liberal has almost an exclusively economic policy term. So when you I hear just some mean the word, not the, um, not the the party association, just the word liberal to me means somebody who's just cool with doing their thing and leaving people alone. No, I don't okay. think so. So okay. there are some differences in it uh, because you got the libertarian and you have liberal, and for some reason there's been a divergence okay. at some point. But the original roots of the whole libertarian philosophy really go back to, you know, uh, 1776, French Revolution, you know, uh, Proudhon, a couple of the others, you know, way back then. A couple of them, you know, used to get into debates with Marx about, you know, the best way to approach and deal with different things. Uh, With Karl Marx? Yeah, Karl Marx, of all things, you know, uh, because Karl Marx, you know, despite the way that his version of communism ended up getting adopted by some extremely authoritarian figures like Mao and Stalin and Lenin. Um, you know, there were an awful lot of other philosophers that went the other way with the Marxism as far as saying, you know, every individual owns their own labor. You know, they can do with it what they want. There shouldn't be this collectivization of the labor, right. you know, to be democratically decided upon. No, we, every individual through freedom of association, should be able to own, you know, the rights of their labor. Okay. So you saw an awful lot of people that were taking Marx's philosophies and going very no-masters idea with it. You know, and that's ultimately what the root of the libertarian movement is. It's like, no, we have personal freedoms, we have personal right. You right. know, the natural rights, the natural law, and the natural law is is – you respect me, I'll respect you, and as long as we agree, as long as we consent to the exchange, everything is cool. Seems easy. Yeah. Seems fair. And it goes clear back to, you know, like I said, discussions between Marx and, you know, all of those philosophers at the time, which is really interesting because I actually get into this discussion a couple of times. Somebody goes, well, how many of you are really hardcore Marxists? You know, how many? And it's like, look, nobody's a Marxist these days. 
Okay. Uh, Marx's ideas existed back in, you know, 1840, 1850. Right. You know, they don't exist today. Reason why is because Marx was an egocentric, Eurocentric, racist, uh, homophobic check. You know, he was. He was just an all-around terrible person. He was just an all-around terrible person. Yeah. You know, and here we have all of these neo-Marxists coming out going, you know, Marx would appreciate my uh, pronouns. Uh, no, he wouldn't. You know, Marx was never about the pronouns thing. You know, so let's just accept that neo-Marxism, you know, modern Marxism has nothing to do. And if you ever actually meet a fundamentalist Marxist, uh, the two of you will never be able to agree on anything. Okay. Yeah, so you start getting these ideas of what's going on. Well, and so many people are so divorced from the original concepts of both libertarianism, um, Marxism, all of the different isms, you know, from those from that time frame because the technology is different today right you know the technology the communication the styles what we're able to produce from a single individual at any given time and think about what you can do today with a 3d printer a lot right (laughs) and you you no longer need to go to a gunsmith you know with $10,000 $10,000 worth of tools in order to get a custom firearm. Right. You know, somebody downloads a program, plugs it into the 3D printer, and boom, you got a lower receiver. Wow. I, you know, if you know somebody who's able to build the bigger 3D printers, and they have 3D printers right now that build concrete castles. Wow. Yeah, just program it in and boom, 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 you know. So... What we're able to do today as far as productive capability, right. you know, is so different from what was going on in the time of Marx as far as right to labor, right to intellectual property, all of those things. You can't actually look at them and go, well, was Marx right or wrong? Well, maybe Marx was right for the culture and time in Europe that he existed in, but it's not so appropriate anymore. Right. You know, we need to find some other way to balance. Another problem I got, especially from the other side of the house, is scarcity. Okay? Most markets are based off of scarcity, supply and demand. If there's not a large enough supply, you know, uh, the demand goes higher, and only those people who can afford to pay for the higher demand get the supply. Right. Okay? Except then you step back and you go, well, wait, wait, how does that apply in America? Because right now, you know, on average... We throw away 40% of the food that's created in America on a daily basis. Isn't that amazing? Right. Yeah. I We have kids right now that are going to go to bed hungry tonight. Yes, we do. And we threw away 40% of the food that we produce today. That's amazing to me. You know, and it's like, but there's scarcity, man. Right. Oh, there's not. There's really not. No, there's not. It's manufactured. The scarcity today is manufactured. By you who? Know, Good question. Okay, one of the things I look at right now, uh, our food supply chain, it got busted back in March, right? Remember that? Yeah. Yeah, we ran out of toilet paper. We started running low on meat. We started running low on a number of different things. You know, everybody's going, oh, my God, we're going to starve. And then there was the run on the stores, and then the stores took two weeks to replenish it because... They could. 
well, not because they could, <laughs> but our supply chain was busted. No, because get, over yeah, the yeah. last 10 years, we created this just-in-time supply chain. Right. We knew exactly what the demand is going to be at any given time. And, and stock accordingly. We worked it back so that we never have anything in the warehouse. We save right. space because nothing's ever in the warehouse because we're producing everything just in time. Right. I get it. Yeah. So when there's a run on toilet paper where all the shelves are emptied and they're not being replaced at the same rate, we realize, uh, yeah, there's there's nothing in the warehouse as far as toilet paper goes. So right. uh, you're going to have to wait till two weeks for our just-in-time supply chain to catch up with all of you guys who decided that you needed to use, you know, 30 rolls of toilet paper this week. Right. <laughs> Which nobody does. Nobody did. You yeah, know, th there that... are literally people with uh, storage sheds full of toilet paper that, you know, well, the supply chain's fixed now, at least as far as toilet paper. We managed to catch up. Right. So they bought all of this against future sales. <laughs> Right. And they got a storage shed full of toilet paper that they're never going to be able to use. Right. But if there's another shortage, they could sell it at a, at a marked up price. They could. That's just me thinking business-wise. That's what I yeah. would do. <laughs> but that's speculation. That's speculation. Right. You know, when is the next time the supply chain is going to bust, especially with regards to toilet paper, to where you can get away with that kind of markup? Right, right. You know, is it going to be this year? Is it going to be next year? Is it going to be five years down the road? Right. You know, how much is that storage going to cost you over that time? Right. Before that purchase can be marked up enough to actually create a profit. Right. You know, so it's dealing with the speculation whether or not you're willing to pay the interim costs. Right. I get it. Yeah. You know, which is one of the reasons why we created the just-in-time supply chain. Right. Because we didn't want to pay the storage on this stuff. Right. Okay. You know. I'm with you. So we have this entire system. The market's completely busted. We're down to food. Now, in the United States right now, there are three corporations that own the bulk of the food production from farm to – Well, Well, I guess – it, it breaks down. So you, you got more than that. You got three that take it from the farm mm -hmm. to where it is repackaged, redistributed, recreated. Okay. Okay. So I don't even know the names of these three corporations because they almost deal exclusively with a farm as well as the creators who produce it, you know. So after those three, those three distribute it to about 10. Those right. 10 are like General Mills, Procter & Gamble, Ralston, you know. Post. Post, you know, those 10 distributors that you see named on every shelf in every grocery sure, store yeah. in America. Okay, so you got three corporations that pick all this stuff, take it to a central processing location. From there, it gets distributed to the 10 who recreate it and repackage it and then ship it right. back out to the store. So you got this entire situation where literally three corporations control 95% of the food that the United States eats. And we broke it this year. Wow. We broke it. That's crazy. You know. That's so crazy. Now, there are some good things that happened from that because the reason why is when we broke it, we realized, you know, it is broke. It, it's very fragile. Yeah. So we started uh, seeing an awful lot of farmers and entrepreneurs 
start to shorten the food supply chain. Okay. And we had people that grabbed uh, dump trucks, and they picked up all the surplus potatoes that weren't being sold to the restaurants anymore, picked them up, and bust them to Texas. Nice. You know, so here was all of these potatoes that were just going to go to waste, and somebody found a dump truck. You know what? We're going to take potatoes to Texas because Texas needs potatoes. Yeah. I bet they made a lot of money, too. Yeah. Well, I think it was actually a gift. It was a donation. Oh, really? You know, because okay. they can't – because of the contracts, the contract obligation. Oh, I see. You know, the farmers couldn't actually sell to somebody who was paying for it. I get it. But what they did was they created a situation where people could just show up and pick it up. Wow. Yeah. Uh, so there was a lot of this um, mutual aid going on, and the mutual aid was being distributed. But the thing is, we're also seeing things right now, and this is one of the things I like. Simplot has made arrangements with Winco. Oh, okay. Okay. We have a major meat processing facility here in the state of Idaho, which is interesting because it goes back to our prison labor thing. Uh, the one out in Kuna, right? Right. The one out yeah. in Kuna. We actually have prison labor that goes out and yeah, works out there. Do. The meatpacking yeah, plan. Yeah, meatpacking plan for about yeah. $9, $10 an hour. From what I've heard, they do pretty good. Yeah. Uh, the prisoners do. I've heard, I've heard, and I don't know how true this is, but I've heard this from several different sources that that prisoners literally come home every week uh or come home every month i think it was with like two to three grand well yeah if they're out there actually make they actually make that as prisoners yeah every month well that's like the meatpacking plan they pay them nine ten dollars an hour but that's one of those other things is that's prison labor right okay could you imagine if that was a local union out there working the packing plant oh jesus you know (laughs) every one of those spots being filled by a local prisoner who's in there for moving drugs right uh you know could be filled by a union worker who's making 25 bucks an hour right but they're getting away with paying much less right obviously yeah yeah i mean they're paying them nine dollars an hour and they yeah. show up they do their work and they go back to their house and they go back to their cell at the pen yep and you know but again they're out there working that meatpacking plant, and that's part of the thing is Simplot's running it through that meatpacking plant, and it turns around and goes back to Winco. Rather than going, you know, rather than us taking all of that meat and sending it to a processing plant in Nebraska right. just so Nebraska can turn around and ship it back. Right. And is that meat local, too? Yeah. Then? It's local. It's grown here in Idaho. It's processed local. in Idaho. Everything. It's turned around and sent to Winco, which is, of course, in Idaho. And Winco is Idaho based. Yeah, also? Winco okay. is Idaho based. And the beautiful thing is, is Winco is employee owned. You, correct. Yes. Yeah. Yes, sir. Yeah, I it, know that. It's an employee co-op. Yes. I and mean, literally, it is communism incarnate in the state of Idaho because it is an employee owned, you know, company. Right. You know, this is literally the workers. <laughs> right. You know, the, this is what they were talking about when they were talking about communism. You know, the worker owns the right to their labor. All the profits from that go right back to the workers, which, of course, live in our community. Right. So the money stays here local. Uh, so based, that whole right. thing is local. It is. That whole process is local. That's cool. Our meatpacking is local, even though it goes back to the prisons. Right. You know, our beef... Is harvested local, so that's local ranchers, and it's being distributed through a local grocery grocery outlet. Chain. You know where all of the employees participate in the profits from the company. 
So all of that money stays here in our economy. That's a good system. It is. You know, whereas if you shop at Walmart, I'm going to judge you because all of that profit from Walmart is going back to Arkansas. Yes, it is. What's that, Bentonville? Uh, yeah. yeah. I lived in Fort Smith, actually, for a year. <laughs> so my first year of college. It's right on the Oklahoma border off I-40. Yeah. Yeah, whoa. It's 45 minutes from Fayetteville, which is where U of A is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Have you, mm-hmm. ever been, you ever been to an SEC football game? Uh, No, I haven't. Good Lord. <laughs> Dude, they can fit like 80 to 100 grand in the stadium. Right. There's that many people in the parking lot drinking bush light and grilling grilling beef. I'm telling you right now. Yeah. I saw I th- I think it was LSU Arkansas was the game we went to. Right. Oh, and this was 1998. Yeah. Oh, dude. Well, that that's yeah. football zone. Oh, it was yeah, amazing. You know. I had more fun out in the parking lot. We didn't make it into the stadium. No, you don't want to make yeah. it into the stadium because everybody's already got the big screen off the back of their, you know, exactly. RV. You already you know, know. You can literally sit out back and you're watching the game while yeah. drinking one because you can't take the drinks into exactly. the stadium. And then if you do want to get a beer in there, it's like, you know, and I mean, back then it's it wasn't, like, well, yeah. you know, it was like probably four or five bucks back then, but now it's like, what, 10, what 15, they yeah. Like? yeah. But yeah, so that's you know, crazy. It's got, you know, the Boise State tailgate's got nothing. No, nothing. nothing. Nothing on nothing on a southern tailgate. No, they don't even know. No. It's amazing. They're cool. Yeah. That's cool for here. Yeah. Oh, it's cool. Well, see, this is what I tell people, too, about, like, college football is, remember the year, you know, everybody's favorite or anti-favorite Kaepernick when he was at the oh, yeah. Nevada, mm-hmm. right? And they beat BSU that year. Yeah. And every, I took Nevada actually. I, I won. I won some money on that game. Well, the th- the point margin, the point differential in the three prior games was eighteen, right? Points a victory for BSU. And I was like, dude, this year they're not going to win. That was the year of Kellen Moore, if you remember, and they were really good. I mean, nobody's denying BSU had a squad that year, but they would have even had they beat Nevada, they still wouldn't have played for the national title. And this is why I always tell people that. And they're like, "Oh, you hate BSU?" And I'm like, "No, I don't hate no. BSU. I went to college." N- nobody's ever going to let BSU take a national title. They're not going to take it until they have a stadium where they can fill 80 grand, right? yeah, minimum, you yeah, know, like like an LSU or an Arkansas. And, and we don't have it, and we have right. no plans on creating it. Right. So they're never going to win the national, the big one. I'm sorry. You know, Marlene, college football is yeah. all economics. Period. Marlene Trump is not going to build up that stadium because sports is not her thing. Idaho is not going to build that stadium. Right. Because if you go back and you actually take a look at the way the Idaho State uh, Legislature is responsible for the funding of public schools in this state. Yeah. Okay. You will never see Idaho State legislature cut loose enough money to create I get it. that kind of program reason why is because we're anti-funding a public education that's what that is it's public education correct every one of those schools like osu uh arkansas georgia all of those Damn. schools texas Alabama, texas okay the sports program yeah is not profitable really no it's never been profitable. You basically have to get the school to make up the difference in the cost in the program in order for the program to I, achieve. I get it. Okay, so yeah. when Boise State says, well, we're not getting a large enough part of the operations budget, mm-hmm. you know, Nevada gets a chunk of the operations budget. Okay. You know, it's, it's just they're going to get 50% of whatever the state cuts loose to run their sports program. The sports programs are not profitable. I get they it. never have yeah. been. You know, it's 
whether or not the state legislature, with regards to these public institutions, wants to give wants to allocate it towards them. to allocate it. Yeah, you know, it's because let let's admit, college educate or college sports is about the closest a lot of these states are ever going to get to a pro, pro team. Pro team, yeah. You know, Boise well, State. Well, you know, like yeah. UT and down in Austin, they have their own freaking network. Yeah. They have the Texas Longhorns freaking television channel. Uh-huh. My parents live in Austin. They live right outside Austin. Yeah. So, and I, I knew that from before. So, but you get what I'm saying? So, yeah. like, they generate a lot of money. They do. Yeah. But they still don't generate a profit. I get what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I totally get what you're saying. You know, and we will never reallocate enough from Boise State operating funds to create that culture that culture yeah you're right see and that's yeah. what i always tell people because it is economics now to be fair Pure. idaho cheats do they okay yes okay so we all know uh, uh what was it uh was it julia did no it was uh miss morrison ann morrison yes ann morrison park <laughs> yeah ann morrison park yeah. okay her husband you know was real big uh, created an awful lot of money. Well, of course, he was part of Morrison Knudsen, so right. they got their own gonna, foundation. Just ask that, yeah. Well, one of the things that Ann Morrison did was she created a foundation. And we have, through Boise State University, a scholarship program. Okay. Specifically for Hawaiians. Really? Yes. Why specifically for Hawaiians? I don't know why. That doesn't make any sense. But that was the thing for Ann Morrison. It was something she was involved in. You know, uh, she created this scholarship fund so that individuals from Hawaii would come here, would come here to get their education and then go back. That makes no sense. Well, it did to her at the time. But that's that's foundation. That that's philanthropy. Yeah, yeah. I was just gonna say that's some Bruce Wayne shit, right? Yeah, that's that's some Bruce Wayne. (laughs) But that's philanthropy. So what? What does the Boise State sports program do with it? They recruited players? They recruit a bunch of Samoans to line the linemen. All right, that's smart. See, yeah. that makes sense. Yeah. To yeah. Me. But, but that's what we did in order to boost yeah. the ability of our team. That's so We crazy. used a scholarship that was intended to educate right. in order to recruit these 300-pound linemen. Wow. That's, that just seems so ass-backwards to me. Welcome to second and third tier effects. Right? Yeah. Welcome to fucking Idaho. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Well, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, come on, man. Like, like, why not just... Well, it's kind of like this one. Like, you know, I, I laughed at... We, 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 we read a lot. We look at a lot of stuff. We got a kid in school the whole bit. Mm-hmm. The $86 million they got for the schools... You know, right. I went on a rampage on that one online because, you know, 48 million of it was for technology alone. Sounds about right. Yeah. Welcome so, to the Luna Laws. Yeah. So, but they cut the, my, my sister-in-law is a teacher out right. here for the last 20 years. They and, cut her salary in order to pay for the technology, right. which ended up being embezzled by Luna's uh, sister-in-law. Oh, Jesus Christ. This gets deeper than I even knew. Well, well I, I mean, that's, that was the thing. You know this, you know that they've. Like since I've lived here, I can pretty much guarantee you that they've cut the school, the education budget every year that I've been here, roughly. Roughly, yeah. Well, it may I, not have been every okay. year, but here's the thing: as a per student, yeah. Okay, the budget has gone down every year. 
Okay, that's a good, okay. great way of putting it. Yet, at the same time, our legislature has managed to allocate nearly an extra million. You know, we, we have been growing so fast right. that no matter how much we invest into it, every year we still see less money per student. Right. And then we're still ranked, what, 48th? Uh, 48th, 49th, 51st. Well, okay. That's an interesting thing. Reason why is because we're not 51st or we're not even down there. Uh, we're close to like about 38th in public education as far as quality of public education that we create. Okay. Okay. That's still pretty low. We're still 50 in per student expenditures. I get it. Okay. Okay. So there are so subcategories. Th- there are subcategories to okay. that. Now, the thing is, is when we talk Reclaim Idaho and what they're saying is, yes, we are 51st in spending per student in the United States. How are we 51st? Or f- we count D.C. as a state. Oh, uh, the good old not yeah. a state state? Not a state state. I was state, say, but, Puerto Rico is still a commonwealth. <laughs> Puerto Rico is still a commonwealth. Don't even get me into that. Reason why is because there are more people living in Puerto Rico than there are in Idaho. Idaho is state. Puerto Rico is not. Well, they don't want to pay federal income tax down there either. <laughs> well, they also got screwed during this last hurricane. So yeah. sooner or later, they're going to have to make up their mind. Do they want to be their own independent country? Do, do they, they want, want to, to continue to be a territory? Or do they want to continue, or do they actually want to become a state and have a say? In, right. Yeah, but that that's a different issue. Yes, it is. But we start talking about quality of education. Quality of education, we're still about 38th. And, and yeah, that's below the 50% mark. That's below the median. Yeah. And but that goes back to the situation where, and one of my platform issues, of course, is the Department of Education, United States Department yes, of perfect. Education. Okay, 1979 was when it was created. Jimmy Carter started it. Right. Problem is, is it didn't actually come to fruition until during Ronald Reagan. Okay. Okay. So here you have this good Democrat idea, and it's immediately being targeted for being cut by the republicans only it's now a cabinet position which represents political favors okay i can now give a cabinet position to somebody betsy devoe you know who doesn't know squat because i don't really care about education but she's on the cabinet so you know because i owed a favor to a guy for a guy for this for that and the other exactly so we're back into that situation where they now have a cabinet position with a less than qualified individual with a less than qualified individual i said so i'm glad you said that so because that's very much where i was leading to um like but you're really smart so you say you say a lot of information that's that's good i love it like i'm i'm sitting like i told you this is like school for me like this is what's cool about doing stuff like this i get to talk to some awesome people you know what i mean um on your platform as running for Congress, what are some of the things that are very important to you? And it's a two-tiered tw- question. Okay. So what are, like, let's say, what are three issues that are very important to you just as a candidate and as, okay. a, as a person, as a politician? And what are three issues that, you know, di- directly uh, relate to those as how it's going now? Like those same three issues. Okay. So uh, like you mentioned it. education is right. one. So. Okay. So let's go ahead and roll that back, and we'll start with number one. Okay. Okay, my first priority is bring our troops home. Okay. Period. You know, we've been in Afghanistan for 19 years. We've been in Iraq for 17 years. Okay, we still do not have have a clearly defined mission complete statement. Okay. You know, this is the war that was never meant to end. Correct. Okay, you know, we have politicians that are perpetuating it. You know, we've had people in the Senate and Congress— you know, 
Trump says, I'm going to bring our troops home from Afghanistan. They actually ran a vote through, you know, less than a week after he said that, that said, no, you won't. Really? Yeah. Wow. Uh, who did, and who did that? I, I don't know. But the thing is, is it was both houses. So it was the House so and it, the Senate? Yeah, it was okay. the House and the Senate. So this was a bipartisan deal that said, no, you're not bringing troops home from Afghanistan yet. Really? Yes. Because they're still making money. Because there's someone is still making yeah. money. Okay. Someone's sponsor is still making money. Enough people's sponsors right. are still making money that they were able to get both houses to come to an agreement that it was not time to pull troops so out of Trump Afghanistan. So Trump wants to bring them home. They say no, uh, and he can't do anything about it. Right, and that's one of the things. But okay. you start taking a look at the way the DOD is managing things, and I have to suspect Trump's intent as far as bringing troops home. Because every six months, you know, every year, you know, we get this big thing. We're bringing the troops home. We're bringing the troops home. Yet the numbers don't change. Right. Okay, yeah, you just brought home one unit and replaced them with another. Okay, we're playing the shell game right now because right. he's just decided to move more troops into Syria. Okay. You know, so it's like we still have the same number of troops overseas right now as we bit, did, you know, back in um, 2015. Okay. okay so, so who's ultimately responsible for that, though? Uh, Congress is. Right. They really are. Uh, reason why is because you have, and this goes back to Senator Jim Risch. Senator Jim Risch yeah. is on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Okay. Okay. He actually has an extreme amount of influence on whether or not we continue to maintain a state of relations with certain individuals. Right. Okay. One of those happens to be whether or not we continue to maintain troops in Afghanistan and Iraq and several of these other locations. And he's very influential, Jim Risch is? Well, he's the Senate committee chairman yeah and now he sits on that same committee with individuals like lindsey graham and right. Rand paul and of course his democrat counterpart so right but he's still a committee chairman right so he's so the head honcho of this committee he, yeah okay he's the one who you know decides who gets to speak what order they get to speak whether or not a bill that crosses his desk is actually going to be heard you know, or the overtones that are associated with it. So as far as foreign relations go, Jim Risch is the man. Gotcha. Yeah. You know, and, and he still currently holds this position? Yes. Okay. He still currently holds that position. Okay. Until this election. And unless Paula Jordan or Natalie Fleming beat him, he's going to continue Paul to hold Paula Jordan, that. she ran for governor, right? Yeah, she ran for governor two years ago. This year she's running for uh, Jim Risch's Senate seat. Gotcha. Okay. Hey, and uh, there's an independent who's running for that seat as well, Natalie Fleming. And Okay, and that's the other yeah. woman that you mentioned. Okay. Yeah. And so, she's just an independent? She's an independent. She has no party No party affiliation whatsoever. Okay. She's an independent. Got it. But she's running for that seat. Uh, and nice thing about that is she is an independent, which means she's not beholden to either the Republican or the Democrat Party if right. she ends up in that seat. You know, the... House leadership or the Senate leadership can come to her and say, you're going to do this. And she goes, on who's done? I got here without your help. Yeah, no shit. Huh? You know, um, so, I came in bloody. I can leave bloody. So, <laughs> yeah, you're not wrong. So your goal of bringing troops home, 
How would you, as an individual, say? Let's say you win, right? right? Let's best case scenario this. Let's say you win. I actually kind of hope you do. To be perfectly <laughs> honest with you, you know what I mean? Just yeah, because again, like people think I'm like right wing and Republican and all this. Fuck all those dudes, in my opinion. You know what I mean? I want to see someone uh, go in and do this. Well, here's the thing: as a congressman, I go in and I take a look at the situation. Yeah. Okay. First thing I need to understand is one: I am part of a team of you know 435 individuals. Other than right. yourself? Yeah. Okay. You know, you got all the other congressmen, you know, all across the United right. States. But one of the first things I do is in it, I introduce a bill to repeal the authorization of use of military force. Okay. Okay. There are two big ones. There's the one that we issued in 2001 that authorized the war on terror in Afghanistan. Okay. And there's the other one in 2003 that authorized operations in Iraq. Okay. Okay. I go in, I repeal those. Right. Okay. Once that passes, once that gets signed by the president... We no longer have the authorization for use of military force in Afghanistan or Iraq. So we have to withdraw We the have troops. to withdraw the troops. So how do you go about getting that and that's my question exactly. So how do you go how do you go about getting say like this is your idea, you're the champion of this bill, right? Right. How do you go about getting support in order to do that being a libertarian candidate? Well, I I have a certain amount of advantage. Reason why is because I do I am in between both parties. Okay? Okay, I'm not part of either of their systems, which means I can literally go to members of both parties and say, your constituency wants peace in America. Right. They don't want to see young American soldiers. They don't want to see servicemen, their sons and daughters, go over to Afghanistan or Iraq and die anymore. So you, you're garnering yeah. support from... I, I can garner support from both anybody sides. And everybody. Anybody and, and you everybody. don't have one of the... Whether it's Republican, and I don't have Nancy Pelosi standing over my shoulder saying, saying you do can't that. do that. Gotcha. No, I, okay. I, I'm a libertarian. I can go and I can ask anybody I want. And that's how that works. And that's a how that works. A lot of people don't realize yeah. that, too. Because I, I was watching, we were watching something the other day about how uh, some of these, these politicians, when they go in, right, yeah. it's just like, hey, kid... This is how this, and you know, obviously you're yeah. not a kid, but you no, know, they, hey kid, literally this is how they this show up and they say, "I want to do this," and Nancy Pelosi goes, "No, you don't." Yeah. Well, yes, I do. Uh, do you want to be elected again? Right. Do you want to live to see tomorrow? Yeah. No shit. Huh? <laughs> That's scary to think about. You know. Uh, so okay, number one then on your your docket is troops. Right. Being a former soldier, that right. makes perfect Absolutely. sense. Absolutely. What's so, number two? Uh, de a marijuana. So making it, decriminalizing it? Right. Decriminalizing it. I, I want it off of the books. Because I want it schedule off of the one? schedule. It's schedule one right, right now. Yeah. So if I go in and I deschedule it, I remove it from the federal books. Nice. Okay. This allows people to grow their own medicine now. Right. And the beautiful thing about descheduling marijuana is how many different areas it affects. A one, lot. mass incarceration vanishes. Yes. Overnight, because everybody who's sitting in prison right now on a federal drug charge for marijuana, for marijuana, yes. Uh, well, it's unfortunate because I need Joe Jorgensen to do this. Uh, Joe Jorgensen is the libertarian the, candidate, of course, yes. Right. But I follow her, her on Twitter. Yes, her day <laughs> one is pardon all nonviolent criminal offenses. Okay. First of which is, of course, marijuana. Right. Okay. Do you know how many, you know, it's worth like 60% of our federal prison population is based off of uh, federal marijuana trafficking charges. Right, because they cross state lines. Because they cross straight lines. Right. You know, so literally, she can party. 
pardon 60% of the fed, yeah. federal prison population, you know, on day one. And a lot of people don't know that, too. Like, what makes a crime federal is when it comes to something like right. dealing weed or just dealing drugs in general? You cross the state line. I mean, it's... Well, I, but see, that's the funny thing. is, We live here in Boise, you know, up yeah. in Coeur d'Alene, you know. Literally, it's Washington's legal right, right across, across the border, yeah. right across the well, border. Well, I mean, here in Boise, we have we have Oregon. Right. right here there. in Boise, we have away. Oregon. Yeah. You know, literally. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> Like I can, we can well, drive an it's, hour. It's it's crazy. Yeah. But the thing is, nearly two hundred people a day commit a federal felony by driving across that border and getting, getting their stuff yep, and, and coming back. back with it. Yeah. You're not kidding. Yeah, a federal felony. Yeah, that's crazy. hundred people, you know, hundred two hundred people a day because you count the cars that are in the parking lot. Right. You know, the dispensaries there. Right. And they're all Idaho plates. They're all Idaho plates. <laughs> Every one of them is 30 minutes away from committing a federal felony. You're right. You're not wrong. We actually talked about this, I think, on Facebook one day. Yeah. About the thing. Well, see, here's my here's my issue. And this is just my personal issue with, with the nonviolent drug offenses. Yeah. We have to be very selective on this. And I know this. I know. I just know this. Right. Yeah. So, uh, well, I mean, everybody that knows me knows I've, I've done time. Right. Yeah. I did quite a bit of uh, quite a stretch too. That's another animal. However, I saw this with my own two eyes. All a lot of these, not all, but a lot of these nonviolent drug offenders, especially and and right. I'm, I'm going to be very specific with who they, I talk about. They pled out of a violent crime with no 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 no, okay. no 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 no. I'm going to be very specific who I talk about. People that deal pot and smoke pot, I don't care. Right. I think everybody should smoke pot personally. Like I don't smoke pot, but I think everybody should. They should, yeah, they should be able to. They should be able to. Everybody should try it once just so right. they understand what's going on. Right. With, you know, it's yeah, like because you can drink. Drink a beer. You know. Yeah, I got, drink I a got beer, smoke, smoke a doobie. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, which, then again, that's another story. But here's my deal. A lot of these guys that with the meth and the heroin. Right. Specifically, I'm going to tell you right now that most of the guys that are in prison for those things deserve and belong to be in prison because of what they do when they're, right. when they're not in prison. Right. Well, know. but the thing is, is what they do when they're not in prison goes beyond nonviolent. Those are violent right. offenses. Those but are violations of human rights. They don't. No, they get don't caught. get that's, caught. And that's what I'm saying. We have to be yeah. very careful when we when we yeah. describe what a nonviolent drug offense is. And that was my point to you. Yeah. It's hard to, to talk on the comments exactly. on a Facebook thread, but face to face, I can explain it much better. So because, and here's my deal, especially with with the meth and the heroin guys, because these are the same dudes that'll get out. Right, and they'll do good for a while. I yeah. watched it happen. They'll do good, and then they'll move into somebody's house or into a house next door where somebody's seventeen-year-old daughter's next door, and then before yeah. you know it, one of their buddies shows up, has a bag of dope, and they start to get high. And then when they get high, they don't think, right? And then you got a rape charge. You They're, got sexual violence. Well, they may, but the only they may thing not they get caught though for that. Yeah, they may not get caught for that. But what ends up happening is, you know. It gets reported, but the only thing they can nail him for is the distribution charge. Is the is yeah. the drugs or the just simple Absolutely. possession? Yeah, you know what I mean. So that's that. Was and then where they I get was... nailed on the three strikes law. Yeah, but see, that's one of the things where we start getting into trouble as far as human rights go, because we do have people who go out. The cops and the DAs get lazy. Right. You know, literally, they could have done the investigation. They could yes. have actually arrested them for the violent crime of rape or false imprisonment or kidnapping or sex trafficking. Right. They literally could have found the material. 
And they just didn't do they it. They just didn't because they had an easy trafficking, an yeah, easy drug trafficking charge. They had an easy slam charge. dunk case. Easy slam yeah. dunk, and they went, okay, you know, rather than spending the next three months building a case for sex trafficking or prostitution, prostitution or, or one of these other sex things. Sex offenses or whatever. You know, let's just go ahead. Yeah. Take the easy out and send them down the river for three years on a mandatory minimum for possession. Right. Well, they don't. Okay. They only have the mandatory minimums here on the heroin, and you have to have X amount of heroin with it. Like, well, they what? got the mandatory minimums for everything, but yeah, there is an X amount of minimum. Yeah, they have and they, it's, like because like yeah. for a simple possession, it's seven years. It carries seven. And see, they yeah. use the unified sentencing here, which is and they use it wrong, but that's another animal too. But what they do generally is is that seven. A lot of these guys that get these possessions over and, and see, this is my other thing too with it. Yeah, so three strikes law is well, they have something similar. They have the habitual. And the uh, they call it the big bitch and the little bitch. Right. So that's what they call it. And in so, prison, but yeah, yeah. Basically, like you, you get like a life tale, right. With it. But what what I'm saying is, is a lot of these guys they don't even and they you have that's a separate charge. Right. Right. But they don't get charged with that always. But I, I'm telling you right now, I seen a lot of these dudes, man. They they've gotten busted four, five, six, seven times. You know, yeah. when I had when I had my issues going on, and I got in trouble for drinking. Like, yeah. That was all my shit was, but. When, which, and again. But like, it's it's six or seven times, and what ends up happening is somebody goes in with a rape charge and says he raped me, and they right. go in and they do the initial search warrant, and they find the stuff and say, well, we can send them away for this in two weeks, or, right, you know, you got to stand up on, you got to go up on right. a stand, and we're going to cross examine you and embarrass the holy, you know, yeah, and eventually they intimidate the witness into go, you know what, just just yeah, get them out wrong. of my hair. You're not wrong. You know. But when it comes to the weed, yeah, like that's, I think, but I just wanted to make that a clear distinction yeah. of like, because I see eye to eye with you on that 100%. Well, but one of the other things you look at is what exactly are those drugs being used for? Right. Now, most of the cases where we end up in a situation where, you know, somebody's a weed user. Yeah, they're not harming anybody. They're not harming anybody. That's a non-violent drug offender. Too. But you got a black market dealer who knows he's about to run out of weed. Right. And he laces it yeah, because he up. knows he's got access to meth. Right. You know, and now the person needs the next thing because what they were getting, you know, it's it's different now. Yeah, I get you. You know, so you end up with that situation. Whereas one of the things, if we were to deschedule all of that, you know, when was the last time your liquor store clerk oh, asked to have sex with your six-year-old kid? Right. You know, in order to sell you, you know, what your fifth right. whiskey. Well, and I agree on, you know, on the de- and, and the that's one of the things with the descheduling. Yeah, I is agree we with now that. move it into a professional atmosphere where it's now controlled. Where if somebody makes that statement, you're yeah not an you're not an addict who's under scrutiny of law. You know, right. for for your usage. Yeah, and that's one of the problems we got right now, especially with regards to sex trafficking of minors. Yes. Okay, it's because of people who get hooked on meth, because of people who get hooked on heroin. Yeah, they do. They get you them know, hooked on drugs. Yeah, you get them hooked on drugs, and now they got a black market dealer who's going, you know what? Kid's looking pretty cute. Right. You know, and next thing you know, you got a 30-year-old mom trafficking 10-year-old daughter because she's that's it. the only way she's going to get her fix. You're right. You know, and that's how localized sex trafficking starts. That's, yeah. you know, and that's one of the things with descheduling that is that eliminates that particular venue of control for 
these abusers. Right. Yeah. Now, I agree. We need to do better as far as education goes, especially with meth and heroin, because of what those things do to your mind. Yes, they those are okay. My, and the bath salts now. The bath salts. And holy vey. You know, you got all of these yeah. different drugs out there that'll just do things that you can't recover from. Yeah, they they literally. I've seen it. Happen. You know, literally, scary. You, you take it and you are never the same person ever again. Yes, and especially when they when they IV use it. Oh yeah. They shoot it up. Yeah. Oh my god! I I've literally seen I've seen people like and they st- they the basalt thing. Yeah, it's I, like who are you? I don't even know who you are. But the thing They're is, gone. they get involved with these because they run out of the other stuff and they don't have any place other than that black market, right. and it's the only thing that right. their provider right. has left. You remember you know. in the '90s in France when they legalized heroin? Yeah, people could then go get it at the pharmacy. Mm-hmm. They got clean needles. They got clean dope. Yeah, right? they they went to work. Mm-hmm. They led productive lives. So I'm on board with that. Yeah, like just and that's my personal opinion. You know what I mean? Like I said, I, I I leave a lot of my personal stuff out of this. But when it comes to that, like that's that's one thing I'm really big on because we have to really look at that as a, well, as a whole. The the thing know? is, is we got functional alcoholics, functional addicts, and functional addicts. Well, the same thing. Functional you know, alcoholics. They, they yeah. are the same thing. Functional alcoholic, functional addict. They are the same thing. We have literally people who can use the drugs and still show up to work every day, yep. still function every day. Yep. You know, they may not be getting high just before they show up to work, but, you know, the second they're off work, you know, they're getting high. They're getting high. Yep. You know, but they're able to function in whatever skill set that they're responsible for. Right. Okay. These are your functional addicts. Yep. Okay. Now, the thing is, is you're still an addict. Yeah, no you matter know how you slice it up. Yeah. And, and sooner or later, you slip from functional into dysfunctional. At some point, yeah. yeah at some point, you will. It, alcoholics, it, it happens with it everybody. Has to. You know, and part of that is, you know, trauma is the gateway. You're right. We all know trauma is the gateway. We use alcohol you know to escape what? We, trauma. We don't. <laughs> You'd be surprised. Well, so for instance, like I told you, I got in trouble for alcohol. Yeah. Right? And it took me myself to get away from that right yeah so you know i learned from of all people russell brand (laughs) i'm not joking he's brilliant he is i learned about that from him the trauma which you just said yeah and i really took a look at it and was like wow and i looked in my own life right and it was like wow everything that i could think of that was like holy shit that's why i've been every reason you drink yeah was because of trauma. You're right. And you know, you know you know what? Once I realized it, you know what I did? I quit drinking. Well, yeah, because you didn't need to drink it. You understood the root of your problem. And you Thank went, you. Uh, you know, so good. that's I'm, why I'm, I'm done with yeah, it. Yeah, and that's why I'm very clear on that because all these treatment programs are a bunch of horseshit. Dude. They are because they right don't now. deal with the root trauma. Thank you. That's, yes, that's awesome. I'm at, I'm really big on that. Like I, like I said, like that's something I, I'm very passionate about personally yeah. because I've gone through it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I've literally lived it and I've suffered for it. And I've I've been broken down and slave labored and see this is something a lot of people don't know about me is like I've been th- and that's how I know all the stuff about the, the prison camps and all yeah. that cuz I've been there. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to tell you right the fuck right now, that shit is torture. It is. It's flat fucking torture. The lights come on at 5 a.m. Okay. Every day. You drink. Yeah. To deal with trauma. Right. Okay, you get in trouble because you got drunk. Right. Okay, next thing you know, you're being re-traumatized. Right. Day in, and day, day out. Because they're not treating you for the initial trauma. Nope. 
you know they're and just they're even more they're adding to it you're right so it's like most of our prisoners come out of prison with complex trauma yep. because they got the trauma that got them in there in the first place and then they get all the trauma added on top of it while they're there while they're there being in prison is a lot like being in the military yeah believe it or not. It, oh, oh i agree yeah absolutely it you is. know it one of the things uh, i've talked with friends about you know is boot camp yeah oh yeah boot camp is specifically created to traumatize you it is it is to rewrite all of your previous trauma and overlay it with new trauma yep. so that you respond in a specific way under new stressors yep you know so you know not only do you have all the trauma that caused you to go into the military in the first place now you right. got all of that military trauma on top of it yeah and then they send you into a war zone and you, know, you get that trauma and by the and... time you get out after 20 25 30 years you know, you got these layers of complex trauma that include failed relationships, divorces, you know, uh, substance abuse, substance abuse uh, you know, domestic abuse, domestic abuse you know, it. the whole nine yards, you name it. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's the same thing with prisons. You're right. You yeah. know, you had this initial trauma as a childhood that got you into prison and now they're layering all of this stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, if you had a relationship before you went into prison, chances are it failed while you were in prison. Chances are. You know, uh, if you got into a relationship while in prison, as soon as you got out, and, you know, your wife pen pal, <laughs> right? You know, well, and that's the thing too. changes the whole dynamic of your relationship. A lot and, of the stuff that happens in there, they don't prepare people for reentry. No, they, they don't. don't. You have to be really like I'm fortunate because you know, being an athlete, like I have the, the right. mental fortitude, if you will. Yeah, of like being able to to recalibrate you know a lot quicker like i'm gonna tell you when i got out it was it took a while yeah uh it was rough well it's the same thing after you know my last uh tour right you know getting out and trying to readjust you know being able to take the time and get into school and say you know yep i'm in the process of rebuilding myself I have the GI Bill. It's going to cover me for the next two, three years. Yeah. I'm going to get my degree. That took a lot of stress off you. And by that time, you know, the financial responsibility while getting the GI Bill and going through school. Yeah. You know, I was able to step back and go, okay, this this is my transition time. Right. This is my ability to recreate myself and rebuild myself. And that includes getting an education that gets me out of the career field that. That you were in. Yeah. That created, you know, these layers of trauma. But the thing is, they don't teach you about that upon military exit, right? So you there's know, no, so there's no reentry from there as well. They try, but they fail. Right. Okay. You know, they're, yeah, they, yeah, yeah, they try in there. They yeah, try. they they try. But, but the thing is, is the people who are teaching you, yeah, have never been there. Exactly. So they don't understand what it is you need to lose in order to gain. in order to gain. Yeah, I'm totally with you. You know, they don't know what. That's amazing. Trauma they need to take yeah. away from you to better prepare you right. so you can go out into the world and be the person you were meant to be. Well, and seeing there, too, I can tell you this. Like, a lot of the stuff, it's like basic shit. Like, writing a resume. Filling oh, yeah. Out a, filling out a job app. Right. You know? Like, and I had to do all that. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, dude, I know how to do this. Like, I own a business. Like, you know no. what I mean? Like, like, you know, but here's the thing. I'm the 1%. Yeah. Exactly. I was the 1%. It was really weird because a lot of these people didn't go to high school. They mm-hmm. didn't graduate. A lot of people had to get their GED. Yeah. 
as while part, they were as in part of their you know their programming. yeah and, and they didn't have yeah the cognitive before they got in yeah oh, and then it got worse and then they got worse because of the trauma that's heaped on it and the stressors yep. and they're trying to learn while under stress in prison right and it just creates this series of dysfunction that makes it harder and harder to get past those hurdles and then that is why they all keep coming back over and over and yeah. over and over again isn't that nuts something something broke i think we're all right <laughs> that's okay. crazy anyway so your third issue as we spent a lot of time on the second one which is totally fine i right. think that was really that's actually it, it, really informative. It, it's a good subject it's a great subject yeah. i'm very passionate about it as well but your what's your third thing that that you um, would like to go in and see changed or you would like to to champion change for um i sort of got two things and they go hand in well they no, they don't go hand in hand. Uh, the first one, of course, is the Department of Education. Yeah. Okay. I don't think the Department of Education in the 40 years that it's been running, well, yeah, 40 years now, has done any good. There we go. There we go. <laughs> okay. Just just had to hit the right. Uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, My tables the, are a bitch. <laughs> but in the 40 years, the Department of Education has been involved in. Loan sharking? loan sharking <laughs> well loan sharking that's higher education that's affected the way we do higher education yeah. but in addition to that in the 40 years it's been involved it's gone into the no child left behind you know the thousand stars you I know, know all, all of these it. things you know in the last 40 years the united states department of education has done nothing but contribute to the de decline of education in the united states i agree with you okay 40 years ago they were teaching latin in high school really Yes. That's amazing. Now, wow. upon graduation from high school, you got to take a remedial math class before you can start earning college credits. Why? Exactly. Don't you know don't they know how to do math? Not in today's high schools. Are you fucking kidding me? Dude, we had to take trigonometry. Like I graduated in 98 and I my junior year I took trig. That was a hard class i've ever taken in my right, life God, right that shit was hard. but the thing is is right now we are graduating people from high school who can't do basic english and basic math how are they graduating because the united states federal government controls the purse springs and All as right, long as okay. the school yeah. graduates a certain number of people they will continue to get, get federal funds so they're just pushing people through they're just pushing people through gotcha okay and it's a lowest common denominator education system. You're right. You know. Indoctrination system. It's, well, it's indoctrination. And <laughs> I, I know there are an awful lot of people out there who listen to you who are big fans of Trump. Yeah. But when Trump came out with his idea that he's going to mandate patriotic education or he's not going to provide federal funds to certain schools in the United States if they don't adopt it, I was like, whoa. Well, and that was in response to the 1619 project. Yeah. So, you know, in but, but the thing is, is the 1619 project and its indoctrination plan, as well as, you know, Trump's counter proposal with yeah. the mandatory patriotic education. It's like, dude, I don't want either of those. Sure. Where where did this idea of mandated indoctrination, whether it's the patriotism or, you know, yeah, whatever. 1979, when we founded the U.S. Department of Education. You know, that's how long they've been working on this indoctrination plan at federal level. Okay, reason why. Okay, you step back and you take a look at the education across the United States right now. 
Okay, it doesn't matter where you live. The schools teach the exact same thing everywhere in the United States. Right. Okay, you live in Marsing. Do you need to know how to assemble a car in a Ford shop? In Detroit? In Detroit? Right. No, you don't. Marsing's more farming. Marsing's farming. Yeah. You know, you need to be supporting the 4-H or the Future Farmers of America sure. or some other sort of agricultural program. So do you, do you having said all that, do you think that, like, localized, if you will, education is a better model? Well, the thing is, I'm anti-federalist, period. So yeah, everything, that. everything yeah. is yeah. better localized. You know, whether you're talking education, whether you're talking economic development, and again, that goes back to the Simplot-Winco contract. Yeah. You know, that that's a localized. And that's you great. Yeah. Releasing the federal funds so that Department of Education doesn't control local funding. Right. You know, that gives the community back their tax money. That also gives them back their decision-making ability regarding the education for their community. Right. You know, if you want to teach home ec in the school, you can teach home ec for your kids. I get what you're saying, too, because, again, my mother being a teacher, uh, when the No Child Left Behind came in, and I, re- I can recall this as blue as the fucking sky is on a Monday. Uh, I, I can imagine. Oh, my goodness. The number of teachers I heard talk yeah. about that and just right. Mm, well, here's, the numbers who quit. Here's one of the things that, that really got my mom to retire was because I remember talking to her on the phone. And I was like, Mom, you know, like, are you going to retire soon? Like, your 25 years is coming up, blah, blah, blah. She's like, oh, this, this is just terrible. And I was like, what's going on? She says, well, the, the parents aren't, they're not parents anymore. They're customers now. Right. Like, I was like, they're what? She says, oh, they're customers. And my, and my mom talks, to, like, she, imagine Judge Judy. That's my mom and her, right. like, they, they're, they're yeah. voice twins. She's like, well, you got you to gotta imagine that the, the this and the that and the other. And I'm like, what, the, the customers? Mom, I'm like, hold back up. And she talks a mile a minute, you know. And I'm like, so they're customers. So here's what was going on. She couldn't discipline students any longer. Right. For not having their homework. Yeah. If the students were missing too much school, she couldn't fail them. Right. Like, you remember going to school. Yeah. You got your ass whooped if you didn't go to school. Remember, like, I don't know when you were in high school, but when I was in high school and they started the caller ID thing when we ditched school. Yeah. Oh, fuck. (laughs) That fucked our whole program up. And then we'd have to go out to get the mail three days later, you know, to try to hide the absence. Your mom still found out anyway. They already knew, and you get your ass whooped. Yeah. But so she couldn't couldn't fail the kids for for not turning homework in, for for poor attendance. Uh, The parents were shitty to her. Mm-hmm. Coming in, trying to tell her with her master's degree, as she would always, well, I have a master's yeah. degree. I'm like, yeah, my, no, I remember. But you know, developmental I mean? education. Yeah, yeah. She had a master's degree in education. You know, um, and you know, that's a lot of school. I mean, you're an educated individual. Yeah. You know how much school and how much work that shit is. Mm-hmm. But to have these people coming in, her, they're telling her how to run her classroom, essentially. Right. So I and I'm on board with that. You know, these were the people coming in to tell her to run her classroom, right. who couldn't pass. You know who couldn't get into college right. without taking the remedial courses. Yeah, back then. <laughs> back then, yeah. Right. Exactly. Cuz you know, like we had to do the like, you know, we had to do the ACTs out west. Mm-hmm. The SATs are out east. You take that and you do that's your college entrance. Exactly. Yeah. 
And it's like you do that, you pass the thing, and then you go you go to college. You go sign up for college, and that's that. And if you don't pass the thing and you just get a mediocre score, they got you English 95 and Math 95. Yep. And boom, you, you didn't know. even start at 101. You started no, at 95. No, 95. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's right. If you were bad enough, they sent you to 90. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But you know how the yeah. system went. So, so in the context of that, it was the way it used to be, you know, um, it, like – what are you seeing wrong with our education system specifically? Well, part of it is, is the universality of it. You know, I, like I said, they're teaching the exact same classes in Detroit that they're teaching out in Marsing. Right. Okay, it's the exact same education. All of those educations are tied. And the federal tied, funding, obviously. And the federal funding okay. that's tied to those. Okay, you cannot not teach those yeah, and get, still get the federal funding. You'll get in trouble, yeah. Yeah, you'll, you'll lose the funding. And that was actually one of the issues that came up in one of my primary gripes about the Idaho Freedom Foundation in this last session. Reason why is because they're really going hard after, you know, getting rid of Common Core. Right. Okay. But you can't get rid of Common Core and keep federal funds. Right. So you okay. have to do it. So you have to do it. If you stop doing it. Right. They pull their money. They pull their money. And now the money that you save by not teaching Common Core is lost. Right. So the question is, is where's your net gain? You know, are you gaining resources or losing resources in that transition of creating educational independence right. from the federal funding? Right. Okay. Now, my guess is, is we probably would have lost money. Right. That happens to be the think tank in the way that Idaho Freedom Foundation approaches an awful lot of things. Is they're more worried about getting us off of the federal dole than making sure the books balance in the equation. Because right. we still got to pay our taxes. Yeah, no matter you what. Know, the federal government's still going to take our taxes. Yeah. Oh, okay? of course. And they're going to hold them for our education. They're going to hold them for our roads. They're going to hold them for everything. And if we become independent enough, they're going to start withholding more and more of the funds that they keep out of our taxes. Right. It's just the nature of things. And that's one of my primary gripes about the way Idaho Freedom Foundation handles things in the state. Yeah. Is they aren't looking to make sure the books get balanced in the process. We should have legis we should have congressmen, we should have senators that should be looking at getting rid of the taxes at the federal level. Right. Rather than creating a situation where you know, the federals stop giving us our money back. Right. So you know, well, just and then, fix so it so they're not taking it in the first place. We really, really you're really looking at more self-sustainability than state by state. Yeah. Abs Is that know. a good way to put it? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Each, each state creates its own economy, creates its own diversity, yeah. you know. Um, creates its own education. Creates its own education. It creates the education based on the economy that makes the state work. Right. Okay. Idaho. We have the Frank Church Wilderness Area of No Return. Why not educate Idaho children on ecotourism? Sure. I mean, we got outfitters that take people back to do big game hunting. We got outfitters that do whitewater rafting on the Salmon River and the payouts yep, and, and all the of the rest. I mean, the, this, this yep. is ecotourism. Yeah. And Idaho is set up. It's prepared. It's rich for it. Yes, you know, it if is. we do a better job of managing our lands, you know, where we go in and re repeal some of those things that Sierra Club rammed down our throats 40 years ago, you know, we can do scaled down lumber and mining activity in these multi-use areas managed by Bureau of Land Management. Right. And we can improve our mining industry. We can improve our timber industry. 
all at the same time while maintaining a high quality ecotourism environment. But we got to get all of the stakeholders in the one place, creating a cooperative arrangement where everybody is able to bring something to the table and take something away when they're done. Right. As opposed to just people coming to the table with nothing and taking away when they're done. Yeah, exactly. Which is what we got with the that's, federal government. That's the current right model. Now. Yeah, that's, but that's the current model. Yeah. And we don't get all of the stakeholders. You know, literally somebody shows up with a bunch of money and says, I want it done this way. And we have politicians that go, okay, your check was big enough. Right. And so, and so that's what you're trying, you're running against, basically. Yeah, that's what I'm running against. Yeah. You know, I'm literally running against people who say, okay, check's big enough. It'll happen. See, and... and just personally, I'm all for that, for what you're doing. Because, well, think about it logically. You know, it's it's like this dichotomy of Republicans and Democrats. Well, you got, you know, all these how many year politicians, these people that have been in office for X amount of years. Joe Biden, 47 years. Yeah, and what has he done? Yeah. If he knew well, what to do, wouldn't he have told Barack Obama? <laughs> You know what I'm saying? Like, but yeah, you know, even Jim Rush. I mean, take a look at how long how he's long been, he been involved in, in Idaho politics. He's been in, since I've lived here. Yeah. Yeah, I he was a fixture, you know, when I was graduating 30, 35 years ago. Okay. You know, that's how long Jim Rush has been involved in Idaho politics. You know, and the funny wow. thing is, is he literally moved from Wisconsin, and the year later, he was an Idaho legislator. Really? Yeah. Wow. You know, I, I mean, he didn't even live here before he started affecting the Idaho political landscape. That's, that's insane. It is. Joe, what, it, the, it, what the hell? Okay. One of the things about Idaho is we're very libertarian. Yeah. Okay. You do you, yeah. I'll do me. Totally. Okay. Now, the problem is, is that means I'm used to my independence. I'm not interested in running for office. Right. Because I'm successful outside of that office. Right. Okay, so I'm not going to run for anything because I don't want to run your life. Right. Well, we get people who do want to run your life who are running for those offices, and they're the only ones running for those offices. Correct. So you don't have people of a libertarian mindset that are saying, no, government stays out of your bedroom. Government stays out of your business. Right. Government stays out of your education. Right. You know, literally, you as a community decide what your education, what your economic structure, all of that. You know, that's lowest level politics. The state should, you know, whether it's the federal government or even the state government, most of those things, the government shouldn't be involved in. I agree with you. But we got people who move from Wisconsin. That's so fucking crazy. To me. You know, uh, you actually take a look this last legislative session. Um Less than half of our legislators and senators uh, were born and completed college in, in the state of Idaho. So they're all, well, I mean, a lot of us are transplants. Well, yeah, yeah. but yeah. the thing is, is if you come here and the first thing you do upon arriving in the state of Idaho, yeah, or, yeah. or even within you, five yeah. years, yeah, is to become a politician. Yeah, there's a problem. There's a problem. Definitely. You know, you haven't even had an opportunity to acclimatize to the Idaho way. And literally, we have half of the politicians sitting up in the legislature who don't know what the Idaho way is, claiming that they're doing it the Idaho way. 
Clearly they're not because they wouldn't be claiming it. Right, exactly. Like, I'm, I've been here for 20 years, Joe. I can tell yeah. you right now the Idaho way is the Idaho way. That's a thing. Yeah. Straight up, that's a thing. Idaho's a great place. Right or wrong, the Idaho way is the it, and it Idaho exists. is its own country yeah. in, within a country. <laughs> yeah, and, and we do things differently. <laughs> what did you find? So Jim Rish, <clears throat> he was at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee from 61 to 63, where he then transferred to the U of I. Oh, okay. And then has been in office technically as a prosecuting attorney of Ada County, 1970 to 74, member of the Idaho State Senate. He went to U of I Law School then. Idaho State Senate. Yeah. From the, uh, from the 21st District, so that started in 1974. So he's been in the Senate since 74? He's been in Idaho politics. Idaho politics, politics since 74. 74. Ada County prosecutor. Prior to. Yeah, yeah. Prior when to did he hit Senate? 74. 70 so, to 74, he was a prosecutor? And then he became senator in 74? 50 years he has held elected office. In Idaho. 50 years he has held elected office in Idaho. He's got to go. He's got to go. That's insane. because yeah, he only moved to Idaho. He was in did he go to law school? He went. At U of I? Because uh, they have a law. That's where I, the I law think he may is. have been a professor at U of I. He obtained a B.S. degree in forestry in 1965, continued his education at the university's College of Law. Where? In Idaho? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because so, U of I's got a law school. Because yeah. a lot of the lawyers here, the the public defenders and the prosecutors. In forestry. So he came to U of I to become a, a lawyer. lawyer in forestry, but he picked up criminal law. You know, land rights move over to criminal law, but 50 there years. Yeah, that in elected what positions he did in college, in the state I don't, I don't give two shits what he did in college, but the fifty-year thing. Rich entered politics in nineteen seventy in Boise at the age of twenty-seven. He is now seventy-seven. Yeah, and you're dead on. So fifty years. He's Jesus a dinosaur. Christ. Well, right. Well, see, and that's one of the other things too, Joe. That I, I, I really wanted to. Well, I mean, since we're on the subject, it's not really that I wanted to. It's just it comes up is, and you've said it already as far as these these. Uh, these laws, if you will, dealing with the ecology of everything, yeah. it's dinosaur shit. Mm-hmm. Nancy Pelosi's got to go. Yeah. Biden's got to go. Yeah. All, Jim Riss has got to fucking go. I'm sorry. Mass incarceration years? has got to go. Yes, it does. I agree with yeah, you. The war on drugs has got to go. go. That Well, that's definitely got to yeah. go. That's, that's you know, gee, dude. We could spend seven hours talking about that. Yeah, we could. But I, I, I agree with all those things. The way we go about them, I think, you know, fundamentally, we probably differ a lot just in things. Well, and there's a certain amount of that, and and yeah. I understand where but that comes from. You know, it's, it's a matter of experience. Yeah, but you know, the end how, goal. how do you? What's the angle that creates the best result? Yes. Well, okay. see, I'm all for that when yeah. it, when it comes to these issues. You know, like I told you, you know, outside. Um, this year's really the first year I really got involved politically. Yeah. Well, before I didn't really care. It's just like we were talking outside. It's just like our lives are going to go on no matter what. It will. You know, but you just, know, but that's that's the nature of who we are. Yeah. You know, the nature, and I hate to bring that up, but you know, no, we're it's... we're middle aged white male <laughs> Americans. I'm only half. Uh, you pass. <laughs> Good skin. <laughs> but you know. We have that appearance. It's going to be acceptable anywhere, anytime, because we are still well within the majority. We are within the accepted cultural norms of the United States. Sure. You know. um, What are those anymore, though? They're changing. 
They've thankfully, changed. Thankfully. During my life, they've changed. Yeah. You know, uh, we're I can seeing tell more you and more growing uh, up. acceptance. You know, we still have some old hardcore, you know, racism out there. Oh, yeah. It still shows up. But the next generation are, you know. Soft. S-A-W-F-T, Joe. Soft. <laughs> they may be soft, but the thing is, is they accept that. They, they went to school with these kids. Right. You know, they don't see color the same way we... You know, when I went to Meridian High School, you know, back 35 years ago. Yeah. We had one black kid that was attending. Right. That makes yeah, sense. You know, I, I, I didn't give it a second. Th- you know, I'm sure he caught a certain amount of flack for it. Well, I didn't give him flack. I'm sure he did. But the thing is, is now we have our communities. And part of this is, is it goes back to the refugees. Okay. Reason why is because Boise is one of those refugee communities. Yeah, it is. So schools like Bora High School actually have an extreme high density of uh, multicultural students. Yeah. You know, different colors, different religions. A lot of Africans. A lot of Africans. Mm A lot of Myanmar, you know. um, Oh, yeah, yeah. West Asians, uh, Central Asians, you know, out of that area. We have an amazingly diverse multicultural atmosphere here in Boise for Idaho. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, for Idaho, you, yeah. Yeah, for Idaho. See, but like, I grew up around. in it. Yeah. You see the halal markets. Yeah, I know. You know. They're cool. We have the oldest, we have the oldest synagogue west of the Mississippi. The one up there on In the uh, United Lathal? States here in Boise. They actually moved it from its original location. But we have the longest lasting, the oldest synagogue. Is that the one on Laytop by the cemetery? Uh, yeah, I think it is. Yeah. Uh, I've but been. That Jewish community is one of the land longest lasting west of the Mississippi. That's great. In the United States. You know, our Jewish community here in Boise is older than San Francisco. I really, that's crazy. Boise is really interesting when it comes you know, to things like that, isn't and it? And we have, uh, what have we got? We got like uh, four mosques. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, we got the uh, one out on Five Mile in Cloverdale, uh, which is... Uh, Uh, it, it's from uh, Clinton's era with uh, – uh, I'm drawing a blank on it right now. That's all right. Now. We're looking it but, up right now. Yeah, we, we got a mosque out there. Uh, yeah. That's one of our older ones. It actually replaced a Baptist church. Uh, five Mile and Victory? Uh, no, Five Mile and Cloverdale. Or no, no, uh, Cloverdale and Lake Hazel. Cloverdale, Lake Hazel. Yeah, I was right thinking there. that area. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Okay. So um, that's just – that's like, what, another two miles off? Uh, right. Southwest. You know, but that was uh, 1990s because that, that, that was, was part of the refugee during uh, the war that we supported under Clinton. Where, in Somalia? Uh, no, no. This was... Uh, or the Bosnian thing. The Bosnian. Right, okay, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. there's so, a lot of Bosnians here, yeah, too. Yeah, there's a lot of Bosnians, yeah. but that mosque is related to that. Okay. Yeah, it's one of those I keep drawing a blank as to which side it was because one side was the Christians and the other side was the Islam. Yeah. Anyway, Idaho ended up with the one that brought their mosque with them. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, so that was the whole Bosnia-Herzegovina yeah. thing. Uh, so we've had a mosque here in Idaho since then. 
You know, and we've had right. a few more that have sprung up since right. then, you know, as far as Islamic cultural centers. Um, yeah, so, and you drive around, you take a look. We have European delis. We have yes, we do. the Jewish delis. They're we very have good. the halal markets from Afghanistan and mm-hmm. Iraq, as well as Southeast Asia, you know, Vietnamese refugees, Myanmar. And Nigerians. They Nigerians. Have a, they have a food truck over yes. there by the Bad Boy Burger on Fairview. Right? Yeah. It's good. I've it's, eaten there. They're, they're all, it's amazing. Yeah. You know, but oh, yeah. it's one of those things. You step out, and unless you know to go looking for these places... Yeah, you never know they're there. Most people in Boise have no idea just how diverse the culture here is. Well, it's become that way. Yeah, you know, it, it's become that the way. The 20 years I've been here... I've seen it. It's well. It's kind of like the the joke about you know like this being such a white bread place. Yeah. You know, like because there wasn't, there's never really in my twenty years here, there's never really been a large black community. Right? No. And the joke when I first moved here was it was like it was the athletes at the school. Yeah. You know that was the majority of the black community here in town because mm-hmm. you know they were the basketball and the football players. And right. They were brought in, they recruited, they got the scholarship, yeah, they, got they recruited, came they here, and then they turned around and left. Yeah, exactly. But yeah. now, now we got the refugees. And thing well, is, is even the sports. Yeah. A lot of them came and decided to stay. Yeah, exactly. And, That's what I was going to say because a know, lot of these guys decided to stay that were from California. Right. California. So, so we've got a larger black community here. We've also got a larger uh, Hispanic community here. Okay, well, the Hispanic you know. community comes here as a result of the migrant workers. You know? right. So 40 years ago when I was going to school, you know, the migrant workers would come up. They would, and like some of them would decide to settle. Yeah. You know, they get done with the winter work and they go, you know, it's Idaho's here. a nice place. I'll, exactly. I'll stay. You know, and they'd raise their families. And, of course, their families would go out and work the farms until they reached a point where they became part of the larger community and they were sending their kids to school. Right. You know. Um, what would you find? Uh, it's called Islamic Community of Bosniaks in Boise. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Yep. Oh, the Bosniaks. It's huge. That's a big and it's down, mm-hmm. it's down off of Lake Hazel and Cloverdale? Lake Hazel and Cloverdale, yeah. 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 On... You're right. That's exactly. I was thinking when you said yeah. Five Mile and Cloverdale, I was like, wow, shit, that's Victory Road area. Southeast corner. So, yeah, yeah. I know exactly yeah. where he's talking about. And yeah. it, it is, too. But it's it, It's large. huge. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. But that community came in here, you know, back in the 90s as a result. Yeah. And, it, it's they funny. came from it, and a lot of people don't know this. Like, because I like when I worked at Micron, I worked with a lot of Bosnians. Yeah, and those they're some tough sons of bitches. Well, they are for one. Well, well they okay. lived through a civil war. They did, like, dude. But that's one of the things, like, you know. You know, I I've attended a couple book clubs, and some of the book clubs around here have teachers in it. You know, yeah. and they'll tell their stories about you know the refugee kids that are in their classrooms. You know, and you'll hear a story. You know about one of the teachers talking about one of their kids from Somalia. Right. You know, and the kids are just easy going, nice level hit, you know. But the second somebody starts picking on them. Yeah, you better watch uh, out. Well, and you know, think it's about done. It. Think about it. Like but the yeah, things it, these it, kids it's the fight or flight. Yeah. And, you know, they've run out of places to fly to. Yes, they have. You know, so. They're going to fight. They're going to fight. Yep. You know, but that's one of those things. It's one of the culture things. You know, we have a significant number of war refugees here yes, we do. in Boise. Yes, we do. You know, whether they're from Afghanistan, Iraq, here on emergency because they cooperated with U.S. forces in Afghanistan or Iraq. Right. Or whether they're here after, you know, spending six years in a refugee camp before coming here from Myanmar or um, Somalia 
or any of those other loca- these are war refugees. Yeah. You know, or some other sort of extreme trauma that they've fled from. Right. And they cut and this is home. Yeah. This is home. Which is and it's really cool too because like I said, like when I first moved here, you know, it was like all my friends in college are like you're moving to where? Iowa? No, Idaho, <laughs> dude, Boise, Idaho. Yeah. You know? And it's like I said, it's changed in 20 years I've been here the landscape. And it's to me like I grew up in that. So it's yeah. no big deal. You know what I mean? Like we had everybody, you know, mm-hmm. like it didn't matter. We had you know, Puerto Ricans and Cubans and blacks and Haitians yeah. and but, and yeah. Irish and British and whatever, you name it and it was there. But here it's really cool. I think it's cool personally. You know what I mean? Well, it, it is. And a lot of it is is the way we've decided to approach the refugee problem here in the state of Idaho. Yeah. Okay. Now, they're hardworking people too. They are. They show up. Right they now. do their job. Yes, they do. You know, they work, which is the reason why so many of them are entrepreneurs. You know, they got their salons, they're running their delis, you know, they're running the shopping market. Some of them have managed to upscale. They get restaurants. You got restaurants, some really awesome restaurants. Yeah, they do. The the best food. You know, right? right? We eat there a lot, so I know exactly. But we have a lot of multicultural experience in the restaurant industry here in in Boise area. Yeah. And literally, you could eat in a different place. You could eat from a different country every day of the month. It's like Manhattan almost. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> you know, it's there's we, a there's a street up in uh, Midtown, uh, kind of around. It's I, it's close to St. Patty's Cathedral. Yeah. If you've ever been to Manhattan, um, I said my Zara's with my uncle, but it's literally like it's on a, a bit of a slope, and I forget what fucking street it is. But literally, it's like you go, and it's like German food, Italian food, Moroccan food, Puerto Rican food, Cuban food, Nigerian food, uh, Mexican food, Canadian food, <laughs> like Japanese food. like, And it's just restaurants in a row. Right. I don't know if it's all still open like that because this yeah. was 20 years ago. But, like, it's it reminds me of that. Yeah. You know, but except it's not all in one strip. But see, you know? like, one of the areas, one of the things that we have a problem with, uh, especially with the refugees in America— this relates to Ilan Omar's uh, district in Illinois. Yeah. Okay, is, is in, she in Illinois or Minneapolis? She's Minnesota. Minnesota. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, it, her district is actually just outside of the main area, and what they've done is they brought in an awful lot of the refugees and basically created a slum or ghetto. They brought Somalians there, right? Yeah, she's Somalian as yeah. well. But what they did is they brought all of the Somalians and just dumped them this, there. Dumped them there. Yeah, literally. This, their own community, just boom. It's like, nah, you guys, we don't want you with the rest of us, so we're going to stick you in this housing center and basically really? created a ghetto for the Somalians in Minnesota, which is why Elon Omar was able to get elected so easily because there was no diversity in her district. I get it. It was just people yeah. for her. Right. So it's, it was it. literally Somalis voting for a Somalian. Okay. Not that that's bad. No, I get it. But that, that's the way they did it. Yeah. Now, the problem is, is when they did that, you know, all of the crime lords that managed to come in with that refugee are now part of that community. Yeah. Which means that the U.S. government I know exactly what you're talking can't about control now. it because there is well, the established. I think. There's the established yeah. organized crime that's integrated and taking I control of it. I think that was planned, personally. But. Well, it, it was. But see, the comparison is is the way it happens here in Idaho. 
Yeah, I get what you're yeah, saying. In Idaho, they bring in a refugee and they integrate him into an they established community. They yeah. live everywhere. Yeah. You know, um, my brother, when he was living out of Meridian, uh, lived in a low-income housing complex. You know, families from about five different countries. Right. You know, but this was integrated into the community. You know, right. it, it wasn't all. Yeah, they're not all just, you know, they're, just concentrated it, in one spot. They're not all concentrated. So, yeah. and the uh, Refugee Commission here in the state of Idaho, um, International uh, Rescue Commission, I can't remember, IRC. Yeah. Uh, they actually help with the placement so that they're spread out. And this helps them build a community with the people who are already here because they're able to talk and communicate. Uh, one of the interesting things about the way my brother was living at the time was there were two young girls in the community. Okay. Because these girls were responsible for translating for their parents. Uh-huh. These two girls had picked up about seven different languages that they oh, were wow. speaking in the community. So literally they could translate for everybody. For everybody. That's and cool. any combination, you know, the kids would get together, they'd play, they'd learn the new languages. Now the kids could translate, you know, what was being said from, you know, one person from That's Nigeria cool. to the next person who grew up in some. So literally these girls had learned like five or six different languages and were handling the translation for, you know, all the parents in the community. That's really cool. You know, and, you know, they hit school, you know, known seven languages. Right. You know, could you imagine? Yeah. Well, right. Well, it's yeah. like, you know, in like Europe, like in, in other places around the world, like they're required to learn. Uh, well, at least English. two or three. Yeah. Uh, they're required to learn English, you know, because of the relationship to the European Union. Yep. And, and then, British and English. then they have to learn. So it's like if you're yeah. German, by the time you graduate from yeah. high school, you know, German, you probably know French or Italian or Spanish right. and you know, English. Yeah. Minimum. 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 Yeah. That's crazy. Well, it, it's, you know, the old joke, you know, uh, three languages, trilingual, two languages <laughs> is bilingual, one language is American. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, but, right. You know, well, that's pro- that's a byproduct of our education system. Because, like, you know how it goes in high school, like when we were going to school, you know, and yeah. you, were be- you were a little before us, but uh, it was like an elective right. class. Like, I'm lucky just that I grew up with it. You right. Know, Spanish. So yeah, that's- you grew up with a... Po- well, okay. You grew up learning Puerto Rican in your house. Spanish. <laughs> it's Spanish. My grandmother and everybody. But yeah, but, it, but, yeah, yeah. you know, it's, it's the dialect. Up, I grew up also my my grandfather, my dad's father, so we're uh, Dutch, German. Right. So like I learned Yiddish a little bit. You know? a, a little bit. Yeah, and I learned German a little mm-hmm. bit, you know, from my grandfather. Yeah. Because he spoke them both. Yeah. As well as English. You I know? think it was my great grandparents were the last ones that actually spoke, you know, a foreign language fluently yeah but th- but you see what i'm saying so it's like yeah like i was fortunate like just me personally i was fortunate in that mm-hmm. growing, just growing up yeah. with it. like because when, when your mother's pissed at you <laughs> or your grandma's pissed at you or your aunt Mer- you know i got right know, she was pissed at me and she'd curse at me in spanish too uh-huh you know like absolutely yeah <laughs> but, but you know that's the difference in the way we handled the situation between the way Minnesota did it I get and it, the yeah. way we do it here in Idaho. You know, we well, do a lot better Idaho job of integrating. A much better job. Yes, it's actually one of the most successful refugee resettlement programs in the United States right what now. What do you think about because Hartford? Because of the way we handled it, uh, Hartford, Connecticut. Uh, They've had a real bad problem over there. Well, from what I've understood. <sighs> I should say that because just what I've heard, because they have a refugee city there, Hartford, right. Connecticut. But see, that's one of the things. They have a refugee city. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, let's, and that's is, one of those where they created the ghetto, and creation of the ghetto creates its own. No, problems. no, 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 not like that. Like okay. they're they're a, a haven. Okay. Like we are. You okay. know what I mean? Like, but they've had a problem there. Like they've like Hartford. So I lived in Meriden, Connecticut, for a bit. Okay. Which is about an hour south. Right. Right. It's and you want to talk diverse? Like that's like there's a lot of Puerto Ricans there. Let's just put it <laughs> that way. Um, because you know Connecticut's very blue blood, very ho 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 fancy. You know, yes. Uh, yes. A lot of rich white folks with old money. Uh-huh. Let's put it that way. So in Hartford, from what I've understood, um, and this has been a minute since I've read or seen or heard anything about this, they were having a real problem with the refugee issue there as far as like crime was going up, uh, you know, like just problems associated with, you know, said issue. Yeah, without actually being able to understand what was going on with uh, their problems there. Oh, okay. You know, I didn't know if you were um, aware of that or not. No, yeah. no. It was just, it's basically kind of like Minnesota. Um, as far, and this is just my understanding of it. Like I said, it's been a minute. Um, it wasn't so much that they just all got, you know, like they took a group of people from a specific area and just dumped them in Hartford right. and threw them in an area. But they've had they've had such an influx of refugees, from what I understand, that it, it's just caused a lot of, you know, like, again, crime's gone up and... You know, so this actually goes back to a lot of history with regards to racism, especially in Yankeedom. Yeah. You know, Connecticut, all of those other places. Uh, World War II was a big issue. Okay. Reason why is because during World War II, we needed to start doing the ships and the building and the structures. And we had an awful lot of industrial workers that moved into the area. Right. Okay. Well, you start looking at that situation. And when they were importing the workers, they created two types of housing. Okay, they, re- ah. they created one type of housing that was specific for the white workers that they wanted to retain in Connecticut and in, you know, the Northeast. That makes sense. And there was a different kind of housing for the black workers for that they the wanted to workers. leave, right. you know, after they were done, you know. So it's like you had these two different qualities of housing. Right. And that's just the way, you know, they yeah. did it, you yeah, know, yeah. back World War Two Because well, you had all these people, you know. Well, yeah. it's it's old money there. Uh, well, it, it, it actually money. goes clear back to the abolitionist movement in the Civil War. Right. Okay, there were an awful lot of abolitionists that were saying, hey, we need to get rid of slavery. We need to get rid of slavery. Okay, but, but we don't thing, want them here. We don't want them in our backyard. Right. You know, it was the NIMBY racism. You know, we don't want slavery in America, but we don't want them here. Right. You know, well, the thing is, is after they were done and nobody wanted them down south a lot of them were moving to these other places because they now had freedom of movement and they were trying to move to where the work was right except where the work was the people didn't actually want them in their community so you ended up with you know segregated communities in the north right like detroit you know right that's a good example yeah you know these were areas where they went to find work and they found work but, but you can't live here. You, you can't live in the white community. You can't live in the established white communities. That's crazy. Okay, so that was the problem with the abolition movement post-World War II, you know, where you were dealing with Reconstructionism in the South and, you know, everything that moved down that started creating the Jim Crow laws. You were still dealing right. with a significant amount of segregation because of the NIMBY racism that was happening in the Union areas. Right. And so that was one of the problems that you were dealing with then thing is is that didn't stop 
you know, with the end of the Civil War. It continued through World War One. It continued through right. World War Two. The creation of these policies where, depending on the color of skin, you got a particular kind of housing. Right. Because they didn't want you to stick and around after the work was done. that? Who knows? Oh, well, the yeah. Democrats sure get a lot of blame for it. Well, the Democrats get a whole lot of blame for it. And the thing is, is there probably was a certain amount of Democrats that were associated with it. I you mean, go back to, you know, the 1994 crime bill with Joe Biden. Yeah, thank you. You know, Joe Biden, he created the 1994 crime bill, which disproportionately affects over-policed communities. Of minority Of individuals. minority individuals. Yes. Like the ghettos in New York, yes. which you can blame de Blasio and Bloomberg and all the rest of them for, for their stop and frisk stuff. Well, right. You know, these were... And well, they had the Rockefeller laws, too, back in the day. Yeah. For the drugs. Yeah. Which were like, they were like handing out dime pieces like they were like they were Halloween candy. Uh-huh. For drugs. Yeah. Ten years in federal, or not in federal, but ten years in like Attica and shit. Yeah. For drugs. Yeah. You know, and again, and, and how easy is it to plant drugs on a poor kid? Exactly. You know, exactly. And have that poor kid get decent representation in exactly. the adversarial system. Exactly. Well, it's like Biggie said, man. You either got a wicked jump shot, or you slang in the crack rock. You right. Know? Notorious B.I.G. That was one of his lines from one of his songs back in the East day. Coast versus West Coast. And he's yeah. not wrong. You know yeah. what I mean? Because you well, you got to think about it too. Like in these bigger cities, though, you know, like with the drugs and stuff. Yeah. These kids be making money. Yeah, they got until they got caught. Right, they be get, they got the Jordans on. Yeah, you know, back in the '90s with the big cell phones. Mm -hmm. You know, that's I mean, it's it was part of life. Well, it's in the '90s. You know, if yeah. if you had a pager, you were one of two things: a sex worker or a drug dealer. Right, you or know. you were just fucking cool. <laughs> or you were I had a pager cool. for a week one time, and I was just <laughs> fucking cool. <laughs> right, but but the thing is. It was actually my buddies from his work. Yeah. So it was going off all the time. So I looked cool, but it was really his work page. And he's like, yeah, you can borrow it, dude. But it's like you talk, you know, you talk to the white kids from the same era, you know? Yeah. They were smoking as much dope. Of course. You know, snorting as much cocaine. They were, everybody was you doing it. Yeah, everybody shit. was doing it. But who was going to prison? Right. Exactly. You know? You're right. You're not wrong. Well, see, here's the thing, though, too, is like, and you just brought it up, is you brought up old Sleepy Joe. Like, yeah, I don't give a shit about what side you're on. That dude's a fucking hack for one. Well, he, he's been a hack for 47 years. Yes, he's just a hack. Like yeah. I said, if you knew how to fix anything, why didn't you tell the guy that was right above you for eight years? Well, the thing is, is he took, uh, what, four years getting the crime bill passed. Right, in the 90s. In the 90s. Right. You know, and on top of that, he likes to claim authorship of uh, the Patriot Act. You know, his 1992 counterterrorism bill. What, after the first World Trade Center bomb? Uh, yeah, something like that. But he created the 1992 uh, counterterrorism bill, okay. which was basically a precursor to so the, the Patriot, Patriot Act. Act. Yeah, yeah. You know, so it's like he's been trying to get these unconstitutional searches and laws, you know, for through Congress. Years. 1992, you know, 50 years. Well, for, thir you know, 28 30. There, but, yeah. yeah but but thing, he's been in office. He's for. been in office yeah. for that long. Yeah. Oh, dude, you know? he's a hack. And he's been working on trying to pass these laws that are constitutional violations, and he's been getting away with it because after, after the Civil War, our legislators allowed the Jim Crow laws to occur. Yeah. Okay, these were human rights violations. Okay, they were violations of the Constitution because all men were created equal, and you should not be making correct. a law based on race, religion, cre right? Correct. You know, you shouldn't. 
No, not at all. Yet, post-Civil War, the entire South had all of these Jim Crow laws, which basically made it a felony to be living while black. Yeah, exactly. You know, which, of course, stuck them in penal institutions and then rented out as slave labor by the state. Right. But, well, you, you know that was designed. Yeah, it was designed. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, that's, a, that's a, just an obvious design. Yeah. It's a flawed design. Oh, it's a huge flaw. Obviously. But it was designed, and they did it as an underhanded way. Think about well, it. Well, they, they did it to repackage it, and they made exactly. it acceptable to the abolitionists because it was, you know, for crimes committed against society. Exactly. So it's okay, okay then. Yeah, it's well, okay. And, and, you know, yeah. the South, like, you know, well, it's like one thing, like, I've, I've gotten in a few debates with people on Facebook, <laughs> if you want to call them debates. Debates, yeah. Well, you know, it's like so this this 22-year-old kid says to me one time, he says, well, black people can't be racist. And I said, have you ever been to the South? He goes, well, yeah, my family's from there. I said, but have you ever been? He's like, well, no. And I was like, go to Mississippi and then and just hang out with a bunch of old black people? Oh, yeah. And tell me they're not racist. I understand why they are. Well, yeah. You just nailed it. You just touched on it. Like, I would be, too. I, I would be extremely upset if I had to deal with that degree that of comfort, you know. You know, for that many years. Well, but you get into institutional trauma. You get into historical racial trauma. Yeah. Okay. Now, this is the stuff your mother and dad learned from their parents who learned it from their parents who learned yep. it from their parents. Yep, you're okay, right. Okay, literally you have four, five, six generations of it being beat into people that you behave a specific, specific way, way yep. or you get dead. Yeah. You know, that's intergenerational trauma. You're right. Yeah, and it, it gets taught. So literally you... You're right. You know. You're right. See, trauma seems to be a, a very common thing today, kind of, with what we've been talking. Well, it, it's an awareness of what's going on, you know, yeah. in life today. You, you know, you start paying attention to what happens, where the trauma comes from. Yeah. But trauma creates a lens for everything we see in life, everything we do. You're right. You know, we look it's at like it and go. It's like that dog that bit me, now I hate right, dogs. Right, Dog bit you, you hate dogs. Yeah. You know. Uh, Even though I love dogs, but, you know. Well, yeah. Uh, you know. For example. There was that one girl who divorced you after giving you an STD. And uh, you're going like, uh, you know. <laughs> yeah, but, but, I get what you're you saying. Know. But the thing is, your dad had trauma. Right, and pass okay. it to you. I have a grandfather mm -hmm. who was a World War II veteran. Me too. He came back with TBI. Wow. He beat my dad. Wow. Because of, yeah, yeah, of the brain injury? Right, because of the brain injury. Yeah. You know, there, there were moments of indeterminate rage. He would act out and then forget he had done it. Uh-huh. You know, but the thing is, you start looking at that intergenerational trauma as trauma is transferred from one generation to the next. You're right. You learn behaviors created... By someone else. By someone five generations ago. Yeah. And then you want to say, well, I'm just the way I am. Well, <laughs> Right. There's reasons you're the way you are, and they weren't good reasons in the first place. You're right. Yeah, so it's one of those things where it's almost a duty in our generation to understand that generational trauma so we don't pass it on to our kids. You're right. And that goes back to one of the situations where right now, you know, 19 years of war in Afghanistan. Yeah, it's insane. Okay. I was in Afghanistan in 2002. Okay. 18 years ago. 18 years ago. Okay, right now, I have a 
21-year-old, is he 21? Yeah, 21-year-old son who just completed his four years of service in the United States Air Force. He just got back from Korea. Okay, I have a daughter who is, she just turned 20. Okay, this is her third, two and a half, two and a half years with the United States Army. Okay. And literally, I have kids who could have been tasked with walking the exact same ground I walked 20 years ago. Yeah, when you were there. Or 18 years ago. I mean, so we're looking at generational issues here. What is that like? Wow. That's something to wrap your head around. Wrapping your head around the fact that you Well, it'd be like if, if you had fought in Vietnam and then, you know, 20 years later, your kid's in Vietnam. Right. Like, you know what I mean? But well, it's you, Afghanistan. You, you, yeah, it's Afghanistan. But, you know what I mean? You like, know, what? 20 years later, you know, you're watching your kid get shot at. At the same place you did. By the children of the people who shot, shot at, at you. you. Right, in the same place. In the same place. <laughs> That's insane. That's where we're at, though, now. Wow. We have literally passed, you know, not just what I teach my kids because of my trauma associated with that tour of duty. Yeah, but now they're reliving it exactly. Right, right. I get it. Yeah. yeah. That's so insane. we're we're training this warrior mentality. This you know constant conflict, reinforcing trauma through generations. Through constant conflict. By the way, we do you know yeah. World War Two, Korea, Vietnam, Bosnia Herzegovina. Yeah. Uh, Nicaragua, what we're doing down there. Yep. Afghanistan. And who's getting Iraq. rich? Who's getting rich? Yeah. It ain't, us, it, 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 it ain't us out bleeding on the battlefield. No, God, no. no. That's terrible what they do to you guys. Yeah. Seriously, like, it's just, well, you know, and some of the things, like, there's been some VA reforms. Yeah. And, you know, Trump's been big on that. That's one of the things, like, I, that I've liked about him, you know, that really got me on board was he's addressed some of these issues. Well, he has. You know, he's at least, and, and you know, he's just, he can only do so much. We right. know that. He's got limited powers. Yeah. But at least the dude's willing to be like, hey, we need to go to bat for this. You know, we need yeah. to do something here. I'm going to executive order this. Like, he did. he's done stuff for the VA hospitals and the, and the veterans. He has. Yeah. In, uh, you know. Some Not to get them, all pro-Trump, but I mean. Yeah, but, and I understand where you're coming from, because yeah. there's an awful lot of people who see that. Who go, okay, well, Trump's done this. Yeah. Well, thing is, is we got Dirk Kempthorne who's running the local VA. He's running the regional VA here in Boise. Yeah. It's a good one. Over we got on a Fort couple, Street. Yeah, over on Fort Street. Yeah. We got a couple other programs here that are very big that help veterans here in the local area. Wyakin Warriors out of Boise State University is a post-9-11 cool. GI Bill program that helps bring people in, get them through college on the 9-11 GI Bill, and nice. then get them jobs and integrate. So we have a real strong veteran community community safety network isn't boise such a cool place to live it it really is that's the the amount of things another facet of the city yes i mean boise is truly this multicultural always welcoming environment regardless of your history regardless of your background you can come here and there will be somebody who wants to help you succeed yes 
That's okay. really well put. And and that's Boise. That's yeah. just the community. Yeah, we got a couple sour apples around here. But it, it as a general rule, you know, Boise wants to help you succeed. They want to see you succeed. They do. They want to see you create a bigger, better community. They which do. is why you see the refugees succeeding. That's why you see all of these amazing things the happening. The veterans and the veterans, inmates. the multicultural, the inmate programs that we got. Yep. Uh, we got programs that assist with mental health, uh, There's trauma a lot healing. Of that, yeah. um, one of my favorites, of course, Idaho Veterans Network. Uh, nice. They do an awful lot of work. They started out as a veterans court program, you know, so people could sit down and do sort of a group therapy roundtable like AA, oh, okay. you know, but, but they, for veterans. For veterans. Right. You know, so they could literally talk down, come sit down. You know, and talk about their experiences with people who could relate because right. of different, you know. Well, because so, being in a war, man. Yeah. I mean, what kind of trauma does that inflict on a person? Well, it depends, you Good know. night. Because you, you got so many different ways of dealing with it and so many different ways of approaching it. Yeah. You know, and it's like I actually joined the service late, so one of the things I had going for me was a certain amount of uh, resiliency. Yeah, so it's how resilient are you in dealing with trauma? Are you able to cope with it? Do you have... Uh, the coping mechanisms, yeah, that's well, a big uh, deal. And it's interesting because I actually categorize that into two different things. You got coping skills. Right. And you got coping mechanisms. Okay. Okay, your coping mechanisms, that's your alcohol and drugs. Right. Right? Because that's what you're using to escape. Right. Okay, your coping skills are the things that actually teach you to deal with stress right in a positive way positive yeah yeah, yeah. okay so that's how i got you, into weight training right did you <laughs> learn positive coping skills or did you learn the negative coping mechanisms mechanisms right okay you know which way did you deal with your trauma which way did you deal with your stress right yeah so you start looking at that and a lot of those programs were helped to rebuild resiliency in people who had lost it who had right. started resorting to the coping to mechanisms. The mechanisms yeah yeah that's and good. it was to that's bring great. them back you know back into culture back into society in a way that was constructive so that they could actually cope with the people around them and be able to relate again to right. you know their civilian and communicate and communicate that's because that's important oh it is like it's in, extremely in important. any relationship and th this is my opinion in any relationship communication is number one Absolutely. In any relationship. It doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter if it's your freaking butcher <laughs> or your barber. You know what I mean? Communicate. Well, because, you know, if you don't communicate with what kind of meat you want, you ain't going to know. If you don't communicate how you want your haircut. But you get what hey, I'm saying. Hey, I want a T-bone, man. Come on. Right. What, what am I doing with filet mignon? I'm a yeah. T-bone, man. You know? Right. But communication yeah. is huge. It is. Huge. And the thing is, is a lot of the combat trauma, a lot of things that you see and hear and experience in those environments you know, they're the same things the war refugees deal with, you know, just in a different yeah. context. Yeah, yeah. You know, because... Well, it's different experiences in, in the midst of the same conflict. Right. Right? I exactly. Mean, yeah. Because, yeah. I mean, there's a soldier's perspective yeah. versus, like, the citizens of the place where the conflict is occurring. Right. Because I can probably guarantee you that a lot of the people that have fled mm -hmm. were terrified. Probably. So Let's go ahead and talk about an issue with the Boise Chamber of Commerce. Sure. Okay, the Boise Chamber of Commerce has been trying to get the F-35 stationed out here at Gowan Field. The one's at Gowan, yeah. Is a National Guard Reserve capability 
or Air National Guard Reserve capability. And the Chamber of Commerce thinks that, one, that's going to bring more money in here because we're going to be doing the upgrades and miscellaneous other things. Some more federal money. Some more federal money okay. for the facilities. Okay. Now, truth is, is that's a lie. Reason why is because we don't have the skill set here for the money to actually stay here. They're going to bring in all the labor. The labor they bring in is going to do it, and then the labor is going to take all their money so back home with they'll them. they'll outsource it. They'll get they'll paid and go They'll outsource it. They'll home. get paid and go home. What about Mountain Home? Uh, well, Mountain Home isn't related to what's going on with Gowan Field is the National Guard facility. Got it. Okay. Okay. So we're doing all of these upgrades, and we're going to have to work outsource the federal monies. You know, it'll get spent here for like about six months while they're doing the upgrades, but then it's gone. As soon as that's done, the money's gone. It's done. Meanwhile, about 200 houses that are within the noise zone that will have to be demolished because you can't live in them right. with the noise that will be affecting the area with the expansion. So really, it'll hurt. It'll hurt. Now, the interesting thing is, is when you start taking a look at the social aspect of what's going on. Reason why is because the F-35 has been used in most of the countries where our refugees have come from. Really? So when you start getting these low-flying, loud jets taking off, flying over the homes oh, no. of people who just escaped who these just countries. Came from that, yeah. Yes. And now you got jets flying and um, Jimmy Halliburton actually addressed this while he was talking at one of the impact mm-hmm. zones. Is he was taking he likes to do the bicycle project. So every year he goes out and he gifts to underprivileged kids oh okay yeah yeah yeah. you know and is that through boise bicycle project yeah it's through boise bicycle project he's been running that nonprofit for like 10 15 years now you know he has been doing that that long hasn't he but one of the things he does is the volunteers that go in and repair and fix all of the bicycles a lot of those bicycles turn around they get donated to underprivileged kids nice and he remembers going out to one of these events where he was presenting you know some bikes to a family Uh the family happened to be refugees oh okay and it just happened to be one of those times when the F-16s were doing a low flyover. Oh, no. And the family panicked. Right, I get and, it. And then he's trying to figure out what's going on. And then after the jets are gone, Dad comes out and explains exactly what the situation was, you know, and why they have an instinctive reaction every time they hear the jets. Well, they're terrified, yeah. They're, yeah, they're ter- it, it's, a, it's an instinctive reaction because the thing you want to do is you want to get shelter. You want to get under something. something. Yes. So that you don't get hit by the overblast, you don't get hit by debris or, you know. Shot or, or you know, whatever. whatever. Yeah. You know, but the thing is, is the F-35s are the ones that have been flying those night missions in Afghanistan and Iraq. Wow. So here you are, night mission. Yeah, totally. Running So here you are, 3,000 miles away from home, in your new home. In your new home. And, and you, you get that same that. sound doing oh, a, you know, and it's like. Uh, come on guys this is a refugee why would you want you know i understand you think money's coming in we know better right you know because that money's only temporary so then this it's just a political angle for them to look good yeah that's what i'm hearing well but but the other thing is is you're looking at two different views of it one is is you have a refugee population here that has one view of that right okay the other thing you have here is a strong veteran population Right. That's freedom noise, man. Right. Yeah, so you got two completely different perspectives. Yeah. Living within the same community, two totally different reactions to the exact, to the exact same, same stimulus. Stimulus, yes. You know. That is so crazy. And you go, you know, but even within the context of a veteran, that's a combat sound. Correct, right. You know. 
that's a sound from when you were over there. Right. Regardless of what sound it is in the context. It's combat, no matter what. Yeah. To both sides, it's still combat. Yeah. Yeah. You know, whether you count on it as a sense of security, because, but the thing is, is it still sparks the same. Trauma. Trauma, you know. Yeah. It may sound good initially, but the thing is, is it's taking you back to the place you left. Wow, that's such a mind fuck. <laughs> it really is. Right? Like, well, to think about it, like, I, you know, obviously I don't think about that. Well, no, because <laughs> you've never experienced You've yeah. never needed to think I've about never, it. I've never, exactly. But to now to hear someone, like, say that out loud and to hear it, it's just like, holy shit. Well, like, and it's just, it's just crazy. Like, you know what I mean? But, but to think, it's like I said, like, Boise's cool. Because, yeah. like, we have... Like, we, we have it all. Yeah, you know, we have the diversity. Everything. It's great. You know, you want to go out and see the air show out there? You know, it, it's great. Yeah, it is. You know, they have a good air show out there. Yeah, they really do. You know, it's and really as long cool. as it's announced, everything's cool. But if you got an F-35 based out of here and it takes off 8 o'clock every morning... Yeah, that's going to cause problems. You know, it's, it's not like once every six months when they bring out the military air show and you get a couple of Russian jets out there flying aerodynamics with, you know, a couple yeah. of U.S. You know... It's, it just it's, sounds to me like the different. Chamber of Commerce here is somebody had a cockamamie idea, you know. Well, it, it made sense on the small scale of things. Right, but... Yeah, you know, because it represented something. And I, I will admit, here's the thing. The F-16 mission is not a real big mission right now. Okay. So our National Guard airmen out there that are flying the F-16 jets don't get a lot of deployment time. Right. The F-35s fly a lot. All the time, yeah. Okay, so basically what that is is the commander of the F-16 squadron out there wants to replace the F-16s with F-35s oh, they want to get some so action. that they can get action and send their people overseas for, you know, their little three-month rotation, you know, to fly low and slow over foreign nationals. Okay. Okay, so that increases their clout as combat commanders so by being able to get their— More bureaucracy. Uh, it's more bureaucracy, but it's bullets on, yeah. you know, uh, awards and recommendations. Yeah, I get it. Yeah. Because they're actually picked up to go and do the mission. Right. So it's not like they've sold it to the Chamber of Commerce as a money thing. thing is, is it's the commander out there saying, you know, we we need combat time in order for me to get that little extra pin that's going to make me competitive for the next promotion. Exactly. Right. I get it. It's yeah. just it's it's self serving. It is. It's it so self serving. And it's it's a little short sighted. But it's like one of the other things. Um I got a friend, Dan McKnight. Dan McKnight runs Bring Our Troops Home US. Okay. And this is a nonprofit. He's expanded it nationally and his primary mission, of course, is to end the war in Afghanistan and end the war in Iraq. Okay. And he's been working all across the nation. But I remember him telling me a story about when he went to Washington DC. Because one of the things he was trying to promote was defend the guard. Now, the idea behind defend the guard was every state created individual legislation that would not allow the governor to release National Guard troops in support of federal operations short of a formal declaration of war by the U.S. Congress. Wow. Okay. So, President Trump calls up Brad Little and says, hey, Brad, I need troops in Afghanistan. Yeah. Brad goes, cool. They're on their way. 
Okay, if we pass that legislation, Governor, er, President Trump comes, calls up Brad Little, and Brad goes, yeah, uh, can't do it till you declare war, sir. Uh, right. Not happening. Okay, well, the thing is, is while Dan was in Washington, D.C., trying to promote this bill and talk with a number of individuals, he was actually approached by a National Guard commander, a general level, who's essentially a lobbyist back in Washington, uh, D.C. I know where That's his going. job. And this general lobbyist was going around to everybody Dan talked to and said, if you pass this, we're going to lose federal funding. It, it always comes back to that federal funding. Federal funding. It always comes back to the federal funding. But that's what it was. You know, you turn around and look at the general and you say, sir, you got kids, right? Oh, you got kids in the service? You ready to send your kids back over to Afghanistan and Iraq to get shot at by enemies? Right. You, you know that's exactly what it is you're doing at this point, right? That That's what you're lobbying for by making sure that this legislation we want passed fails. Right. And, you know, it's like, yeah, yeah, I understand that. And, and you make perfect sense. Um, wow. By the way, I'm still going to lobby to make sure this bill fails. Right. Because it's about the money. It's all about the money. They don't give a shit about people. Well, even to the degree that they don't give a shit about their own kids. Right. You know. Well, you know they don't already. Well, you know, they're, they're willing to put the kids on the chopping block for, you know, federal dollars. Well, if it'll keep them in office and it'll yeah. keep them getting paychecks, these big-ass yeah. paychecks. Hey, I got a question for you since you brought up the word lobbyist. I just got a question <laughs> for you. Okay. And it's not really related to lobbyists, but it just popped into my head. What do you think about these scumbag senators and congresspeople who, I mean, they make, what, 174K a year? Is that 128 to 174, depending. Like yeah, okay, somewhere depending in that zone. Depending on how long they've been there. They're, they're six figures. You know, yeah. it's six figures. What do you think about some of these these people, these men and women that are, you know, multimillionaires? Like Jim Rush. Or, right, or Nancy Pelosi. Or Nancy or Pelosi, yeah. You know, Hunter just got busted, right? Did you hear about that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, where has he been? Hmm. Right? He, he, he's he been uh, maintaining Russia? favors for daddy in Russia. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Didn't he get busted for human trafficking? Yeah, that's what they're tying it yeah. to. He got three they, and a half they, mil off of, uh, I think it was. Selling kids. Yeah, well, women. Women, well. Yeah. They weren't kids. It was human trafficking, not child trafficking. But I mean, you know, it's uh, a, it's a it's a that's difference. over there, and it's a very subtle difference. Yeah, exactly. And that's whether, just how they know, report it. I'm just saying. Yeah, how it was that, that's here. how they report it. But the thing is, yeah. you know, ultimately, most of these were probably minors. Probably minors. By yeah. You're US probably standards. right. You're probably right. I, yeah, but, I'm not, I'm you not know, arguing still, that part. Still, of it. I'm just saying. Yeah. You know. He got busted for human trafficking. Yeah. And he's being tied to it, and a lot of it's because of his associations that he got via daddy. Yeah. Well, I yeah. mean, dude, we watched a thing where he went to China five times yep. and Hunter Biden did five times in one thing. But I mean, that's a whole nother ballgame. But so what do you think about these politicians, though, that are mul- like, you know, they're multimillionaires? You know, there's no way in hell they made that. I mean, and you know about the insider trading that they were oh, doing yeah. and all, yeah. you know, the stuff Martha Stewart went to prison for. Right. Right. But it was cool if Pelosi did it. Or what was the one whose lady, the one lady, uh, Feinstein? Oh, yeah. Her husband's a con- one of the general contractor guys in the, the whole military-industrial complex thing. Oh, yeah. She's a multimillionaire. Well, I mean, it go- it, that sort of shenanigans goes clear back to uh, Johnson. Lyndon Johnson? Lyndon Johnson. In Vietnam, yeah. Vietnam. Kennedy, yeah. You know, Lyndon Johnson and Kennedy's Vietnam. Reason why, and the DuPonts. 
Uh, yeah, you know, oh, the DuPonts yeah. were big in the that DuPonts, too. Yeah, yeah, the Kennedys. Well, all that money it goes was tied back in. Even further. Well, yeah, I mean, you can take it clear back to Andrew Jackson, and the Fed, and you know, well, the we can take of, it back to the French know, Revolution. True, we yeah. can. We can take it back to the French Revolution, you know, because yeah. the French Revolution was funded on both sides by the Rothschilds. The Rothschilds, you know, who've been and, doing it ever since. Yeah, and it just continues to propagate that way. But wow, you just gained like eight million cool points in my cool book because you knew that. Yeah, but the thing. That problem continues to be, and it's because we've never addressed the situation legally within the United States, within our government, because once you reach there, it's basically been blessed off on. It's saying, yeah, okay, you know. We know. We know. But, you know, as long as you don't abuse it. Right. Which it's not abuse in the first place of power. Yeah. Right. Exactly. You know, um, <laughs> but as long as you don't abuse it to excess to where you create a situation that destabilizes the nation, eh, we'll let it slide. Right. You know, because like LBJ, you know, Lady Bird Johnson was the one who actually owned the shares in the military industrial complex that was getting rich off of continuing the war in Vietnam. Vietnam yeah. You know, so it was the family was still continuing to profit off of it, even yep. though Lyndon, you know, wasn't directly involved. Right. You know, so his estate got richer, even though it wasn't directly tied to him. But it continues to be the same problem. Feinstein is one of those. Pelosi, one of those. Jesus. A number of these individuals Schumer. that continue. Schumer. You know, they continue. And as long as it's continued to be blessed off on, you know, and yeah. acceptable at a number of those levels, it continues to happen. You know, so that's one of the interesting situations, particularly as we start digging deeper and deeper into what's going on with Clintons and the Epstein issue and who knew what, when and why. Well, the whole Russian collusion. Well, the whole Russian collusion. It was them. It was. Well, you step back one reason why is because we were talking about the uranium one deal yep you oh, know yeah. and selling so uranium based from so blm hillary land sold the uranium to the russians who then in turn sold it to the iranians they i think it was something like 25 percent of our stock she sold off yeah yeah you know and that was illegal yet somehow it still managed to illegal happen under hillary fuck. as secretary of state yes sir you know so yeah. it's it's one of those things where exactly are we with justice in regards to our politics? You know, when are we going to hold our politicians responsible for the things they do? Right. You know, and as long as the duopoly maintains control, you'll never be able to make that happen. I agree with you on that. You know, See, that's what I'm saying. Like, yeah. When people mistake me for being a right-wing conservative, because I'm not. Because they're just as fucking guilty as uh, in, in, exactly. the ones over here. You know, the difference is, is... You know, the Republicans dress it up in nationalism and patriotism, and the Democrats dress it up in, you know, feel good, you know, uh, social safety nets. Right. You know, they're still both selling out everybody right. to the exact same people. Right. And you know, so these, until you step back in politicians. Yeah, it's the career politicians. Jim Rish, 50 years. Yeah. I mean, Nancy how long Pelosi, were the 57. In Clint, well, Clintons, you had collectively. Uh, I mean, he was governor of Arkansas. Governor of Arkansas, first lady of Arkansas in the eighties. Yeah, <laughs> she's got this. Get yes. on it. Yeah, you know, but uh, absolutely, you know, 
And depending on how far you take that back, you know, there are an awful lot of people, the Bill Clinton crime establishment. Oh, Jesus. Because Arkansas was one of those locations the where... The cocaine. The cocaine. Yeah. That was uh, CIA insertion point for cocaine, yep. supposedly. Yes, it was. That was the whole you know, American Made movie. That yeah. Tom Cruise movie. Yeah. You know, you're yeah. flying it in. Arkansas is your landing point from there. The state yeah. troopers got it taken care of. Yep. Well, his brother went to prison in Arkansas, didn't he? Roger, uh, Roger Clinton. Uh, wouldn't surprise he me. He did. Yeah. He went to prison for cocaine. <laughs> He's one of the few that actually got caught in the family. Something. <laughs> I don't know. Well, that just makes me wonder, like, how the fuck did he not get him off? If your brother's governor and you go to prison for moving, for trafficking right. cocaine, what'd you screw up? Yeah, it's like, <laughs> Ro look, Roger, I'm afraid the definition of the word is is not real good right now i'm afraid i'm not gonna be able to get you out of this one their brother's due time you know like just, just, just take one for the family bro. just take one for the team their champ. yeah, yeah. Like, you know what i mean like, yeah <laughs> absolutely you know this is horrible like how the fuck i just i seriously want to know how how he went to prison it'd be an it's an interesting story well uh, it, was it he a plant like you know like my my brain starts going like wait you're because you, you just nailed it your brother's the governor, and you went to prison, in the state that your brother's your brother's the governor of right, like you know at least it wasn't California like you know <laughs> like that well you know they they got it's him like, good uh, Roger no old Arnold oh yeah Arnold well because they loved him in California yeah. Oh, the people here, they love me here in California, you know, like the the whole thing. But they got him good with that whole, he was uh, banging the housekeeper and had a baby with her. Yeah. I don't know about all that. Well. He pissed somebody off, I think. And they, you know, because you know how they get these people He out. was married to a Kennedy. Exactly. That's, you know, how are you married to a Kennedy and you still get in trouble politically? Thank you. Because Ted Kennedy killed a woman. And, you know, still spend the next 60 years in office. In office. Yeah. Drunk driving killed a woman. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, there's a lot of this going on. Yeah. And matter of fact, me talking about this issue with you right now. <laughs> well, it's Idaho, so chances are I'm going to be able to get away with it. But, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, but if I were to have said these same things in a political venue in Southern California or Connecticut or Massachusetts, oh, no, yeah, you'd be, uh, you know, uh, I'd be pushing up daisies tomorrow. More than likely. Yeah. Yeah. Seriously. Uh, but that's it, real. <laughs> These dude, these these that old money, these old money. Oh, families, they don't play games. They don't play games. No, no they will they fucking don't. kill you. Yeah, and they don't care. No, they don't. You know why? Because you're not the first. No, you, you know what I'm saying. And I wouldn't be the last either. Exactly. You know, it, that's that's years. the way they do business. You yeah, know? It, it's um, like you ever seen that that uh, Netflix show Ozark? No, no, I haven't. Oh, you should watch it. It's so good. Like, remember Ozark? Yes. Oh, it's so good, dude. It's it's exactly this. Right. What we're talking about. What did you find? So believe it or not, combined only thirty six. Right. That's a lot. But I and I, I said combined too because so because because he was governor and Bill then he was was well he was attorney general of Arkansas starting before governor seventy seven seventy seven to seventy nine. Well, attorney okay, attorney That's general's right, appointment. Attorneys. No. That That's a state-level elected office. If you're talking in, in, actually in office, it was 1979. Okay. So take it back two years. So 34 years. 
Now, the same can be said for Hillary, just because, like, I didn't count her, like, the, count, the first lady. No, not at all. That was eight but years. Right. United States Senator starting for eight years. And then appointee as Secretary of State for four years. Yeah. And right. So she's a senator for eight years and Secretary of State for four? Yeah. Right? Well, you know, you want to hear one of the crazy. I, I gotta I gotta throw one in here while you're okay. Here. So you know John F. Kennedy Jr. Yeah, was gonna be running for that seat that yeah. she got in New York, and then and he then he crashed his plane somehow. Yeah, miraculously. Well, here's the deal. I just read a deal on this. I've this is something I've actually known for a long, long, long time. Uh, they found a bomb on his plane, supposedly. Okay. Right. He never got him and Carolyn never got on the plane. Right. And then they some they they got the plane up remotely, right? And detonated it, right? Remotely. Well, that also allowed them to disappear quietly right. and get out of the well, limelight, which helped them in a number of other ways. Supposedly, 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 and this is just one of the. It, here's where this is a conspiracy theory because yeah. we don't. Ha I don't have proof. It's not a theory, conspiracy theory if you have proof, right? But here's this is theory, complete theory. Supposedly, he's going to be revealed next month. Huh. Interesting. Up, as still being alive. I still, yeah. I, th I thought he was alive the whole time. Yeah. Personally. But that's just me. Just because of what well, he said. Well, I, I mean, a lot of those situations, you know, something like that doesn't stay quiet. You know, uh, if you know somebody's been screwing with your plane, you, 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 you. Right. Well, supposedly the military, it was they made a military op out of it because of who he is. Right. And they took footage and sent it to the press. Right. Of everything. Yeah. So, well, they were aware enough of what's going on that they needed to make sure that he was publicly acknowledged as dead, dead in yep. order for him to successfully well, disappear. So supposedly, supposedly, and again, this is like it kind of this is some rabbit hole shit. Yeah. Supposedly it was Hillary Clinton that was behind it. Uh, but that's one of those things. Who do you trust is the, you know, better managed crime family? You know, do you trust the hillbilly crime family from Arkansas, or do you trust right. the Kennedys who have been running, you know, the Rockefeller, you know, the Kennedy-Rockefeller right. connection that's been running it since the 1918s? Right. Since you the booze. Since the booze. Moonshine. You know, since the moonshining. See, this I mean, that, that's, that's real, real old yeah. money right there. That's real old money. Well, that's yeah. how they made theirs was moonshining. Yeah, moonshining, and then they invested in a standard oil with Rockefeller, with Rockefeller and, you know, yeah. all the money. And then when they split Jack up, Kennedy. Jack Kennedy, you know, they did the whole thing. They got uh, all of that in place. But the thing is, is if you're going to talk about who's running a better managed crime family, you know, the Clintons or... Oh, the Clintons, by far. Well, I think the Kennedys still got them outclassed. Well, of course. But, oh, yeah, you know, outclassed, of course. But yeah. who's running a better crime family? The fucking Clintons have been doing a great job. Well, they've been doing a great job. But the thing is, is everything they've been doing has been... Close enough to the surface, right? That well, because they got involved in some way far, way further evil shit. Right, they did. They got you know. Yeah. It's like running drugs, even during prohibition. A lot of people were going like, you know, whatever. Okay, prostitution. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, nobody cared. Nobody cared. But you, you know. start getting into like you know human trafficking and yeah. pedophilia, yeah, and the wiener laptop, yeah, and dude, yeah, yeah. but it's. So you're looking at frazzle drip, yeah, but you, you're looking at different kinds of criminal activity that they got themselves connected right. to. I mean, they're all criminals. Yeah, they're they're all criminals. We both, know you know, that. it's just whether or not you find it acceptable. Right. So it's like one of those things. You go ahead and decriminalize. You deschedule the Controlled Substance Act. Yeah. 
you know, an awful lot of the money that they made back 30 years ago, you know, that sort, but they got their money now. Yeah, they've got it. They don't care. A lot of them are ready to see it legalized. That way they can invest in, you know, Other the marijuana stuff. dispensaries now. Dude, you know how much money Colorado made after they legalized? Right. You know, I mean, if you made money selling drugs, you know, back when it was illegal, you know. Think about how much money you can make now with a dispensary. Right. Seriously. With it being legal. And it's legal. Yeah, and it's legal. Yeah. You know, you no longer have to run under the table. You no longer have to pay your runners. Right. You know, the risk is gone now. Oh, you know, totally you lose is. a little bit of market share because people are doing the home grow, but you were they were doing the home grow before anyway. Anyway, yeah. You know. And the ones that are going to be hurt are organizations like Brother Speed and the Hells Angels who have been right. cooking meth for the past 40 years. You know, you deschedule meth and let everybody buy Ritalin off the shelf. Right. Yeah. They got to find some other income source. Uh, yeah, you're right. Yeah. But you go in and you deschedule it. It completely changes the uh, landscape of the cartels. Right. And the criminal organized crime organizations because they got to completely reevaluate and a lot of them are probably in a situation where they can straight up go legit probably you know you take a look at i mean i realize it's fiction but the sopranos right you know tony was running a crime you know outfit until he finally said you know what i got enough money right now i can invest and go legit and never have to worry about being arrested again right you know they're at that situation right now for an awful lot of them that'd be smart yeah, just go ahead. You made yours. Legalize it. You know, invest in it legally now. You're not wrong. Joe, <laughs> this has been awesome. Seriously. Ah. So, uh, tell everybody, uh, when's the election? November? Okay, the election is November 3rd. Okay. Uh, I am running Congressional District 1. That is the western side of the state. Uh, basically the entire panhandle clear on down to about Gem County. Then it does a lot of weird zigzag stuff right through the center of Boise, uh, down Cloverdale. That's all Congressional District 1. I'm running against our uh, Republican incumbent, Russ Fulcher. Uh, our Democrat challenger is Rudy Soto. Okay, okay. but that election is November 3rd. Okay. Uh, we got a couple debates coming up. Uh, Where can people see those? Well, one is the NPR debate. They actually let me in on that one. Nice. Uh, League of Women Voters went and assessed all of the available candidates. So all three of us will be on stage for the NPR debates hosted by the League of Women Voters. And uh, When is that also? We will be recording it on the 5th as to when they of actually October? air it okay. after you know they put all of the answers together. Because they're doing it in a weird format because they can't put us all on stage because of social distancing. Oh, God. You know, so yeah. what will end up happening is I go in, I sit down, they read me the questions, I answer the questions. Um, Are you on a Zoom meeting? Well, they will actually record it in the studio, so it's not a Zoom oh, meeting. Okay. But the... Uh, that was my social distancing. Yeah. Because no, we're socially distancing right now. Yeah, we got, we got the six feet between us. Is there... Yeah, pretty close. We're in a six-foot triangle right now. Right. Uh, <laughs> but they'll bring me in. They'll sit me down or, you know, put me behind the podium or however they want to do the presentation. Uh, the MC will go ahead and read me the questions. I'll have my two minutes or whatever to answer okay. uh, the questions. Then I'm done. I leave. The other candidate comes in, reads the questions, answer the questions, and then they take it all and splice it together so that – yeah, candidate one, two, you know, so the three of us all have 
our answer to the question. And they're trying to record them all on the same day so that if news changes, like it does, like the Amy Barrett issue. Yeah. You know, if by October 5th she's actually elected, we'll actually be able to discuss, you know, how we feel about the Amy Barrett election, you know, whether from a Democrat, Libertarian, or Republican perspective. Yeah, she is. Um, Totally in. She's totally in. It's going to happen, and it's going to happen in uh it's gonna happen before the election yeah oh for sure you know uh well hey a lot of them dudes are gonna eat their words now well but the thing is is an awful lot of the democrat response to amy barrett is purely political exactly and it shows exactly uh, that's what i mean too you know you go back and you take a look at her confirmation hearings for seventh appellate court you know which she was appointed to two years ago and you listen to her answers yeah okay she is a conservative justice Now, as far as a conservative justice, what that means is everything that the Supreme Court has ruled on over the past 233 years of its existence. Yeah. Okay. She will continue to stick to that. Okay. Roe versus Wade. They're all scared to death that she's going to overturn. Right. That's established case law to her. Right. It's no longer debatable. Right. She's just going to uphold it. She's going to uphold it because that is established Supreme Court precedence for, you know, 40 years now. Hey, at least you know what you're going to get. You know, so everything, essentially everything that RBG voted for, yeah, she's going to continue to uphold because RBG established Supreme Court precedent. So they, they established precedent with it. Yeah. And she's a conservative she that's And she's gonna just going to hold it. it. That's cool. You know, that says, you know what? American culture, American society has had this as established legal precedence for 40 years. I'm not going to change it on any of my appellate courts. That's cool. You know, you listen to her and you listen to the way she presents herself about all of those issues. And it's like half the things that they're scared of her doing. She's not going to fuck with. She's, she's not going to screw with. Right. You know, she's pro-Second Amendment. Well, we got Second Amendment pretty well established. You know, that is Supreme Court precedence for, you know, last 20, 30 years. Right. You know, now if they really, really are worried about it, okay, this is where the checks and balances come in. Right. Okay. They need to make sure that they have a Congress that doesn't write any new legislation. Right. That creates a potential contentious issue with any with of the previous the constitutional, constitutional rules yes okay you know and that's the one thing i got a problem with amy barrett right now i have no idea where she stands on the patriot act yeah no doubt huh? i know where kavanaugh stands on it where's his stance what's kavanaugh's stance is he against it no kavanaugh is very much for it he's for it he's for it 100 for it wow he thinks it's reasonable legislation should be adopted, which means any time that the U.S. is in a state of emergency, believe it or not, we still have a state of emergency from 1979. Yeah. Jesus Christ. What's yes. Gonna, what's going to go on So now? if the Patriot Act is upheld as constitutional during a national crisis, which we've had one since 1979, the Iranian crisis. Yeah, yeah. You know, Argo. I, I, yeah. Literally, Jimmy Carter cre- wrote this. If it's upheld as constitutional during a national crisis, which Kavanaugh supports. Wow. And now if the, now Garouche won't, I don't think Roberts will. I don't think Amy Barrett, you know, is going to make a ruling supporting it. And even if she does, 
I don't think there's enough conservatives who would support the Patriot Act in res- in light of other things that have occurred over the last couple of years. Right. But literally, the Patriot Act is one of those deciding things. You know, another transition in the Supreme Court could create enough of a shift where you would have five Supreme Court justices that would be in support of the Patriot Act during a national crisis, of which we have 38 of right now. <laughs> right. Right. And a half. Which essentially suspends the Bill of Rights. Right. Yeah, so if we actually get enough Supreme Court justices, and Amy Barrett isn't enough to shift the balance. Not even close. Yeah. But she's a step because we already got Kavanaugh in there right now. Yeah, so it if they start moving towards that way and they actually get it weighted heavy enough before Patriot Act is shot down enough times in the Supreme Court. Yeah. Right now it's only been in place for about 20 years. It hasn't had that many challenges to it because neither Bush nor Obama created any situations for any challenges to the Patriot Act, although Trump with his AG bar has. Yeah. Okay. Black bagging protesters in Portland and Seattle was a challenge yeah. to the constitutionality of the Patriot Act, provided they actually did a catch. They, their catch and release sort of makes it eh, iffy. But A.G. Barr, uh, especially with regards to Reinhold. Okay, Reinhold was the guy who shot the Patriot prayer guy dead on the Portland streets uh, a little bit ago. Oh, yeah. Did yeah. he get shot? Um. You're talking about the guy that shot the other guy? Right. And uh, the guy that, that did the shooting right. got shot? Pap- Pappas was the guy who was shot. He's the Patriot Prayer guy. Yeah. Okay, Reinhold was the guy who shot him. That's the guy. Yeah, yeah. Okay, A.G. Barr, William Barr, Yeah. Uh, created a law enforcement operation to take down Reinhold. And basically it was extreme prejudice. Oh, wow. 40 law enforcement officers emptied the firearms into him. <laughs> wow. Okay. They weren't messing around. No, they weren't. Now, the interesting thing about William Barr. Hold on one second. Clicking. There we go. Okay. So, one of the interesting things about AG Barr is this is actually his second time run, working as the Adjutant General of the who, United who States. Who was he under first time? Was it Bush Sr.? He was uh, actually, a, no, it was Bush Sr. Bush Sr., okay. Okay, reason why is because Janet Reno took over for him. She took over for Clinton, right? Yeah, she was under Clinton. Yeah. So Bush Sr., A.G. Barr. Now, the interesting thing about A.G. Barr is what he ordered for Reinhold was the extreme prejudice. Okay was exactly the same thing he did previously for Randy Weaver at Ruby Ridge. Yeah, you told me about that and something. I I watched something about Ruby Ridge. What was his deal with Ruby Ridge? When was that? I forget. Uh, okay, like, well, that, uh, okay, so that happened, I think it was 92, 93. That was here in Idaho, too. Yeah, that was here in Idaho, yeah. which is why it's of particular interest to Idaho and why anyone from Idaho would support anyone who reappointed A.G. Barr right. uh, really needs to take a serious look at themselves, especially when it comes to when they co- they'll they take my gun from my cold, dead hands. Yeah. Well, that's exactly what the ATF and the FBI under William Barr tried to do to Randy Weaver. Right. I mean, 
literally supporting that is the ultimate in bootlicking. What was that deal, though? What was his thing? Uh, Randy Weaver was a separatist. Yeah, Did he, he hold somebody hostage or something? Well, no, he didn't. Okay. Yeah, the whole scenario, and now there's I some people who said that, that he like held 12. some of his family hostage. 1992. Okay, okay so A.G. Barr, he ordered the FBI and ATF operation. Now, what happened with Randy Weaver was Randy Weaver was approached by somebody from the ATF who was an undercover agent wow. okay. and asked to modify. Uh, I don't know whether it was a shotgun or a rifle. Oh, modify time. an assault weapon. Well, just modify a weapon. Or just a weapon, period. Just okay. a weapon, period. Asked okay. him to go in and modify it, and Randy modified it for him. Okay. Came in. He, after doing the modification, he handed it back to the ATF agent. The ATF agent went, filed, and Randy never showed up to court. Wow. Three times. Three times, right? Yeah. Well, the victim didn't know he was supposed to show up. Yeah, so he didn't know when he was supposed yeah, to show up because he was given all of this different information as to when he was supposed to show up to court. Got it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, he didn't show up to court on the day where it was actually held because he didn't know which day it was. So the ATF and the FBI went out and cordoned off his area and put him under persistent surveillance. And in the process, they actually shot his wife in the face while she was carrying her child and killed his son. What the fuck? And this was done under William Barr's Department of Justice. So he was running the DOJ? Yes. So he wasn't the AG then? Well, the AG has a it has management of the Department oh, of I Justice. Oh, I see. Yeah, I apologize. You know, okay. I mean, yeah, it's yeah. it's like. Yeah, I got you. So he's basically the an head FBI of the DOJ. shot the dog. William Barr was responsible for shooting a dog. So how's William Barr responsible though? Uh, he was the one who authorized the operation under the so, Department but, of Justice. But does he run the FBI? It was the FBI that shot these people, correct? Uh, he, uh, is it, comp- it was a joint operation. You had right. U.S. Marshal. But who shot? FBI. Who shot it was who? an FBI sniper who so I the believe FBI actually guy shot. shot. It was the FBI sniper that shot. So who's the responsible one. for the FBI? Uh, that goes back to Department of Justice. But who's who's given the orders here? That's my question. Like you say, Barr's responsible, but who was given the orders to shoot people? I mean, honestly, that's, that's my a question. good question. Because I like I get it. He's in yeah. charge. Okay, fair enough. But there's people under him giving orders. Yeah. Right? So he's not directly responsible because he didn't pull the trigger for one and he didn't give the order for two. Or is that not accurate? Uh, I'm, I'm not real familiar with exactly the way the chain of command yeah. went with that. Okay. But one of the other things you take a look at. I just want to be clear because I, I don't I, I, know. I, I completely understand yeah. that. You know, but it's one of those things. He was responsible for that operation as right, so the he's, attorney general. He's the head of the thing. Yeah. He, he's right. got to accept a certain amount of responsibility sure. for sure. what happened. I don't disagree with Especially that. Especially considering the time frame in which it happened. Right. Because some of those killings happened over a long period of time. The, Which means the, the Randy, Weaver's, Randy family. Weaver's family, his right. wife, his son, during 11 days. Okay, at any time Got during it. that 11 days, as the Attorney General, William Barr could have stepped in and said, you know what, this has gone too far. So he had the authority to do that. Yes, he had Got the authority okay. to do that. So his lack of action, you know, resulting in the death of two over the 11-day standoff period. Right. You know, is one of those reasons why I hold him responsible for what happened it. at Ruby yeah. Ridge. But does does that fall under one of those things where it's like he's got people reporting to him? 
and does that make sense? You get where I'm going? It's like like they could yeah. be feeding him a line of bullshit. Well, yeah, and he absolutely. doesn't and he doesn't have a clue. Absolutely, is that but, po- that's possible? You know, that was ninety two. Yeah. Okay, here we are. It's twenty twenty. Sure. And we have the exact same scenario, exact same situation, where a joint law enforcement operation is conducted in Portland. In Portland, yeah, with zero intention of taking the suspect alive. And who's this? The guy that shot the the preacher guy? Yeah, uh, Reinhold. Yeah. Now, I, I to a certain degree, I understand about that reason why is because he was an extremely dangerous criminal. He did. He was caught on film having actually shot, you know, yeah, another he, individual. He straight point up murked range. a dude. Yeah, like, um, and the dude wasn't bothering him either, from what I understand. Right? Uh, it it's hard to say because I know the dude also cut loose with some pepper spray. Yeah. At approximately the exact same time he was shot. So I don't know whether or not you know Reinhold was shooting him because he got sprayed with pepper spray, or right. whether or not the pepper spray was discharged because Reinhold was pointing a gun at him. Right. You know, the, the exact timing of that because of the videos that are available. You know, but the thing is, you got 40 law enforcement guys up armored with guns, you know. Yeah. They legitimately could have taken him and actually held him for trial. And they chose not to. Yeah. Well, yeah. and that's what I'm saying. Like, who's yeah. who's in charge of the actual, like, in the field? You know what I mean? Because yeah, good you, question. Yeah. You know, a lot of times, like, there's been situations here in Boise where, like, dude got shot at 86 times and they hit him three times. Remember that dude on the it, the connector? Like, what was that? Eight, 17 years ago? Yeah. Well, remember, it, remember that, that, that was BPD. Sep- that was BPD yeah. 17 years ago. Yeah. Well, I'm just yeah, saying. You I'm know, just 17 saying, years like, ago, the BPD from 17 years ago is not the BPD of today. No, not at all. But I'm just know. saying, like, there's there's someone yeah. in the field in a chain of co- in the chain yeah. of command who's given these orders of like. Hey, dude, shoot this motherfucker on sight. For instance, yeah. Just again, like I'm not, I'm not defending either and, point. And I'm and just I, and I completely understand that. But one of the other things that we talk about an awful lot, as far as issues, is of course Waco. Oh yeah, Waco was Kay. a shit show. Waco was a shit show. Completely. Now the irony of Waco is, is Janet Reno had been AG for less than two weeks when Waco went down. Right. Which means Bill Barr's fingerprints were all over the entire Department of Justice and right. the way the Department of Justice handled things. Right. So literally, Waco was an echo of William Barr. I get what you're saying, and but who's in the, who's in the DOJ when all this stuff's going down, though? Too, because think yeah. if you think about all the the key players and all these events, mm-hmm. it's it's kind of like the 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 Warren Commission, if you will. <laughs> yeah, that's a great example of key uh-huh. players in all these events. Yeah, because think about who was on that: Bush, mm-hmm. Ford, Nixon, mm-hmm. Hoover, right? Yeah. Like, holy shit. So, like, there wasn't a conspiracy there? Well, exactly. You know what I mean? So that's why I asked you, that. You know, and like I said, you, you can't actually look, you know, I look at it because he was a key player and he was yeah. in a key position where he should have been held responsible for some of the things well, that happened. Well, he's got to have some responsibility. Yeah, he's got to yeah. have some responsibility. As the head of it. Now, here's an extremely ironic situation. reason why is because do you know who is in charge of the Senate Judiciary Committee as the chairman? For both Ruby Ridge and Waco. Uh, Pelosi. Senator Joe Biden. Oh, shit. (laughs) So Senator Joe Biden is responsible for Senate oversight of the Department of Justice and the AG, 
was responsible for oversight of William Barr for Ruby Ridge, as well as Janet Reno for Waco. Wow. So you think Barr switched sides? I uh, don't think Barr switched sides. I th- no, I mean now. Uh, well, right now, Barr's working for uh, Trump. Right, so he switched sides. Well. Trump he, used to be a Democrat. Well, Trump Remember used that. to be a Democrat. To, but the thing is, is he still accepted the job under a Republican. Well, I know. As a Republican. He, and now, they hate him, too. Well. <laughs> they all hate him. They all hate him. You they know, all he, hate him. And that's legitimately so, because he's screwing with uh, the status quo. He's screwing with their money. Well, yeah, he is. I mean. He really is. Yeah. All their illegal money. Uh, all of their legal, all of their legal, all of it. You know, they're, he's messing with all of it. You know, whether he's doing it by design or whether or not he's oh, doing it just totally because he's, yeah, I don't know. Um, I have a tendency to think that Trump is just self-interested enough that uh, any he incidental damage that happens to anybody else is yeah. beyond him. You know, one thing I always want people to think about, and I'll say this to you, too, because I don't know if, if you've seen me write this before, but he's doing the job for free. What the fuck self-interest does he have? Why would someone want to take this much okay. abuse? Well, here, here's the thing. For nothing. And we've run into the problem before, okay? Yeah, he's doing the job for free. He's not accepting that 400000 a year that's part of his presidential salary. He's turning right. around and donating it to, you know, miscellaneous, that's you cool. know, federal nonprofits, which $400,000 is – or 400000 is – Well, not for the nonprofits he donates it to. Well, it's a lot of money to me. Well, it's a lot of money to you. It's a lot of money to me. Yeah. It's a lot of money to most of the local nonprofits. Yeah. Absolutely. But when you donate 400000 to the Red Cross of the United States, that's a, that's paltry. That's pennies. But, right. you, you know, but so still, a, a lot of it is is where he decides to donate it in which capacity. I do. There I, are honestly, some. I don't care if he gave it to fucking Tony yeah. Soprano. But <laughs> this is my point. Who on earth in their right mind, Joe, in their right mind, would take this much abuse daily for the last almost four years. Okay, so for I, free. I, I I got a question for you. I'm just saying. How I much wouldn't. how much does he put in his pocket after he charges the secret service for rooms at Mar a Lago? I don't know. Probably not a whole lot. He's got employees to pay. Do they stay at Mar a Lago? Do we yeah, know that? The, the Secret Service stays at Mar a Lago when how he do you goes know he golfing down there. I he owns the place, right? Yeah, I think – didn't – well, I, I actually got to go in and take a look. I would comp him if it was me. <laughs> Dude, look, the guy was but, – But it's federal money. It's federal money. It's not fine. coming out of his pocket. But the guy was a billionaire before he took office. Well, that's interesting because uh, somebody just finally got a hold of his tax returns for the last couple of years. And yeah. Are they real? I, d- I don't know. I don't know. Because I know one thing. Rachel Maddow making ass out of herself on her little MSNBC show one night. She does. She, she pulled his – the tax – his tax records from whatever year it was, 2009 or something, he paid $33 million in taxes. Yeah. And she was like the, – the thing that made her make an ass out of herself about it was she was like, oh, yeah, he should pay more. And it's like, dude, he paid $33 million in taxes. What do you mean he should pay more? Like who, the f- <laughs> like, who are you, Rachel Mandel? I call her Rachel Mandel. I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't like her. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, that's a personal thing. That's my opinion. But – but you know, one of the things is is like we're talking about four hundred thousand. That's his presidential salary. Yeah, and he gives okay. away. And, and there's certain other things. You know, we don't actually know what the internal workings are, whether he's comping or whether he's charging the federal government. Right. For the Secret Service stays at Mar-a-Lago. See, these are things that I know. don't care about, though. Yeah. You and know what I mean? Like he's yeah. he's got to have his people with him. 
Well, yeah, and that's one of the other things is He's I got think to. Trump's still actually paying his own personal security detail in addition to the Secret Service detail that he, he You know why, don't you? I wouldn't trust the Secret Service if I were him either. You know, you know, you know, I don't know if you know this or not, and this is another one of those things like we don't have like like I don't have a like a book to open up and show you. Right. But word on the street is, is there's been there's been a minimum of 26 attempts on his life since he's been in. Uh, and I wouldn't doubt it, because I'm going to tell you one thing right now. Ronald Reagan sure was a fucking renegade until they put one in him. Yeah. Just saying. Just well, saying. I, I mean, that's the situation. But the thing is, is right now we have an awful lot of rogue elements right now that right. are running around. That's what I'm saying. You know, the, these people aren't controlled. No. Okay. Well, they are to a degree. Well, they, they are to a degree. But they're like, you know, they're like free depending. agents. Yeah, they're like free rogue, agents. Rogue agents is a good term you know uh we constantly talk about the lone wolves you know with regards to alt-right terrorism jason Bourne shit yeah (laughs) you know you got people who show up you know and do things you know like we treat the uh guy down in nevada who shot the police officers you know oh he's he's a rogue you know we know there were things that influenced his decision to do that yeah, MK okay. Ultra. Yeah, MK Ultra, or just you know, know the fact that he'd had too much meth at some point in his life. There's that too. Y- you know, there's a number of reasons why <laughs> these people. <laughs> he was hanging know, out in Pahrump. <laughs> yeah, there's a number of reasons why these people end up going off and doing these strange things. You know, you had the office shooting down in L.A. You know, where there was a radicalized was there woman. Well, this wasn't right wing. This was an Islamic thing. No, I mean a yeah, shooting. Because um, a lot of these shootings. There's a lot of weird, really highly suspect information coming out, like the Vegas one. Yeah. And a lot of it, if you subscribe to the theory of, of it's like, you know, they're trying to prep us up for taking our guns. Well, the, but the thing is, is uh, the people that end up taking the fall for most of these things are supposedly pro-gun individuals. You don't see anybody well, showing that's up. that's how you know, the media you, reports. You got two or three that have been reported as being anti-gun who show up with guns, you know, yeah. for a mass shooting. Which makes no sense. Right. They're anti-gun, but they went and shot a bunch of people. Yeah. And, and it's like... Well, well, that's why I question stuff. Yeah. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. Because it's like... Absolutely, It's you like should. you're going to tell me, like... Well, yeah, so the guy that doesn't like pot had, you know, 88 milligrams of THC in his system at the time of his death. And so we believe that it was marijuana that killed him. Like, what, dude? He didn't smoke pot. I've known that dude for 30 years. <laughs> what are you talking about? Right. You know, exactly. Does that make yeah. sense? N- yeah, exactly. Like, you yeah, know. But a lot of these things, there's suspicious circumstances that go on, and you start going, well, come on, dude. I know you're holding something back from the investigation. What is it you're holding back from the investigation? Right. You know, that's it. Where's the origin for this? Where, you know, what's going on now? Some of them, you start taking a look at what's going on with, you know, back when we were attending school, you know, five years ago or however, you know, centuries ago it was, you know, the kids in school, school shootings. You know, most of those kids were already listed as emotionally unstable or psychologically unstable. So they were perfect fall guys. They were perfect fall guys. You know, they <laughs> just went in and picked them up after, you know, they stole mom's gun and went and shot up the school. Right. Or, you know, after they gave them the gun to go shoot the school. And, or or something, you know. But I think that way when I hear that stuff. I don't know. Yeah, the thing is, is you start taking a look at that, and some of these people have previous histories. Right. You know, like – They've actually gone to social services or they've talked to somebody and said, 
I am a danger to myself and others. I, I know this. I, I need somebody to lock me up until I'm better. Right. You know, in at least like three out of every four cases. You know, they've gone looking for help before this situation, before they ended up in the situation right. where they're now guilty of murder. Right. Okay. And either because social services or medical health care or something else in the process failed them. You know, they were left in the public, unattended, long enough to become the danger right. that they said they were going to be. Yeah, so some of these, I, I don't think it's programming as much as just a failed healthcare system. Sure. Where the situation was created that caused the problem. Now, well, but a lot of the healthcare stuff is like they just put band aids on for you. Well, yeah. And that's one of you the reasons. I mean? Yeah. They put yeah. Band-Aids on it. Instead of th- it's Well, it's like we started this off with the root cause of trauma. Mm-hmm. It's like, here's a Band-Aid, have some vodka. <laughs> yeah, like, exactly. Like, you know, it's it's like, yeah. uh, sorry you suffer from ADHD, here's some Ritalin. Yeah, here's some here's some cocaine. Right. Have fun with this. Right. We put some speed in it, too. <laughs> <laughs> I was a just, Ritalin just to kid. Help you st- just to help you pay attention, you know. Right. But, you know you I was a Ritalin kid, so I know firsthand. Yeah. That shit is gnarly. <laughs> Well, you know, like, I'm... I got things done. Oh, I did, too. (laughs) I still do. But, like, I'm hardwired that way. Yeah. They started me on that shit when I was four. Dexedrine was the first one. Ooh. And then I was five in kindergarten, and then it was Ritalin. So, I'm hardwired that way. It's been in your system now long enough that, you know, all all the synapses are... Well, I stopped taking it when I was 13. Still, that's eight years. Yeah, I know. Oh, trust me, I know. But I'm hardwired, like, to just be the way i am yeah like does that like you know what i mean oh yeah like i just i'm just energy all the time Mm -hmm. because it's just it's just my hardwiring yeah like dude i wake up in the morning at like five in the morning and i'm just up (laughs) like you know what i mean like and i go to i go we go to bed reasonably early but like i just wake up and i'm up and then i'm up Mm-hmm. And then it's like finally I'm just it, like, it just keeps going and going and going and going and going. Well, that's how and I then get, you crash. That's how I get so much shit done. Yeah, you know what I mean. But then, yeah, but then it's just like then I'm just like, but I have a regular sleeping schedule. Yeah, but then it's just like I get tired, mm-hmm. and then it's like pff, time to sleep. I but I'm one of those people too, like because you know with the fitness thing and, and the bodybuilding background and all that, like I'm functional eater, functional sleeper. It's mm-hmm. like I just do that shit because I have to. Yeah, like you know what I mean. <laughs> Okay, I'm tired. I need to sleep. Totally. So uh, let's wrap this up because we've been talking for a minute. This is uh, the just longest, a bit. This is the longest show that I've done. Well, I'm so I'm glad I've been able to keep you entertained. Yeah, me too. <laughs> well, it's it's just generally like there's just certain rules of doing this format of yeah. like keep it like you know whatever. Well, you gotta keep it lively. You gotta be engaged. Yeah. You know, you well, gotta have I, something to talk about. You need to spread the knowledge. Totally. Well, it's yeah. it's not even me. It's you. The, the people that, like I told you, it's the people I talk to that are spreading knowledge. I don't know shit. <laughs> I just try to make people mad. That's my whole game. No, I'm kidding. But so you're running for the first district of Congress in uh, Idaho. Idaho's first congressional November district, Western 3rd? Idaho. November third is, is the date of the, the date. election. Yeah. Uh, we just totally yeah. did the. Yeah. Did the, we, we we did. You the, know, I I've, I got to start doing the German three. German three. Yeah. Well, you know what that one is right. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, well, if you're British, you know, you got this one, too, yeah. which represents something else entirely. I know. Yeah, you know, it, it's like, wait, which hand signals can I use and can I not use? Well, we have to make O's what? like this now. Yeah, where, 
you know, which country am I in at this moment? Who am I going to offend by doing what I do? Totally. Uh, but it's like one of the things I do is, you know, my threes, you know, friends, family, community. Nice. You know, make things happen. Nice. I like that. You know, um, so that's we, one we of can my go vote for you on November 3rd. November 3rd, of course, early elections. Go ahead, get your ballot. Cool. Uh, you can make sure that your they ballot. don't throw it out with yeah, all the other sure, ones. Well, it's one of the things you can do here in the state of Idaho. They actually got ballot drop boxes. Oh, cool. So you can literally go to a place and drop it off where it will be picked up by a county clerk. Oh. Yeah, rather than through the United States Postal Service. Awesome. You hear that, peeps? Yeah. So, but uh, go to IdahoVotes.gov. You can register. You can request your absentee ballot. You can get your ballot shipped to you. You can fill it out. You can take it to a drop box and drop it off. Nice. Zero contact if that's the way you want to do it. Uh, oh, yeah. I forgot about gonna that. They're still going to open up the polls. Good. Canyon County is interesting. reason why is because they have like 50 polling districts in Canyon County. Oh, and they shut it down to just five. Oh, that's going to be a nightmare. Right? Uh, especially when you look at it from the racial perspective because Canyon County has the highest density of Latin community. Yeah, that's true. Here in the state of Idaho, which means that literally that could be attributed to Idaho's racism. You know, it's right. like, wait, wait. It's like your your largest minority community exists in this county, and you just shut down access to polling location. Yeah. But that's something Canyon County is going to have to work out with, uh, yeah. you know, their constituency and figure out how they're going to correct that. Um, but, yeah, IdahoVotes.gov. Order your absentee ballot. Fill out your absentee ballot. Drop it in a drop box. You can do that. You show up at a polling station November 3rd. You can vote for me. Um, also vote for Joe Jorgensen. <laughs> Okay, for those of you who don't know that are new to the Libertarian Party and the Libertarian platform, Joe Jorgensen is the Libertarian candidate for president. Uh, this is going to be the second time she's been on ballots in all 50 states. Oh, wow, okay. Yeah, she actually that. ran as the vice president candidate in 1996, and they actually got him on all 50 ballots back in 1996. So this is the second time she's been on all 50 ballots. Cool. Last time it was vice presidential candidate, 96. This time it's presidential candidate, Good for 2020. Her. Yeah. So there you have it, folks. So Joseph Evans, uh, my guest tonight here on Sorry About Your Feelings in the Safe Space. <laughs> you like the name? Safe Space. It works. It's perfect. Yeah. Uh, you it you know, really is. You know I'm just poking bears, right? Yeah, I know you are. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know me, too. <laughs> but anyway, so congressional candidate here in Idaho. Remember to go vote, people, uh, November yes, 3rd. Uh, you know, it's one of the rights that we have as Americans, and it's something that's very, very important. This is an important election. Uh, hopefully, and honestly, thanks for coming. I hope you win. <laughs> I really do. Well, thank you. I well, really do. Uh, well, that's part of you're giving me airtime here. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I I was interested in in hearing what you had to say. Like, I'm not against anything you're saying. I'm really not. Like you know what I mean? Like well, you you sit down and break it down, and it it is all reason. Nothing. There's you sound no, reasonable. There's no reason anybody should be objecting to anything I had to say tonight. No. You know it it makes sense. It's reasonable. It's a decent game plan. I think plan. it's reasonable. Yeah. You know, and it's not something that messes with the world order of things. No. You know, ex but we can take care of ourselves here. Yeah, we can. We are Idaho. We can take care of ourselves. Exactly. You know, and I'm we into we that. get rid of a lot of that legislation. Idaho is already set up to be independent. We can Idaho exist. already thinks it's independent anyway. Just ask Channel 7 News. <laughs> <laughs> 
Seriously. This is a session of Idaho. Well, you know, you know how we're connected to everything that happens on Channel Seven News. Right. It doesn't like, dude. There could be like a jetliner get shot down in fucking Mongolia, and they're like Idaho's connection. And you're like, how is Idaho connected to that? Well, the Malaysia pilot, airliner went down. Yeah. Well, the pilot you know. one time was on a United flight 793 in 1962 and flew over Boise <laughs> on its way to Seattle. Like they'll say shit like that on Channel Seven News. I swear to God. Well, like, but yeah, honestly, that's the problem with all of the news stations. Yeah, you you right. watch CNN. You know, it happens in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You know, and they make it feel like it's happening in our backyard. Right. It's like, well, no, you know, there's no, thirty that, foot flames Minnesota. behind him, but it's mostly peaceful. <laughs> I'm just saying. But but it's happening in Minnesota. Right, and then they're in Wisconsin <laughs> though. Well, it's it's happening in. How far do you have to drive to get to Wisconsin from Minnesota? And, well, probably from not Idaho, that far. From Boise. Probably not that far. You just got to go through Montana or Wyoming, right? When was the last time you drove through Montana? Uh, nobody did. Along the long length. Yeah, right. No, <laughs> no one's ever done that. I don't think. Uh, no, because usually you end up coming up through some other direction. I like going through Yellowstone before I go in Montana. Right? Yeah, no kidding. It's pretty over yeah, there. Yeah, it, it's pretty. Like over through Victor. Yeah. And then like up to Jackson Hole. Of course, as soon as uh, Yellowstone blows up, it's going to be a completely different landscape over there. Oh, I'm scared. <laughs> Yellowstone's not blowing up. Joe, stop it. No, that's not happening. So Okay, but yeah. No, that's funny. Anyway, thanks for coming. Seriously, I really appreciate it. So remember that, everybody, the Libertarian candidate for Congress in District 1, jo- uh, Joseph Evans, vote for I vote for you. <laughs> like, I haven't heard anything them other assholes have said that sounds good to me. <laughs> so I'm just saying. Well, I, I mean, yeah, you step back and you take a look at it. And, you know, uh, you got one of them who's going – yeah, we need to give more power to the office of the president. You know, he shouldn't have to wait for Congress to decide this, that, or the other. What's the other guy saying? The other guy says, um, gun control is an important thing. Oh, Jesus, he's <laughs> one of those guys? Well, he's running on here, the Democratic ticket. Here, I got, I, I'm I got, honestly surprised he waited as long to come out with that as he did. I got gun control for you. My safety's on. Uh, that's what it is, you know. Shouldn't uh, it be gun safety? Well, I, I mean, really. We had to take that in school. Remember? Well, but we also used to have gun safety in school. Yeah, you that's know? what I'm saying. We, we used to have safety. the ROTC firing range in the basement. Of, you know, um, right? Bora, not Bora, but we, we learned how to shoot bows and arrows. You know? and we learned gun safety. Yeah, you know, that's you like learned basic how to hunt. Shit. You know, because that's what we were even back then. You know, an awful lot of Boise City yeah. residents were, you know, subsistence hunters. Right. Yeah, you know, they learned a bow. They learned the gun. You know, we go. It was a hunting safety course. Yeah, hunter safety, exactly. Yeah, you know, exactly. And we weren't fighting hunter hunter safety. A lot of people actually took it because it was available. Yeah, well, it's smart to take in a place like Idaho. No, it is. There's tons yeah. of hunting. The, the the landscape and the beauty of this place. This place is awesome. Well, it also helps, uh, you know, maintain your gun control when you go out shooting whistle pigs. Oh yeah, that's always fun. Yeah, we yeah. just use BB guns. <laughs> All right. Well, hey, so, again, thanks for coming. Uh, This is Jimmy Rose signing off. Channel 99 Studio on the YouTube and all the other platforms that we have. There's other shows on on the channel besides mine. Hit that subscribe button. Like our videos. Leave some comments because that's the best way to help our channel out right now. And I'm sure I'll see all of you real soon. Love you. What was that? Oh, yeah, and thanks to Tim Meyer, my producer, as always. Uh, He's one of my best friends and a great dude. And he'd probably punch me in the face if I didn't thank him. (laughs) And I had to be reminded by my lovely assistant that I needed to do that. So that's how that works. Hey, until I see you again, party peeps, I'll see you again.